the show hasn't started yet. Not even close to starting. I'm in a bad mood. I was in Juarez, Mexico last night. Oh. I, yeah, I showed up late for the donkey show, so they fired me. Oh, no. Yeah, I, I can't go to, I don't. I no longer have a work visa for Juarez, Mexico. They fired me at the donkey show. show hasn't started yet. Not even close. Well, not, Here's my decaf. Now what are you going to, what are you going to do for your income? Uh, <laughs> more like outcome. I don't want to get into it. But look, the show has not started. By the way, my my site is back up and here's why it went down. I forgot to renew the domain. Yeah. Turns out I'm not important enough to be shut down by the deep, dark state. By the way, Dan, speaking of deep, dark state and the show has not started yet. Here's a tip that I want to give you, Dan. A lot of men who live with women uh, you know, they do each other's washes and sometimes us guys are embarrassed by, you know, unsightly stains on our underwear, you know. So yeah. what I do is I wear my underwear on the outside. Oh, man. Yeah, I know. It, your, pants, your, your pants must be a mess. <laughs> yeah, I, I, well, you can't see it because uh, I'm wearing my underwear on the outside. So I look ridiculous, but at least I have nothing to be ashamed of. Right. No embarrassment. Good. Yeah. Show hasn't started yet. Still you got your coffee. Just still warming up here. <laughs> that is some good decaf. Now, normally, Dan, I don't give investment tips. OK, but now, okay. now that abortion is about to become illegal, all my money is in portable staircases. That's where I'm putting all my outstanding. money. Hmm. That is outstanding. Thank you. Show hasn't started yet, Dan. Not even close. <laughs> you're you're a Democrat, right? Sure, I am. Do you hate the Republicans? No. GOP, more like geo-poo. Yeah, I'll say it. Even <laughs> I don't care if they shut me down again. I'll say it. GOP, more like geo. Show hasn't. Where's my? Where are my notes? I actually have notes for today's show. Hang on, I have to turn my notes. You're so brave. <laughs> yeah, hang on, I have to go, to say. For the yeah, I don't care. Let the chips fall where they may. GOP, more like geo poo. And, and you know what? If they if the deep dark state shuts me down again, so be it. Show hasn't started yet. <laughs> I think my eye doctor is Greek. Uh, Why is that, David? Well, instead of my eyes, he dilates my butt. <laughs> well, look, the show has not started yet. What I'm doing here is uh, I'm playing the expectations game. And <laughs> right now, if your expectations got any lower, you could smell Donald Rumsfeld's skin smoldering in hell. Should we start the show, Dan? I think it's time. <laughs> or end it. Thank you, Dan. That's, that's enough poo and butt jokes. Yeah. Thank <laughs> it's time you. for the news. Yeah. yeah. Well, the show hasn't started yet, so I can, you know, now the show has started, so we have to be dignified. This is a very important show. 
Welcome to the mop up for May 9th, 2022. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 62 degrees and sunny. Protesters in Poland today doused the Russian ambassador with red paint. Sergei Andreev arrived at an event honoring Soviet soldiers who defeated the Nazis. Russia's ambassador was splattered with red paint to protest Putin's invasion of Ukraine, or perhaps the Russian ambassador's unibrow was so thick, PETA mistook it for a mink stole. Monday marks the anniversary, show hasn't started yet. Monday marks the anniversary of the Soviet Union's defeat of Nazi Germany back in 1945. Vladimir Putin marked the occasion by commissioning 130,000 World War II reenactors to play the part of the Nazis by invading Ukraine. Hmm. In a 10-minute speech on Moscow's Red Square, Vladimir Putin said, once again, Nazis are being defeated, this time in Ukraine. That's what he said. And that marks the first time Putin has admitted that his soldiers in Ukraine are losing. You see, because it's the Russians who are overrun by Nazis, the Wagner Group. Read about it. Vladimir Putin made the speech before a parade of 11,000 soldiers and 131 armored vehicles. The parade was considered a success since only 50 tanks got stuck in the mud and only three Russian generals were assassinated. All right, that's good. I like that one. The Russian, the show started. The, the Russians. The Russians seem to be losing. They have given up on seizing Ukraine's capital, Kiev. The Ukrainian people are not collaborating with Russian soldiers, as Putin had been promised. And as Putin now focuses on assisting Russian-speaking separatists in the Donbass region of Ukraine, the Kremlin can only boast modest gains, which the next day are put into the minus column, and it starts all over again. This is a mess, and I'm not the only one who has questioned whether or not Biden is making the right decisions. Even Thomas Friedman and the New York Times over the weekend worried that Biden was letting this thing spiral out of control. So if Thomas Friedman agrees with me, you know I'm wrong. That is some good coffee. Professor Juan Cole, who's always right, over at Informed Comment writes that if the Supreme Court, we're gonna talk about abortion, he writes that if the Supreme Court does go ahead and overturn Roe v. Wade, the Christian right will have succeeded in making it harder to get an abortion in America than in most majority Muslim nations around the world. A majority Muslim nation means it's primarily Muslim and their government is run by Muslims. The right, in America has justified launching war against Muslim nations and banning Russians from entering this country because Muslim teachings are too oppressive when it comes to women. If you turn on Tucker Carlson, he'll fret over the spread of Sharia law coming into America, turning women into second class citizens. But it is the evangelical right. It is the right wing religious nuts, especially on the Supreme Court, who are turning women into second class citizens. I'm not pro-choice. I am pro-abortion. 
on pro-abortion. Professor Cole writes that as far back as medieval times, Islamic leaders in Turkey and Asia permitted all abortion three months into a pregnancy. So stop flattering yourself, America. Our abortion laws are more restrictive than most Muslim-dominated countries. Women in Muslim countries should worry more about American law, specifically handed down by Christian evangelicals. They must worry about American law more than they must worry about Sharia law. Christian evangelicals working the, uh, the Republican Party, feeding the Supreme Court with so-called pro-life justices, they are getting laws passed here in America that are more of a threat to women than the laws being passed by our Muslim neighbors. Professor Cole says that of 47 Muslim-controlled nations, only 18 have abortion laws that are pretty much identical to the laws passed in Texas. 18 out of 47 have abortion laws that are pretty much identical to the laws passed in Texas. And as we all know, Texas abortion laws are the template for all the other red states should Roe v. Wade be overturned. And it looks like it's about to be. Professor Cole writes that 43 states in America have imposed some sort of limit on abortion. There are, he says, if, if each state were a country, there are more Muslim nations than American states where it's easier to get an abortion. It's harder to get an abortion in America. 43 states make it harder to get an abortion here in America than most Muslim-controlled countries. Well, let's talk about rape. I'm anti-rape. Texas will not allow abortion in the case of incest and rape. Let me repeat that. Texas will not allow abortion in the case of incest and rape. I'm not sure there's any difference between rape and incest. So let's talk about rape. According to the Brennan Center, 80% of rapes in America go unreported to the police. And of those reports, something like 4% result in a conviction. Rape kits sit in evidence rooms. There is, according to Atlantic, the magazine, there is an epidemic of rape kits containing sperm, containing the DNA of an alleged assailant that sit in evidence rooms untested. Think about this. After a woman gets raped, a police officer sticks a swab inside of her to get the DNA, and then the rape kit is put away, never sent off to a lab. Why? Well, partly because it costs about $1,000 for each test. And most importantly, the police never want to prosecute rape. So the rape kits go untested. In Cleveland alone, there are said to be 7,000 rape kits fully loaded with DNA that remain untested. In Detroit, it is estimated that at least 13,000 rape kits loaded with DNA are sitting untested. According to Atlantic, there are at least 200,000 rape kits around America that should have been sent off to a lab, but just sit in the evidence room of a local police station. The victims who submit to the test, 
the women are told that the police are investigating. And of course, a rape victim wants to move on. So she trusts the police. She trusts the rape kit to get tested and she moves on and so do the detectives and nothing ever happens. That's why 80% of all rapes in America go unreported. There is an epidemic of rape and an epidemic of American police not using DNA evidence to catch the rapists. A central database over at the FBI of DNA samples reveals that serial rapists are much more common than previously thought. You see, Brett Kavanaugh doesn't just rape once or try to rape a woman once. Had the FBI during the confirmation hearings followed up on all the women who came forward to report Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh's attempts at rape, they would find that he has attempted several times to rape women. See, that's why rape kits are so important. If all the rape kits were tested, law enforcement would be able to catch these serial rapists. It would be less of a he said, she said when a woman who claims to have been raped has the same exact DNA inside of her as another woman across state lines who also claims to have been raped. But that would require sending these rape kits off to the lab, and we rarely do. And in Texas, if you get pregnant from a rape, you must keep the baby because all life is precious unless that life belongs to a rape victim. You're raped, you're pregnant, and because you must keep that baby every single day of your life, you are reminded of what that man did to you, and you have to raise that reminder and breastfeed that reminder and take care of that reminder every day of your life. That person reminds you of the worst night of your life. It wasn't until last year that Texas finally got around to passing legislation that would fund sending rape kits off to be tested. Meanwhile, close to 7,000 rape kits in Texas still remain untested. Women in Texas are second-class citizens because of these abortion laws. They can't make love. They can't work. They can't educate themselves. They have no choice what to do with their bodies if they make the mistake of satisfying their animal urges while making love or if they're raped. Now, this brings me to Republican governor of Texas, Greg Abbott. He's the face of all these anti-abortion laws in Texas, which are serving as a template for all the anti-abortion laws that will spread throughout red state America if Roe v. Wade is overturned. So let's talk about Republican governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, who back in 1984 had just graduated from law school and was studying for the bar. And he decided to go for a jog in Western Houston. And while on his run, a tree snapped, a branch fell and snapped Greg Abbott's back. And since then, Greg Abbott has been in a wheelchair. Very sad story. What's even sadder is that now Governor Greg Abbott, a Republican, 
like a rape victim, has chosen to forget everything that happened on that terrible day. We try to forget horrible things that happened to us on that terrible day. Greg Abbott doesn't want to think about the day he was told he was going to be a, in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. He, when he was told he would never walk, he doesn't want to think about the day his body was ruined. And he has chosen to forget that. He's moved on. And by choosing to forget that day when he became a paraplegic, he has chosen to forget every single one of his fellow Texans who, like Greg Abbott, is confined to a wheelchair. That's who Governor Greg Abbott is. The Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation, which advocates for the disabled, calls Governor Greg Abbott, and I quote, a disability advocate's worst nightmare. Greg Abbott in a wheelchair is called a disability advocate's worst nightmare. So here you have a politician, Greg Abbott, in a wheelchair. You would figure, well, I'm sorry this happened to him, but in many ways this is can be a good thing. Finally, a disabled lawyer who passes the bar will advocate on behalf of the disabled. But not so. He's made it worse for the disabled. According to these new voting laws, it's harder for disabled people to vote now in Texas, thanks to the paraplegic governor of Texas, Republican Greg Abbott. Before Governor Greg Abbott became attorney general of Texas, he uh, he spoke out against the American Disabilities Act. And once he became Attorney General of Texas, he routinely challenged lawsuits that were based on the Americans with Disabilities Act. He cited Texas's sovereign immunity from federal law, meaning the Americans with Disabilities Act could not be applied to Texas, even though it was passed and proposed by Texas' favorite son, George Herbert Walker Bush, which he calls one of the greatest moments of his presidency. So despite having to spend the rest of his life as a paraplegic, Greg Abbott, as Texas's attorney general, decided to declare the Americans with Disabilities Act unconstitutional. As attorney general, Greg Abbott supported tort reform. He supported putting caps on how much someone can collect in civil damages because he hates trial lawyers, but not his trial lawyer. After that tree snapped his back, Greg Abbott sued and he reached an agreement where the homeowner who had the tree on his property, as well as the tree inspector who said the tree wasn't going to break, he settled in court with the two of them, and they must pay him upwards of $15,000 a month for the rest of his life, all of that tax-free. Plus, he gets a 4% bump on that monthly stipend each year. So that's about $15,000 a month, and there are several lump sums coming his way every couple of years, each one amounting to anywhere between three dollars to $500,000. All told, 
Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott has collected close to $6 million from that settlement, and it keeps on coming in. That money will keep on coming in for the rest of his life. And you know who got Governor Greg Abbott that settlement? Trial lawyers, tort law, which Greg Abbott wants for himself, but not for the people who elected him, not for the people he represents. Now, I feel a bit uncomfortable politicizing the fact that Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, is a paraplegic. It makes me uncomfortable, but he is a Republican. I used to feel bad about bringing up his predecessor, Rick Perry, especially bringing up the rumors about his homosexuality. But Rick Perry is a Republican. You see, Republicans, especially the ones from Texas, have a double standard. What applies to me doesn't apply to you. Like George W. Bush and his dad, they were all in on the Vietnam War. But George W. Bush didn't want to serve because he didn't want to get killed. He wanted you to get killed. So George W. Bush's dad down in Texas pulled strings and got George W. in the Champagne unit of the Texas Air National Guard. He was supposed to serve in the Alabama National Guard, but he lost interest and was AWOL, literally AWOL. But he still supported the war in Vietnam, as did his father. George W. Bush was reported AWOL from the Alabama National Guard, which is a crime. But if you're the CIA director's son, your dad pretty much knows how to cover up missing people. While Vice President Bush and President Reagan were fighting a war on drugs, George W. was snorting them while his father was bringing them into the ghetto to finance the Contras. Never been disproven. The Bush family for decades gave to Planned Parenthood until abortion became a political football in the early 80s. And then the Bush family decided, you know what? We can afford an abortion. We know how to get an abortion. Better poor women shouldn't be able to get one. Who cares about poor women? They don't vote Republican. Well, back to the paraplegic governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, who has passed some of the most stringent anti-abortion laws in the world, stricter than what you see in Muslim nations. Only 18 Muslim nations out of 47 Muslim majority nations have abortion laws as strict as Texas. Greg Abbott, governor of Texas. I'm sorry he's a paraplegic, but there's something obscene about a man telling a woman what she can do with her body when he himself can't tell his own body what to do. It's obscene and it explains what the anti-abortion movement is all about. It's no coincidence that the strictest abortion laws are coming from a Republican man in a wheelchair. Democrats in wheelchairs, I like to think, are a little different. You know, FDR, who realized, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who realized that some people are luckier than others. And it is the role of government, first and foremost, to provide for those who are unlucky. People in wheelchairs are in wheelchairs because of bad luck. 
It's bad luck. One day you're studying for the bar, you take a break, go for a jog, a tree branch falls on your back, and you spend the rest of your life as a paraplegic in a wheelchair, just like Greg Abbott. But a Republican like Greg Abbott goes into denial. Screw people with disabilities. I'm not disabled. It never happened. That's how the unhealthy Republican mind thinks. Total denial. Here's how a healthy mind thinks. I'm in a wheelchair. I'm a lawyer. Hey, I can help the unlucky. But Greg Abbott decided I'm a Republican. I'm in denial. Move on to be the same person he was before the accident. That's what he decided to be. And he turned his back on his fellow unlucky Texans. He turned his back on his fellow unlucky Texans. He turned his back on other people in wheelchairs because it reminded him of partly who he is. He became a sycophant of the lucky, doing their bidding, speaking up for the lucky so they would accept him. Greg Abbott, it is not Christian to turn your back on the unlucky. It is not Christian to identify with the lucky and serve as their errand boy. Most importantly, Greg Abbott, that is not what a real man does. Therefore, Greg Abbott, you are not a real man by any definition of manhood, by any definition of manhood, Greg Abbott, there's the right definition of manhood and the wrong definition of what a man is. By any definition, you, Greg Abbott, are not a man. Men do not pick on the weak. They don't turn their back on the disabled. Men help the weak. I suspect Abbott wasn't a real man before he became a paraplegic. And I suspect he became even less of a man after he became a paraplegic. He clings to the wrong definition of what constitutes a man. There is a type of Texan who fetishes manhood as being something synonymous with self-sufficiency, with being strong, not getting kicked around and fighting back. That's the kind of Texan Greg Abbott wants to be. That's the kind of man Greg Abbott fancies himself. There's a type of Texan who believe that Texas is more than a sovereign state because it's made up of rugged individuals who don't need anyone's help. We don't need the Americans with Disability Act. We're strong. We're self-sufficient. Just give me my gun and my religion and I'll take care of the rest. That's who Greg Abbott is. That's how he defines incorrectly what manhood is. His definition of manhood is toxic and it's wrong, but that's how he defines it. Now he's a, a paraplegic. That's problematic to, to fancy yourself a rugged individual confined 
to a wheelchair. Now, where I come from, someone in a wheelchair is no different from anyone else and should be given equity so that they continue to be no different from anybody else. But not Greg Abbott. He doesn't believe in the Americans with Disability Act, even though, as I said, it was the Republican president, Texas favorite son, George Herbert Walker Bush, who passed it. He called it his uh, crowning achievement. But Greg Abbott is more of a man than George Herbert Walker Bush. A lot of people thought George Herbert Walker Bush was a wimp. Greg Abbott, he's not a wimp. He's a right winger. It's self-sufficiency. He hates the government. But the problem, Greg Abbott, is you hate the government. You think everybody should be self-sufficient, but you're a paraplegic in a wheelchair. You need the government. You need the government to make sure there are ramps, special elevators. You need the government to make sure that you can check into a hotel that has a room that is wheelchair accessible. You need airplanes that have aisles that can accommodate your chair. You need a government to make sure that restaurants can accommodate you. And most importantly, you need a federal government to make sure that no matter where you travel in America, there are bathrooms for you that provide not just access, but dignity. Greg Abbott, you're a paraplegic, and it is the ADA that provides people like you with not just access to bathrooms, but dignity. Dignity. But Greg Abbott doesn't think that way. He should spend less time worrying about which gender is using a bathroom and more time worrying about being able to use one himself. I think that's a bigger problem for him. So as a Christian, Greg Abbott, you could say Jesus put you in that wheelchair for a reason to use your God-given talent as a lawyer to spend every waking day fighting for the unlucky. You had just graduated from law school. You were studying for the bar when you became a paraplegic. Jesus had plans for you. You're a bad Christian. You're not looking at what Jesus is telling you. Instead, Governor Greg Abbott, you turned your back on Jesus. Instead, you sidled up to the money changers. You turned your back on the meek and instead became an errand boy for the Texas, the Texans who inherit the earth and then drill it. You're not a Christian, Greg Abbott. And you're not a man by any definition, by the wrong definition of a man, by the way you define manhood, you're not a man. And by the way, healthy men define manhood. You're not a man. Greg Abbott is not a man by any definition of manhood. By his definition or my definition, Greg Abbott is not a man. And yet he spends a lot of time trying to pass laws telling us who is and isn't a man. Hmm. It must be tough, Greg Abbott, wanting to be a man the way you define it, but knowing deep down inside you're anything but. 
Therefore, you're not a Christian. You're not by any definition a man. And you are mentally ill. You are mentally ill, Greg Abbott. And being a paraplegic only makes your mental illness even worse. Your definition of manhood is diseased. It's especially diseased because you are physically and spiritually incapable of being the man you think you ought to be. It's sick to want to be the man you think you ought to be. And then you get even sicker when you realize you can't be the man you think you ought to be. And what do you do? Because you're mentally ill, you suck up to the bullies. You try to make the people who would consider you a loser, you try, you try to make the people who would make fun of you for being in a wheelchair behind your back, you try to make them like you. You try to make the bullies like you. Greg Abbott, instead of seeing the bullies as the source of so much of your emotional pain, you try to relieve that emotional pain by courting the people who inflict that emotional pain. Greg Abbott believes in he, that he can relieve his emotional pain by getting the bullies to like him, even though deep down inside he knows the bullies are bullies and they should be punched because we all know if you believe what Greg Abbott believes, the only thing you can do to a bully is stand up to a bully, but Greg Abbott can't stand up. So it eats at him every day. And the only way he can feel better about himself is to join the bullies in lashing out at the unlucky. Turn your back, Greg Abbott, on the unlucky who are just as unlucky as you and serve mammon and the bullies who pick on people like you. Because so much of this is wrapped up in Greg Abbott's toxic definition of what it means to be a man, he has no choice because he's mentally ill to lash out at women. He hates women. He hates women because he has an ideal of what a woman should be attracted to, and it's not Greg Abbott. The women Greg Abbott wants, the women that Greg Abbott wants are women who would look at a guy in a wheelchair and see someone who is weak, because that's who he is. And so he hates women. He wants to control women. He hates the idea that women right now are having sex with the type of men he considers strong. And if these women get raped, well, Greg Abbott, deep down inside, figures they deserved it. That's the mind of a right-wing anti-abortion crusader. It's not just Greg Abbott. It's the mind of every right-wing anti-abortion crusader. They think women have something I want. They won't give it to me unless, of course, I rape them. So they won't give it to me if they get pregnant, giving their body over to a man other than me. They should have to keep the baby as punishment, even if it's rape. 
I know this is true. Most men don't like to talk about this. I will. I have never sexually harassed or sexually assaulted a woman. But I have been frustrated by women. I have been sexually frustrated by women. I have gone out with women wanting to have some kind of sex with them and been told, I only like you as an object of ridicule. That's what women have told me. I don't want to have sex with you. I just like you as someone who I can... Uh, my computer is frozen. What's going on here? Hang on. Oh, come on, you motherfucker. Uh, well, we'll have to do it this way. Uh, I would be lying if I said I was happy uh, that a woman rejected me. I would be lying if I didn't feel frustrated. I would be lying if I didn't feel a tiny bit resentful and thinking maybe, just maybe, she'll go out with some other guy and then come to her senses and realize how great I am. So, yeah, I kind of wish bad for the women who wouldn't sleep with me. I wanted them to have a bad experience with some other guy so they'd come crawling back and I'd answer the door with a beautiful woman on my arm and get to say, you had your chance. Come on in. You want a threesome? Uh, am I happy about that? No. I wish I could say uh, when, a, when a woman rejected me, I wish I was capable of saying, you know what? If you feel unattracted to me, then that makes me unattracted to you. The fact that you're unattracted to me does not make me more attracted to you. I'm so emotionally centered. I don't want to have any attraction for a woman who isn't attracted to me. I hope you find a man who can find your clitoris and you both live happily ever after. I wish I could say that. I wish I could believe that. I know I'm supposed to think that. So I behave like I think that, which are, that's what healthy men are trained to do. You you behave like you, you're thinking properly. And then eventually, hopefully, you stop behaving and you actually start behaving and thinking the same way. But then there are men inside the Republican Party who seek to codify into law revenge on all the women who won't sleep with them. All the women they can't get it up for. And that is why the Republican Party is a party of rapists. It is the party that hates women. And you can't separate hatred for women from being anti-abortion. Anti-abortion means anti-women. Women, Republicans hate women. They don't believe in equal pay. They don't believe in paid maternity or even paid paternity leave. They don't want contraception covered by Obamacare. They believe that women should be subservient to men, that a woman's job is to make babies and stay at home and support the husband. And if the husband leaves her, well, the woman did something wrong. And if the husband dies and the woman is left alone with a couple of kids, Republicans cite that famous line in the New Testament where Jesus says to the lepers, sucks to be you, go away, you sicken me.
I'm pretty sure that's what Jesus said to the lepers. Andrew Wilhoyt is a Republican who lives in Indiana. When his wife got breast cancer, he did what Newt Gingrich did when his first wife got cancer. He began having an affair with another woman. When his cancer-stricken wife found out about the affair, she decided to sue him for divorce. That's what happened to Andrew Wilhoyt. His wife found out about the affair and she sued him for divorce. That's the difference between Andrew Wilhoyt and Newt Gingrich. When Newt Gingrich found out his wife had cancer, he not only had an affair, but he also served her with divorce papers while she was in the hospital. Go look that one up about Newt Gingrich. Well, Andrew Willoit didn't like being served with divorce papers from his cancer-stricken wife. All he did was cheat on her. And he was humiliated when she served him with divorce papers. So he allegedly struck her in the head with a concrete gallon-sized flower pot, threw her lifeless corpse into his car and then dumped his ex-wife's body in the river, so say the Indiana State Police. Andrew Wilhoyt is now in prison and he's facing charges of first degree murder, which, because it's Indiana, carries with it the death penalty. His defense, according to prosecutors, is, yeah, I killed her, but she hit me first. It was an act of self-defense. My wife, my wife, who had just wrapped up a final round of chemotherapy that day, hit me. That's got to hurt. I mean, nobody packs a punch like a woman coming home from chemotherapy. So to defend myself, I cracked her skull open with a concrete flower pot and out of self-defense, I dumped her body in the river because, you know, I heard that if she comes back to life, she won't be able to attack me no more since zombies can't swim. Just throw the zombie in, in the river. Zombies can't swim. Anyway, Will Holt's trial is this August, and that doesn't fit too well into his schedule because Election Day is in November. And last week from prison, he won the Republican primary for one of the open seats on Indiana's Clinton Township Board. He, he got the nomination and he's running for Indiana's Clinton Township Board in November as a Republican, running for office from prison, a regular Eugene V. Debs. In Missouri, the former governor of the state, Republican Eric Greitens is running for senator. Republican. Two months ago, his wife in a sworn deposition said that then Republican Governor Greitens repeatedly assaulted her and their three-year-old son. He's a huge Trump supporter. He also allegedly had an affair with his former hairdresser. That's what he calls her, his hairdresser. Not a barber? Hairdresser? Okay. Uh, while he was governor. Seems kind of strange for a Republican to call the person who cuts his hair a hairdresser, not a barber. Hmm. Anyway, he was having an affair with his hairdresser. 
Apparently or allegedly, she visited the governor's mansion and he decided to tie her up, blindfold her. He sexually assaulted her, then took photos of her tied up and threatened to put the pictures on the Internet if she went public with the affair. Uh, he was forced to resign as the governor of Missouri, as the Republican governor of Missouri. Trump supports him. He also supports Herschel Walker in his run for the Senate in Georgia. Herschel Walker has admitted to attacking his ex-wife, choking her in bed and threatening to kill her. He has been charged, accused of violently stalking a Dallas cowboy cheerleader and threatening to kill another ex-girlfriend. Uh, Herschel Walker admits to choking his wife in bed and threatening to kill her, but he says he didn't violently stalk a Dallas cowboy cheerleader. He's running for Senate in Georgia, and he's got the full-throated support of Donald Trump. Then there's Max Miller. He had a good week. He's supported by Donald Trump. Max Miller worked closely inside the Donald Trump White House. And last Tuesday, he won the Republican primary for Ohio's 7th Congressional District. Former White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham said she dated Max Miller while the two of them worked in the Trump White House. And then while she was promoting her new book late last year, she said Max Miller physically assaulted her after he accused her of cheating on him. She said he had repeatedly assaulted her physically throughout their relationship. Politico last year investigated Max Miller, and after interviewing 60 people and looking at court records, Politico said Max Miller has a storied history of drunk driving and physical assault, and he is now the Republican candidate for Ohio's 7th Congressional District. Last year, Donald Trump endorsed Sean Parnell for Senate in Pennsylvania. But in late November of last year, Parnell was forced to drop out after a judge ruled his ex-wife should gain custody of their three children after Parnell was accused of spousal and child abuse. Parnell's ex-wife accused him of repeatedly choking her and hitting the children so hard he often left welts on their bodies. After Parnell dropped out, Trump threw his support behind Dr. Oz. Trump now wants Dr. Oz to be the senator from Pennsylvania. Then there's the race for governor of Nebraska, where Donald Trump has thrown his considerable weight behind Charles Herbster, who has been accused by eight separate women of sexual assault. One of those women is a state senator, a Republican, who accuses Herbster of putting his hand all the way up her skirt at a GOP fundraiser. I thought running your hand up a woman's skirt at a GOP fundraiser is considered good manners. Hmm, maybe not. All eight accusations of assault against Charles Herbster, all eight accusations of assault have been corroborated by those who saw it take place which means Republicans, are friends of the women 
who told them about the assault immediately afterwards. But Herbster claims he's innocent and is running a series of ads throughout Nebraska claiming he's a victim of the same exact conspiracy launched against Supreme Court justices Brett Kavanaugh and Clarence Thomas. If you'll remember, the FBI never investigated those last minute sexual assault allegations against rapist Brett Kavanaugh. And as for Clarence Thomas, several witnesses came forward to corroborate Anita Hill's accusations. But then chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Joe Biden, didn't think it would be appropriate to hear from the women who could corroborate Anita Hill. Well, Herbster, despite eight women claiming to have been sexually assaulted by him, he is still running for governor of Nebraska. The Republican primary is tomorrow. It's this Tuesday. And over the weekend, Donald Trump held a rally for him in Nebraska. Donald Trump supports Herbster. As of 2020, at least 30 women have come forward claiming they were sexually assaulted by Donald Trump. Hmm. Uh, and that is the same Donald Trump who picked three of the five Supreme Court justices who reportedly have just voted to overturn Roe v. Wade. Hmm. Not a coincidence, makes perfect sense. If you hate women, then you're a Republican. If you hate women, you're opposed to abortion. Now, look, I'm not a fan of Hillary Clinton's, but we were warned back in 2016. Roe v. Wade was on the ballot. The Clintons knew exactly what they were up against, not just a vast right wing conspiracy, a vast right wing Christian conspiracy, the Federalist Society, Ken Starr, the Grand Inquisitor, uh, who was all about Christian morals. Uh, his mistress wrote last year that the Grand Inquisitor, the great the great Christian Ken Starr, uh, when they were working on the impeachment, Brett Kavanaugh was working for Brett, uh, uh, Ken Starr. Brett Starr is the quarterback. Um, and Brett Kavanaugh and Ken Starr's mistress were working together. And Brett Kavanaugh had a temper tantrum, got in uh, this woman's face, threatened to do physical harm. And she reported him. She reported Brett Kavanaugh to Ken Starr, and Ken Starr said, uh, he, this is what she said, Ken Starr said, I'm apologizing for him. Do not make trouble. I have big plans. We have big plans for Brett Kavanaugh. Brett, Brett, uh, Ken Starr knows who Brett Kavanaugh is. Ken Starr hates women. And Hillary knew that. The Clintons knew that. 
And we were warned back in 2016 what we were up against. Roe v. Wade was on the ballot. Again, I have many quarrels with the Democratic leadership. They had an opportunity many times to codify abortion into law, and they didn't. But you can be certain that had Hillary won, all these abortion laws in states like Mississippi, Oklahoma, and Texas would be overturned. It would be easier, not impossible, to get an abortion here in America. Now, Henry Cuellar is running for re-election in Texas. He's pro-life and a Democrat, and he has been endorsed by Pelosi and the Democratic leadership. But he is the only pro-life Democrat in the House of Representatives. Five years ago, there were, there were uh, three pro-life Democrats serving in the House. Ben McAdams served one term from Utah. Uh, Congressman Colin Peterson, Minnesota. And Dan Lipinski from Illinois. And they all got voted out in 2020. All that's left uh, is Cuellar. It's just Cuellar. So it's not like there, there's one asshole, pro-life asshole, uh, in, in, in the House who's a Democrat. Anyway, Charles Herbster is running for governor of Nebraska. Eight women accuse him of sexual assault. We'll find out if he wins this Tuesday. He also made his fortune in bull semen. And one of the people stumping for him is a man who made his money in bullshit, Stephen Moore. Stephen Moore, a former Trump advisor, joined Herbster this past weekend, stumping across Nebraska. Stephen Moore founded Club for Growth, which supports eliminating the estate tax, lowering taxes, reforming Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security by privatizing all three. He loves tort reform and school choice. He also opposes any legislation to fight climate change. When he was running Club for Growth, it gave hundreds of thousands of dollars to candidates illegally. And Club for Growth ended up paying hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines to the FEC for failing to register as a super PAC. So Stephen Moore was voted out of the Club for Growth. But that didn't stop him from finding work at the Heritage Foundation, the Wall Street Journal, Herman Cain's presidential campaign, Fox News, and even worse, he served as CNN's chief economic analyst up, in two up until 2019. Stephen Moore calls himself an economist, but all he has is a master's in economics. But that's enough to rise within the Republican Party so long as you parrot talking points that favor cutting taxes for the rich, because that's who funds Stephen Moore billionaires. The Club for Growth, which he founded, gets all its money from billionaires who donate as much as one and a half million dollars a year each. One of them is Peter Thiel, right wing founder of PayPal, who financed a multimillion dollar lawsuit that bankrupt Gawker. Teal was mad at Gawker for reporting that Teal was a closeted homosexual. So Republican Teal reportedly bankrolled Hulk Hogan's defamation suit against Gawker, and they won. Teal 
like Governor Abbott, also supports tort reform, just not for himself. It's okay for him to support the lawsuit against Gawker. Well, the reason I mention Stephen Moore when I'm talking about abortion, uh, the reason I mention Stephen Moore, who was on the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal, who is constantly interviewed by mainstream media for his views on inflation, I mention Stephen Moore because Donald Trump wanted to name him as a governor of the Federal Reserve, but he had to withdraw his nomination because Stephen Moore has a past, involves women, and he wanted to keep it secret, but it came out. In 2012, Stephen Moore refused to pay his ex-wife $300,000 in alimony and child support, three kids, you know, F them. They're not getting the money. He was held in contempt by a judge. He was ordered to make the payments. He refused. He ignored subpoenas. They were about to uh, arrest him. And it was only until they were about to arrest him when Moore agreed to pay his alimony and child support. In 2018, the IRS accused Stephen Moore of filing a fraudulent tax return and placed a lien on his home. Stephen Moore's first wife, Allison Moore, claimed during the divorce that throughout the marriage, Moore inflicted emotional and psychological abuse. She said it got so bad she and her kids had to flee their home in the fall of 2009. That sounds like something worse than emotional abuse. According to the Washington Post, Stephen Moore signed a document admitting to being guilty of all the accusations made by his wife. Stephen Moore hates women. The Republican Party hates abortion because it hates women. It hates women on a very primal level. This is a party controlled by rapists, a party controlled by men who hate women because they are not the men they wish they were. This is a party controlled by stupid men like Louis Gohmert, who hates smart women because smart women remind them of every day just how unworthy they are. They themselves are of respect. This is a party that doesn't want women in the workplace because these men have egos that can't tolerate a woman who is more efficient, more powerful and even worse, wealthier. This is a party run by closeted homosexuals, men who are crippled on the outside or the inside. Closeted homosexuals like Rick Perry, Lindsey Graham and Madison Cawthorn or Greg Abbott and Madison Cawthorn, who hate the men they are. So they punish women for enjoying company with the men they wish they could be. As bad as the Democrats are, and they are horrible, they are not this bad. The Democrats are not afraid of smart and powerful women. The Democrats have Maxine Waters, AOC, Cori Bush, Elizabeth Warren, to name just a few. The Republicans have Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, and Susan Collins, the cretinous senator from Maine who took the rapist Brett Kavanaugh at his word when he promised he wouldn't overturn Roe v. Wade. 
America would be better off if this country were run only by black women. I know that sounds wrong, but that's how I feel. You show me a black woman who holds elective office, I'll show you a woman who knows how to fix this country. Condi Rice and Candace Owens don't count. They never ran for elected office. Why am I a Democrat? Because that's where the black women are. Congresswoman Val, Val Demings shouldn't be the next senator from Florida. Alan Grayson should be. But I still trust Val Demings over any Republican serving in the House, Senate, or Supreme Court. Now, most women know the GOP hates them, which is why Biden, these are, this is up for debate, but I'm working off these numbers. Uh, in 2020, Biden got 57% of the female vote to Trump's 42%. That's a landslide. That's a 15% margin. This is why I think maybe the Democrats have a chance in November. But why would 42% of women vote for Donald Trump? Obviously, they are low information voters and low information female voters are like Camille Cosby, who stood by Bill Cosby through it all. Camille Cosby knew Bill cheated on her. She knew Bill drugged these women. She knew he raped them. But like the women who voted for Trump, these women who vote for Trump, they know deep in their hearts that Trump is a rapist, just like Bill Cosby. Camille believed these women deserve to be raped. Camille, just like Hillary Clinton, who did the bimbo eruptions in the White House, Camille, like Hillary, believed if you're a woman spending time with my bill, you deserve whatever happens to you. Camille Cosby, like all the women who voted for Trump, is glad these women get raped. You sleep with my man, you deserve it. You sleep around, you deserve it. Those are the women who vote for Trump. Those are the women who vote Republican. They hate women and they hate themselves for being women. That is who the Republicans are. They are run by people who hate themselves. Brett Kavanaugh is a drunk. He hates himself. Clarence Thomas married Ginny Thomas. Need I say any more about the level of self-loathing it takes to marry Ginny? Lindsey Graham hates that he's gay. Donald Trump hates himself. He's too smart not to. Greg Abbott is a paraplegic who hates himself. And instead of taking it out on themselves, they lash out at others. They lash out at the disabled, the LGBTQ, the poor children, people of color, and as we know, women. The Republicans, the Republican Party is a party that hates women. They sexually harass, they assault, they rape women, and they try to deny them equal pay. They want to control women because they hate women. The Republican Party is a party run by men who can't live up to what they think a man should be, so they punish women. That's what self-hating men do. They 
punish women. And if you can't rape and assault all women, the least you can do is take control of their bodies by denying them the right to an abortion. You show me a man who can't get laid, I'll show you a Catholic priest speaking out against abortion. You show me a man who can't get it up, I'll show you a white Republican male speaking out against abortion. You show me a man who's comfortable with his body, his sexuality, his intelligence, I'll show you a man who says, abortion? I got enough problems. Ask a woman what she thinks. We will be back with the rest of the show, and it's a good one. It's a really good show. We're going to be talking about Nazi billionaires. And, I'm not, and by Nazi billionaires, I don't mean the Koch brothers. We will be back talking about Amazon fighting unions. But here's Turtle from Professor Mike Steinell.
<laughs> that is Turtle by Professor Mike Steinel. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. My website is back up. Not was down for close to a week. I forgot to register the domain. I, I think I had it like on a five-year thing, just keep renewing it. And then I guess five years were up and it got shut down. But I flattered myself into thinking it was the deep, dark state trying to silence me. No, it was just my own incompetence. Well, in the past couple of weeks, I've been talking about how there's been this conversation about this being the golden age of unionization here in America. But then I pointed out that 250,000 fewer union jobs were available last year than the year before, that the number of uh, union members is, is still declining. It's at something like the lowest point in 100 years. There is some good news to report. The National Labor Relations Board is now saying that votes to hold union elections are now up more than 50 percent over the previous year during the six months ending in March. There's been a 50 percent increase this year and parts of last year over the previous six months in union uh, activism, people working for Starbucks, working for Amazon, working for clothing stores to to vote whether or not to go union. Starbucks have won, uh, the workers have won some uh, union votes in more than 50 states around America. And uh, now it's happening over at Apple and the outdoor apparel retailer, REI. So more and more Americans are voting on whether or not to join a union because we have a National Labor Relations Board that is a little more sympathetic to unions under Biden than it was under Trump. Joining us is Joe Thompson. He's a 19 year old. They I'm sorry, Joe Thompson is a 19 year old right out of the bat. I screwed up. Joe Thompson is a 19-year-old non-binary UC Santa Cruz student, a Starbucks union organizer, and a progressive candidate for California State Assembly District 28. Joe uses they-them pronouns, and if elected, they would be the first non-binary official elected to statewide office in California. Welcome, Joe Thompson. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you doing this. You were recommended to us by Shahid Buttar, who is running to unseat Nancy Pelosi up in San Francisco. And any friend of Shahid is a uh, deserves a donation uh, from us. So how how do we support you? How do we send you money to get you into the state assembly in California? You can check out our website. It's uh, joeforassembly.org. Um, can you, you know, talk closer? Organizing. Can I talking closer? Because you're using the, uh, you don't have a microphone, right? No, I'm just using my AirPods. Is it working good? Yeah, it's good. But if you could just talk closer to the computer 
Uh, you'll yeah, come. of course. As Sheryl Sandberg said, lean in. Uh, <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. How do people donate to you? Um, you can go to our website, joeforassembly.org. Joe um, you know, it's, it's something where we've been lacking in fundraising, uh, but not because we have a lot of, you know, not a lot, like a lot of donations. We've been getting tons of donations all across the country supporting us. Uh, but my opponents are still corporate funded and, you know, they're getting max out donations from, you know, people who like yacht companies and all this stuff where it's like, they're really disconnected from the average working class person. Okay. Uh, let me get a little personal here. I have one kid who went to Berkeley and I have one kid who's a banana slug. Uh, anybody who thinks Berkeley is a hotbed for radicalism has never been to University of Santa Cruz. Uh, I'm going to say Berkeley is a vocational school for uh, the managerial class. You know, it produces liberals who pay lip service to leftist causes. It is uh, Santa Cruz, University of Santa Cruz. <laughs> that yeah. is the true hotbed for left wing radicalism. So uh, what are you majoring in? Uh, environmental studies uh, with my, a concentration in policy. Yeah, my son, uh, I think he majored in uh, in that. You know what he did? I, I got two stories to tell you. So <laughs> he he wore a fuck the police cap during graduation. <laughs> uh, well, I'm a, I went, what year did he graduate? Uh, two, I can't, 2017, 2018. Okay, so that was, that was near Cola Strike. So that's, yeah, there, there was a lot of cops off campus in that time in Santa Cruz. And it's, it's still here today. And, you know, we're fighting every day. What, the, I, the I what do a lot strike? of activism on campus. The COLA strikes, cost of living adjustment. And what did that have to do with the police? So during the COLA strikes, we shut down the campus and uh, the UC Santa Cruz Police Department decided it was a good idea to go in and bash students' heads. Hmm. <laughs> um, so one of the things we kind of fought against too was, um, you know, anti-police and, and anti-police violence because they're attacking students who are just trying to get an education, trying to survive. And it was... Pretty, pretty awful. The other thing he did, the chancellor, they call his name out. The chancellor hands him the degree and then offers to shake my son's hand. And my son offers to shake the chancellor's hand. I have this on videotape and then just <laughs> puts his hand up in the chancellor's face and gives him the finger and goes, sucker. And he videotaped it. So um, I, I, I. I have to admit, I was not happy that he did that. I just wanted to feel like a normal dad at a graduation. And so I said, you know, I'm, I'm really glad you got the degree, but did you have to behave that way? Can't I have one nor normal day? And then I look over and Jesus Christ attached to a crucifix wearing a mortar board is walking past me. And well, I thought, all right, son, whatever. <laughs> I guess you're a moderate. <laughs> I guess you're a moderate. Uh, I don't know how many schools there are left like that. I don't know. We're 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 one of the only special schools left where it's 
there still is that sentiment. And even now our chancellor just got over a hundred thousand dollar raise. Um, so we decided to throw her a party and it was basically a joke party on April fools where everyone got together. We ate cake, um, and just joked about her making all this money. And I think now even there's still that sentimentality of this is our school. This is not the chancellor's school. This is our school. Right. You know what's the problem with Santa Cruz is? One day you have to leave What's it. That? You have to leave it eventually. <laughs> it is the most beautiful place on earth. It is at, it's up with the redwoods and it's being ruined by uh, Silicon Valley, unfortunately. Well, you are a Starbucks organizer. Tell me, do you work at Starbucks? <laughs> I, I do. So I, I've, I've been working there for about two years now. Um, I started back when I was 16. Um, I needed to get healthcare, and I was already working another job. And um, I, I didn't have health insurance. And I went to the, the dentist, and my estimated out of pocket was over twenty thousand dollars for dental care when I was 16. And I, I needed to get health insurance. And luckily, I started working at Starbucks, working about 20 hours a week. So I was able to get health insurance through them and dental, uh, which is you know made. Yeah, and dental. So dental is pretty cheap for yeah, through them. But, you know, that's made me want to fight for Medicare for all and adding vision and dental because we need we need people to have health care that is affordable and we need to make sure everyone has it. No child in America should ever have to work two jobs during high school like I did to get health insurance. All right. We obviously believe in unions. I, I don't want to get you into trouble, but I think Howard Schultz. <laughs> The, the interim CEO of Starbucks, multi-billionaire, is intimidating the unions. But let me let me challenge you for the sake of putting on a show. Why do you need a union if Starbucks has generous benefits? I mean, they do have a they are known for for benefits. And I believe they also will pay for online college. Is that true? That is true. So they, they do. I'm not. I'm not saying they don't have the best benefits. Um, I think they pay the, the children who pick the beans in Guatemala. The eight year olds. I think they get four dollars a day, which is more than most children get paid picking beans. I'm joking. They do have a problem with child labor. Kids picking beans. They, they do. They they have a lot of problems. It's like any. It's like any corporation in America. They they need to get. We pay our kids five dollars a day. That's more than most kids in Central America get paid picking beans. It's not funny. It's I, I'm just a, a sick man. So why why do you how do you sell people on joining a union when Starbucks is providing everything you think a union will give you benefits? So exactly, it's it's the union is not taking away benefits. We're only getting more. So with our union contract, we basically will get everything that we already have. Plus, we're going to get added seniority pay. We're going to get instead of, you know, I pay for my health care still through Starbucks. Last year, I paid about five thousand through um, health insurance premiums. One of the things we're negotiating our contract is to have Starbucks cover all of that. So it's an additional five thousand dollars being put back into your paycheck. And that's enough for any person who's pro union to sign on. And I think when it comes down to it, especially young people like myself who are, you know, in their in their you know early teens, late twenties, um, I think we're realizing that we have power and we have worth. We just need to get people to understand that 
we need to focus that energy on the billion dollar corporations that are taking that from us. Right. I saw Christian Smalls, the, my hero, uh, testifying before Bernie Sanders Senate uh, Budget Committee last week. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to talk about this on the show on uh, Thursday. But the argument against unions is people aren't choosing unions. That's what Lindsey Graham said. Amazon lost the second vote in Staten Island. Bessemer, they lost. Boeing lost in South Carolina, the union push. He says unions are not as popular as socialists like Bernie Sanders think they are. Why, why do uh, we lose union votes? What, what does the right win? What, what does corporate America do? to stack it against us. It's it's all about union busting. So Starbucks hired the largest union busting firm in all of the all of America, Littler Mendelssohn. And then they come into your store, they tell you if you vote for the union, you're gonna lose your benefits, you're gonna lose all these additional things. And they really do make it seem that the unions are the devil. You know, it's an outside force attacking us, as Howard Schultz put it. And in the reality, it's it's 19 year olds like me who are talking to my coworkers building a partnership between ourselves to fight for things that we want. And, you know, I, I think when it comes down to it, it's we're losing these votes, not because people aren't pro-union. It's because the union busters are getting their way and the NLRB doesn't have the resources, staffing and adequate funding to actually stop Starbucks and Amazon and any other union busting company from truly doing the harm that's happening with this union busting across the entire United States. Right. As Christian Smalls pointed out during his testimony, there is a process that Lindsey Graham brags about. The National Labor Review Board, you know, just go through them. They have lawyers who slow down the process. They stall and they stall. It takes years before they recognize the union, even though the workers voted to recognize the union. The corporation doesn't. And in the meantime, people like Christian Smalls are racking up debt. Somebody like Christian Smalls is not a rich man. Uh, <laughs> he lives paycheck to paycheck. So th they can outlast the organizers. What happened with you? Tell me about organizing with you and what Starbucks tried to do to you. How did they try to stop you? So they, you know, the first thing they did was cut my hours. Um, you know, I was working about 20 hours a week. That's the, you know, the bare minimum to get benefits. Sometimes I'd work a little bit more up to 25 or 30. Uh, but there was about four or five weeks while I was only working 10 hours a week. And that, that cut my paycheck a lot. Were you still um, able to get benefits? Same, uh, yeah. So I was still able to get benefits because the, as long as you, you know, have a certain number of hours over the last six months, that determines your benefit eligibility. Um, so I'm still, I'm still qualified on benefits. Um, and with the election that happens right now, I'm currently on a medical leave of absence due to some, um, injuries sustained at work. And, you know, now I've just been helping organize other stores across the state and really fight back against their, their union busting tactics, telling us, you know, if you vote, yes, you're going to give up your direct relationship with Starbucks is what they call it. And that direct relationship is only hurting us more and more. It's, it's not benefiting workers. It's not benefiting customers. It's only benefiting, you know, the shareholders. 
there are lawyers, union busting lawyers who go into Starbucks, who go into Amazon, and they not only proselytize against unions, they suss out which workers are pro-union and write them up and recommend either firing them or cutting back their hours. Starbucks, since Buffalo, it all started in Buffalo, has been firing union organizers in Texas and Buffalo. They uh, and also they've shut down stores for remodeling. That's the other trick they use. Right. Well, you want to go union. Yep. We want to we want to change this workplace too. we're going to remodel for a couple of months. It's awful. It really is. And even at our Santa Cruz stores, we actually filed charges against Starbucks for their union busting, including discriminately enforcing dress code against me. You know, there's multiple times where my manager told me, you know, this is not a dress code. I could write you up, all that kind of stuff. Um, so we filed charges against Starbucks and we heard back from the National Labor Relations Board. They told us to amend the charge saying that Starbucks had union busted by holding captive audience meetings. Um, so we'll actually be one of the first stores across the entire country um, who will have litigation about these captive audience meetings because currently the general counsel, um, you know, wanted to have them be illegal and, you know, under, you know, section seven, I believe it is to be illegal in captive audience meetings. Um, so we'll actually be one of the first doors who actually decide if captive audience meetings are going to be illegal. And that's for all employees across the United States. Right. So there are laws on the book somewhere in America, it is against the law to eat a turkey sandwich on a Sunday. There are these ridiculous. There used to be a book that I used to get every year, the, the 100 most ridiculous laws, and they never overturned them because why bother? We just won't enforce them. So they're still on the books and they're kind of quaint and cute. What it taught me is just because something's a law, it doesn't mean it's going to be enforced. It is who's in charge and what they decide through discretion what they're going to enforce and what they're not going to enforce. There are laws on the books right now to protect unions. There's a National Labor Relations Board, but Republicans have stripped it of its power, of its oversight, of its funding. You know, you have to pay your taxes, but if the IRS isn't being funded, it can't be enforced. So when Lindsey Graham and the Republicans during the Christian Smalls hearings are saying, we don't need new laws and we don't need executive orders. Why can't we just trust the, the, the system that's already in place? Well, the Republicans for the past 50 years have put a system in place that has stripped all these pro-union laws of their potency. Who do you go to? It's a broken system. It's a they it's broke a broken the, system. It's not broken. They fixed it in favor of Howard <laughs> Schultz from Starbucks. <laughs> they fixed it. The laws are on the books. You don't have to change anything. And as long as corporations control the government, the system is fine. Uh, so they've cut back your hours. Yeah, they've they've done a lot more than that too. They've they've threatened to fire me. They've threatened to, you know, write me up and all, all this other stuff. It, it's really disgusting. And I think at the end of the day, you know, the thing that keeps me going is I'm not the youngest union organizer that I know. Of. There's actually a 17 year old in California who's organizing their store as well. And I think young people realize that, like, we're in this fight for a long time and we're going to continue fighting for, for everything. OK, so uh, we have limited time. I want you to come back 
I really appreciate you doing this. I want everybody right now to go to joeforassembly.org. joeforassembly.org. If I have to spell that out for you, <laughs> you're too stupid to vote or give him money. Give him money. Do you take any corporate financing? None at all. We're, we're the only corporate candidate in the race right now. Uh, how much is a how much is the most expensive drink at Starbucks? The most expensive I've got is upwards of twenty dollars. Um, but it's I, I I like to mess with the drinks. <laughs> what what is a what is the average what is the what is a foo foo froofy drink at Starbucks that probably about six dollars. Probably about six dollars. Give Joe go to joeforassembly.org and give him six dollars. Give him six to I command you to I don't ask you for anything. Give Joe Thompson six dollars. It's the price of a fancy drink at Starbucks. I demand that you go right now to joeforassembly.org and give him six dollars or sixty dollars or six hundred dollars. <laughs> you want to feel good? You want to feel good? Give him six dollars. I promise you, you'll feel better. You're investing in the future, especially a 19 year old UC Santa Cruz student who is running for assembly. I mean, the world, it, you know, this is an investment in in America, giving him money. Give six dollars to Joe Thompson, joeforassembly.org. Send him to the California State Assembly. When are the primaries? Primaries coming up June 7th. So we have about a, we have less than a month left. And, you know, if we really want to get as much, you know, the impact to actually affect the state legislature, we just have to get in the top two. We're going to need to fundraise a decent amount more money just so we can get, you know, a, a few targeted advertising programs and a few targeted um, mailers to really show that, like, progressives, you know, Bernie Sanders won this district twice. And we need progressives to really lift themselves up and, and fight for our values. And he is endorsed by Shahid Buttar. That's all you need to know. Shahid Buttar asked me to have him on the show. I do whatever Shahid tells me to do. Go to joeforassembly.org and give him $6 right now. Right now. I, <laughs> or, or don't listen to this show. I don't want you. Li if, if I bring if this guy isn't worth six dollars, do not stop listening to the. I'm serious. What's the point of this? If you have six dollars for a, a fancy drink at Starbucks, go without for one day and go to joeforassembly.org and then tell me you gave to him and I'll write you a thank you note. I command you to give him money. This is the future of America right here. We need to send him to the California State Assembly. Let's go through the drill. OK, are you a millionaire? No, <laughs> you're not. A, are you a lawyer? <laughs> he's not a millionaire and he's not a lawyer. Do you have any hopes of ever becoming a lawyer? I'm, I'm a broke college student is what I tell people. I work at Starbucks. That's it. <laughs> Joeforassembly.org. Give him money. If you have $6 sitting around and you don't give him money and you're listening to me, I don't want you listening to this show anymore. 
That's how much I believe in Joe. Let's go over the issues. Medicare for all, for or against? For. JoeForAssembly.org. Uh, <laughs> do you have crushing uh, student debt? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's I'm I'm it's uh, we need to cancel it. Biden needs to get on it. It's I don't know why he hasn't done it already. <laughs> Cancels cancel student debt. Joeforassembly.org. Universal basic income. Yes, I there's a whole thing on my you know website about California UBI. Universal basic income. Go to joeforassembly.org. Give him money. Uh would you cross a picket line no my, my opponent actually crossed a picket line good um, tell she me was endorsed <laughs> name names yeah, so she she <laughs> gail pellerin is her name uh, she's she's the corporate democrat uh in this race she was endorsed by you know in a shoe uh jimmy panetta uh, all these very you know establishment democrats and she crossed a picket line when the siu workers were on strike and i'm actually in the siu office here in Santa Cruz, I, I use their office. Um, they donated it to the Starbucks cause because I, I work on organizing, you know, hundreds of stores throughout California now. And You're organizing hundreds of stores. So there's there's about 20 stores that have already publicly filed. And then there's probably, you know, 50 or stores, at least in the pipeline that we're hoping to get as soon as possible. Um, but it, it's, it's one of those things where I'm working with about 10 stores personally. And then I help guide all these other stores that are trying to kind of file. JoeForAssembly.org. Give him money or stop listening to this show. If you have <laughs> six bucks for a double mocha frappuccino and not six bucks for <laughs> Joe Thompson, this 19-year-old UC Santa Cruz who's going to be the next uh, assembly person from Santa Cruz. If you don't have six bucks to to give to JoeForAssembly.org, I don't want you listening to this show anymore. I really don't. Affordable housing. Uh, I, I fully, fully support it. We need 100% need restricted affordable housing. Also, shout out to Douglas Alford. They gave $6. <laughs> That's it? There, there's a few more people too that gave more, but <laughs> but he we don't mention the, the, the six dollars. Go without one day, one day without a Starbucks drink, and give it to Joe. Go to joeforassembly.org. If you have any extra money, if you've had a lucky year, if you're lucky and you don't give him money, I don't want you listening to my show. Because this is what this is what this is why we do this. That you are the reason we get up every. I'm serious. You're the reason we do what. We, and boy, did we screw you over? We really. <laughs> my, my generation's first. Oh man, it sucks to be <laughs> we're, you. We're, we're, <laughs> it really does. So we had a great time, though. We had a great time. Uh, you're paying for it, but yeah. I'm telling you, the '80s. It was worth it. It was worth it. Clean it up. Clean it up. Clean up the mess I made. Go to Joe. <laughs> right now, everybody go to JoeForAssembly.org and give him money to clean up the mess I made. Uh, what is 
very quickly, what is Assembly Bill 1215, which expires in 2023? What is biometric surveillance? Oh, I actually I, I know about this. It's um, it's facial recognition technology. Um, so it's it's all about um, specifically targeting people who, like the police, like who are using facial recognition technology. Okay, and you're okay. And very quickly, you want to put an end to solitary confinement. Yeah, putting an end to solidarity uh, sol- solitary confinement. Um, there's a lot of government reforms that need to get done. And, you know, I think that we, you know, as someone who's running for California State Assembly, um, if you're not advocating for things like Medicare for all or, you know, criminal justice reform or any of these really important issues, I, I, I don't think you should be running. And I, I don't think you should represent anyone in California. We have to uh, wrap it up. Let me bring in Jason Miles in case he wants to ask you a question. Hey, Jason, very quickly. Joe Thompson for California mm-hmm. State Assembly. Go to joeforassembly.org. If you don't give him money, if you have six bucks lying around to spend on coffee that you can make at home and you don't give it to joeforassembly.org, I don't want you listening to this show. There's no point in you listening to this show if you have an extra six bucks to give. If you have to be an American citizen or have a green card, joining us is the host of This Is Revolution, and his name is Jason Miles. Have you met our new friend Joe Thompson, who's endorsed by Shahid Buttar? Are you going to have him on your show? Shahid or Joe? Both, but right now, Joe. I know Shahid. I know Shahid personally. He's been but what on about the show, Joe? Uh, several times. What about Joe? Um, I was. Before before I mentioned Joe, I just want to say, for the record, I was the first person to interview Shahid after the whole uh, scandal, so to speak. Uh, Shahid Shahid is a great ally. He actually is the reason why I got into into like organizing. And are you in the band? Yes, yeah, so I'm in I'm in Santa Cruz. So I, I've I've okay. supported him. Yeah, so it's 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 about an hour okay. drive. But yeah. he's he's a he's a great ally, and you know if, if he wins, that'll really show that we finally have a true progressive movement. That's Fighting back. I don't mean I to mean, brag, but I was, weeds. I was the first host to mispronounce his name. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would challenge you on that one. You know, he was on he was on Sean Hannity's show in the early 2000s when he was a dude's kind of an OG. And, and we can yeah. get into the weeds about the left and what they did to uh, to him and what they don't do for him. Right. As far as as uh, his campaign. Um, well, let's let me kind of a yeah. sore subject to me. Let, let me take what's, care. Let me. What's get, up, Joe? Let me get rid of Joe. Will you come back? I will. I will always come back. This is okay. great. <laughs> Go to joeforassembly.org, joeforassembly.org. Give him money. If you give him enough money, he'll come back. If you donate money, let me know. <laughs> I will send you. I'm, I'm doing thank you notes again. Some of you might notice that you're getting thank you notes from me. I have a little more energy ever since I gave up caffeine, ironically enough. I've switched to decaf. I have two cups in the morning and that's it for the day. It's not healthy to drink caffeinated beverages afternoon. But I I drink so much coffee. All right. Thank Uh, you, Joe. Come back. Thank you. Take care. See you guys. Thank you. Good luck. 
What a great guest. What a great guest. There's a lot to be said about not drinking caffeine in the afternoon. So I'm yeah. with you on that. I'm yeah. finally at an age where I can't do it. Yeah. Heartburn. Jason Miles is the co-host of This Is Revolution podcast. And let's talk about love, king, and the perils of police reform. Last week, we were talking about the 30th anniversary of the L.A. riots. Mm -hmm. And after the riots, there were calls for more police transparency and mm -hmm. greater representation of minorities on the police force. We're seeing it mm -hmm. in Cleveland. Cleveland, I think, has done the best job so far after not after the 92 riots, but after uh, the George Floyd, the reaction to the George Floyd murder. They've done a pretty good job. Having a, a as far as what a, a civilian police board, they voted in uh, in November where <sighs> civilians and police will serve on a review board, but they can't be police from Cleveland. They have to be uh, police, retired police officers from another city, not part of the game. So not part of so the retired game. retired police officers are going to serve on a board to do what? to handle police brutality. That sounds like a horrible idea. All right. I, I when I read about it, I, I, I'm probably misrepresenting it. It's one of the most progressive police. That sounds the most like why would I want ex cops to handle cops? Well, they also have. But I also believe they have public defenders sitting on the review board. It's not just cops, it's civilians. Uh, and lawyers who have spent their careers defending, uh, 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 not being prosecutors, defense attorneys. Well, I guess the other question is how much power do you really have? Because there's tons of cities that have those boards. We had one in Oakland for a long time. I believe there was one in LA. It's all about how much power you have. And you know, I think there's a disconnect when it comes to rhetoric and, and power. So even even if you look at community policing, like, OK, we're going to move a cop into an area. I think it's Illinois or maybe it's Chicago where they actually have a cop that stays in a house uh, that's in the city that they walk a beat in. So if you think about. This is my whole beef with before. If you're not changing the material conditions that make police necessary, you're not going to ever do anything because you're always going to have an other always and the police are going to always form a bit of a class of their own and they're going to look at the people they police as other not as fellow citizen not as brother or sister but as other because you are a problem you are a blight you are affecting capital so the idea that i'll get nicer cops i'll get blacker cops i'll get gayer cops i'll get trans cops doesn't mean anything you are still law enforcement the the cia recently had a tweet or a facebook post or both where they were uh uh in solidarity for missing and murdered indigenous uh, uh women's uh hashtag and uh jokingly one of the people in our in our tir chat said i wonder which ones they had missing or murdered so it's almost insane to think of reform because the 
the reforms that you're talking about were called for in 65. They were called for in 92. And then you hear about it again in 2014, Trayvon Martin, and you hear about it again in 2020. In 1991, Rodney King's butt kicking by the police doesn't even make the front page of the LA Times. It isn't until CNN, you know, hungry for that 24 hour a day uh, uh, catnip that they had with the Iraq invasion. Um, once they get, once they get, uh, their hands on that, that tape, they're like, Oh, we got it again. It's just endless content for them. And the conversation is constantly about race. But even in 1990, the racial makeup of the Los Angeles police department mirrored that of the city, you know, almost 40% of it was, was minority. And even now it's even more. But we never talk about the economics. We never talk about the makeup of the city. As you know, L.A. isn't like New York. You know, it's it's very spread out. Um, there's areas of it that are more prosperous than others. Uh, they actually have a very uh, affluent black upper upper middle class. Am I even part of the ruling class next to not right next to but not too far away from uh, historically one of the most poor, uh, areas for black people in the country. So it's a very polarizing area and you can't just put your finger on one thing and say, this one thing is the problem. But one thing we can, uh, get back to is the fact that, uh, there are these material conditions that while not addressed, you'll always have a, a need for law enforcement. Before Rodney King, and I'm sure you remember this, I know you remember this, all the talk was gang violence. Gangs, 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 crack, crack, crack. People like Ishmael Reed, prominent black intellectuals, activists like Ishmael Reed, called black drug dealers in the 80s black fascists. He's not a right winger. <laughs> this is, this is a, a real deal leftist ex-Panther calling black drug dealers, black fascists. This is how we looked at crime in this era. After the Rodney King videotape gets shown ad nauseum, it totally changes the way we talk about um, problems in the community to now they're all police problems. And police were a problem. They definitely were a problem. But as someone that actually grew up in an area where I literally did have to dodge bullets and I've been shot at and I've had you were shot people at. close to me. Yeah. And I've had people close to me murdered. Um, I do understand that there's, as Joe Biden says, very bad dudes. Right. But I also know how repressive and authoritarian police can be in neighborhoods like I grew up in. So but as long as you have the neighborhood like I grew up in, you're always going to have police. Sorry. The, the new right-wing talking point about uh, stricter sentencing guidelines and crack carrying more time than cocaine is mm -hmm. it was the black leadership that came to Washington and said, we're being devastated by crack cocaine. Can you have some sentencing guidelines that lock these 
dealers up and users up for life so we can save our children. Is there any truth to that? Because you'll hear that from Republicans that why are they blaming? Why is the black community blaming white people for these strict sentencing guidelines? Yes and no. And at first, let's let's I'll be I'll try to be brief because I know that's OK. There's a time frame. Um, first and foremost, we have to remember that crack doesn't appear out of out of the ether and destroy community. And if you ever want to explain capitalism to someone, I think there's no better way to do it than explain the blow up of crack. So well, we, after we, the let, fall of the go ahead. OK, I, I we've covered freeway Ricky and uh, and the. We've talked about how the CIA and Oliver North. Ignore that. Get away from that. Well, I, but that's, I'm just. That's conspiracy. That's, no, 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 no. I, let's, let's get. No, I buy into Here, No, I, I agree with. I, I think they've never. The CIA definitely let. Well, we'll get into that. Gary Sick. Was that, so who was the who was the author of the San Jose Mercury News? Gary Webb. Gary Webb. They've never Webb. been able to do. And Gary Webb that. went a little. He went a little too far, in my opinion. So, as the government is allowing the the flow of uh, cocaine from Mexico to LA, um, one thing you never really hear, and sometimes you hear about it, and some of the people that talk about it is that um, cocaine is cheaper as it's coming from Mexico straight to LA opposed to when it was coming from Florida all the way over. And number two, the gangs that are already there are a built-in distribution network for your drugs. And what the gangs are finding is uh, freebase cocaine is cheaper and more potent. And now the poor and middle class that were kept out of, excuse me, the ability to get cocaine, because cocaine's a popular drug at the time. It's on the cover of Time magazine as a wonder drug. Now you have access to it and you have a built-in distribution network in the gangs. So if you think about a kilo, let's just make up some numbers, uh, and 7980 costing you three to five thousand dollars, you can now rock that kilo up and maybe turn it into thirty-five to fifty thousand dollars. And you already have a built like again, you have a built-in distribution network to get this out. One big reason why this happens isn't just because it's flowing in, it's because it's taking the place of all of these good factory jobs that used to be in LA. Right. By this time, if the jobs haven't left the state altogether, they've definitely left the area. And you also you already had a certain amount of citizens that came over in this very large migration from the South that didn't get jobs that were living on government assistance. Reagan gets in the office and incrementally he's trying to dismantle a lot of the welfare problem, uh, welfare programs that we have. He even wants to get to the right of Milton Friedman. So you start to see the welfare queen rhetoric in like the early seventies with Reagan. And he starts to do little incremental welfare reforms. Then he eventually gets into the presidency and they're a little larger. And then by the time Clinton gets in office, 
he takes all that rhetoric and just totally doubles down on it. But, you know, now we're past the 92 riots. But even getting up to that point, you also have to take into uh, inflationary spending. You have a population that uh, is not uh, part of the tax base. So you have a kind of a, a failing tax base. So and you have a, municipal and you also have a, a, a racist president, Ronald Reagan, who mm-hmm. would sell weapons to the Iranians are at the time our enemy. We would sell weapons to the Iranians illegally to get illegal cash to give to the Contras who were led by uh, one of their leaders was the agricultural minister of El, uh, of Nicaragua. When he was under Somoza, he knew all the cocaine dealers and he worked. He's he Blandon, I think, is his name. And he worked with Freeway Blandone, Blandone yeah. Yeah. to get cocaine into the ghetto to but why to fund. Well, partly to fund the Contras. Or I shouldn't say why, but how? Because it's an open air drug market where you can deliver the product freely. Right. So. I'm never going to deny the fact that there is a, a kind of a free, a free way, if you will, <laughs> for, but, for but, drugs. But my to original flow. in my limited time. So with the police, mm-hmm. I, I doubt the the African-American leadership in America. Well, who knows? A lot of them probably did know that the CIA was dumping uh, crack into uh, into urban areas don't say that they were they were dumping cocaine when you say crack you're assuming that they were literally rocking up cocaine and dumping it that wasn't what it was it was the free flow of cocaine crack then comes from the ingenuity of young people i hate that i hate that but did but did so did never underestimate the power of capitalism and that's what we're doing right now. We're underestimating capitalism and we're making it a conspiracy theory. This is capitalism. Oh, so you're saying Ameri- it came into yes. America as cocaine. You said that earlier. Yes. And that is because nobody had factory jobs. Yes. They- Someone said, it. thank you, Anley, just like meth. Why do you think meth blows up in deindustrialized sectors of the Midwest and the South? Because it's cheap to manufacture. You already have a built-in base. It's capitalism. It's replacing an industry. Interesting. And that's how it should be viewed, not as just the evil of white men. If we constantly look at these things as the evil of white men, then we'll constantly be trying to figure out how to make white men less evil. That seems like a waste of time to me. Right. Especially when you have a capitalism problem. Right. Right. But in terms of the police, mm-hmm. do you think the, pol- the police knew where the they must have known where the cocaine was coming from? Right. Did they care? I mean, they knew. Right. But it's right. one of those things. It's like this just happens and it blew up because no one knew. But the, I'm never of the assumption that all these things people just know and there's a magical wizard uh, like Oz pulling strings. And cocaine blew up in a way that no one really knew how to handle it. And the problem with 
the way cocaine blew up is that the conversations around it stayed very racialized. So it was either Moynihan-esque, it's the defectiveness of black people in single parent households that's leading to this crime problem, which to a certain degree was doubled down by certain black intellectuals. I mean, hell, watch movies like Boys in the Hood. It's kind of Moynihan-esque in that whole, you know, look at the kids with no dad. They sure didn't turn out right. And the kid that had a dad turned out just fine. Um, you're talking about, you're talking about P Patrick Moynihan when he worked for Nixon and talked about benign neglect of the African-American communities. He, he's a Democrat. LBJ, yeah. Yeah, he worked for LBJ. Yeah. I thought he worked for Nixon. Actually, well, that came out during the Great Society programs during the okay. the whole uh, the uh, Black Family Negro Report. But, but is was he as bad? I thought he was making a point when he said that uh, that it got. Yeah, he's saying that it's the defectiveness of these people, and that gets doubled down on by the bell curve. Okay, um, Charles Murray's the bell curve that it's the defectiveness of of this Negro mind that's going to kind of keep it impoverished, and they're going to need special programs. Um, so when you think of the CIA put crack in the, in the community, it's almost as if, um, capitalism doesn't exist and there's just a mysterious other that's pulling these strings. And there were several, uh, people in the black community that were faced with a two headed problem. You have overzealous law enforcement that's very, very heavy handed. And you have a gang problem that is killing people left and right. You know, in 1986, there were 187 uh, homicides in, in L.A. County. By the next year, you have 387. So you're seeing the numbers go up. So there is no make believe, but it's just the solutions people are trying to find are kind of coming off of this idea of, well, if we give more time, if we're more punitive in our sentencing, then that'll get the bad guys off the street. If we criminalize the users and give harder sentences to the dealers, then that will fix this problem in our area. And no one really wanted to, to address the ec economic problems that was never part of the conversation. And if you even go back and, and look at conversations that were had during that time, it's just strictly uh, racial grievance over and over again. And the only people having economic conversations, people like Milton Friedman and his acolytes. Right. To be continued. Hopefully you can come back Thursday. I love talking to you. I, I know you take. Hopefully your, I will. Yeah. Hopefully I, I, I will. You tape your show uh, on Thursdays and uh, you said some things that really uh you took me in a direction that I thought I was familiar with. And then you said some things that blew me away about how crack is manufactured. Uh, I, I appreciate it. Jason Miles is the co-host of This Is Revolution podcast. Go listen to the This Is Revolution podcast right now and support the show. Thank you so much. Thank great, you. great conversation. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you. Well, this is uh, exciting. Howie Klein, are you there? I am. Let, let me get your sound just so we can do this properly. All right. What do you want me to do, count? I, I want to make a deal with you. I'm, <clears throat> you're bringing in a guest, and I started reading his book. So I'm going to 
you're going to run the interview, but he has to come back so I so I can. Have no, that. no, 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 no. I, I haven't read the book, and you have, so uh, I, I only read uh, the stuff that was in the New York Times. I didn't get around to the book yet. I plan to, but I haven't done it yet. So uh, we should run. We should do the interview together. I don't want to run it. I'll be happy to introduce him, though. Go ahead. This is this is great. And but I have I started the book on Sunday. It's fantastic. I'm not done with it yet, but it is fantastic. Go ahead, Howie. Okay, so David DeJong, well, I, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. David DeJong, I think, is probably because a J a J in Dutch would be a Y, is someone who who a, a friend of mine introduced and and uh, to me too long ago. And um, and the friend lives in Holland and and is friends with David's parents. So that's how I, I came to know David, who had I always thought had a really interesting beat over at Bloomberg News following the money. That was his, that was his beat and often wrote about uh, billionaires and multimillionaires. And you, you know that there are no uh, multimillionaires and billionaires who are uh, fine, upstanding people. They're all corrupt. They're all uh, monsters. Um, I was just writing a thing about the Supreme Court judges where I talked about what I wouldn't do to them. I wouldn't hang them. I wouldn't tar and feather them. I wouldn't murder them. I wouldn't kill their children, et cetera, et cetera. And it's the same with billionaires and millions. I wouldn't do any of that stuff for the same reason that I wouldn't do it to billionaires because you get caught and you, you go to jail. In any case, uh, that said, uh, I hope I didn't shock uh, David too much. He's just writ written a, uh, a, a book uh, I, like I just said to um, to David Feldman, I, uh, I, I read the excerpts in the New York Times, and I, I have a, um, a copy that I can't wait to get to. Uh, it's called Nazi Billionaires, uh, The Dark History of German, Germany's Wealthiest Dynasties. So David, um, David DeYoung, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Where are you it's coming from? Where are you? are you? Are you in the U.S. or are you in Holland? <sighs> I'm in, I'm in a I'm in a nondescript suite in Palo Alto, California. Ah. Oh, near me. Yes, relatively. Can I frame so, this? Yeah. Do you, Howie, do you mind if I just so my listeners understand what we're talking about? Jump right in. I should have done that. And I did. Yeah, let, let me just explain. There are businesses that we buy from Porsche, Volkswagen, certain bakeries, there are uh, assorted uh, German conglomerates, uh, Krupps, coffee makers that you can buy in America. They're very, they're perfectly made. They're engineered uh, to, to excellence. Their past is tainted by a little thing called the Nazis. The Germans, as, as David writes, have done a pretty good job reminding the citizenry of the Nazi political past, but they've done a piss poor job holding their corporate elite accountable for the fortunes they made during and because of the Nazi regime. So well, that their ancestors made their ancestors yes but i mean the, the people i mean we want to talk with david about this 
But um, the people that he writes about aren't really the ones who are living now and running these companies or living off the uh, the profits of these companies. They weren't actually uh, in the war itself or, or doing the um, the horrible things that their parents and grandparents did. Is that right, David DeYoung? That's that's correct. Yeah, no, it's it's the reason I got into the story and the driving argument of the story, but let me first talk about the reason I got into the story was how I discovered on the billionaire beat at Bloomberg news, how I was asked to cover the German speaking countries from, from, from New York, because I, I'm, I'm Dutch from origin, but I covered the North Americas too. And I covered Coke industries and the Coke brothers and the Walton family and, and Walmart and, and real estate moguls in the United States. But what I found when I started covering the German speaking countries, and I started reporting these stories, which mix the financial and the historical and the business and the historical, was that companies like, like BMW and Porsche are today, and the families that control them, are celebrating the, 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 the business successes of their saviors and their you know, founders and patriarchs, but leave out through, through global business foundations and, and media prizes and corporate headquarters, but leave out the fact that these men committed war crimes or were members of the SS. And that brazen whitewashing is what led me to write the story, uh, led me to write the book. And the book is also an argument in favor of historical transparency. They not only profited, they used concentration camp labor yes. and yeah. stole business. Like Portia, as you write, was run by a Jew and they just made him sell. It was at- co-founded by a Jew, yes. Yeah, it was co-founded by a Jew, a man named Adolf Rosenberger, who ended up emigrating in 1939 to the United States, ended up living in Los Angeles. But his, you know, he was a co-founder of Porsche together with Ferdinand Porsche and his son-in-law, Anton Piech. And in, 19, in 1930 and in 1935, they pushed him out as a shareholder, basically. Uh, and made him, sell, made, he, made him sell his stocks pennies made, on the made, dollar. Well, yeah, well, that's unclear if they forced him to sell his shares. But what is clear is that they bought his shares at nominal value, which was far under the market value of of his shares in Porsche at the time. And as a Jewish man, you know. Has he tried to to, uh, get his profits back or or, or just somehow after the war? Yeah. Yeah. After the war, he tried to, well, he he tried to be reinstated as a shareholder of of the Porsche company. And it ended up that his lawyer went behind his went behind his back and and tried to settle and and settled with the the Porsche Pierre family. And they gave him 50,000 Reichsmark, Deutschmark, and, and, they, and, a, and he got to choose between a Volkswagen Beetle or, a, or, the, or, or the first Porsche sports car, you know, as a, as a payoff. I Sounds mean, like my divorce yeah. attorney. Right, right. So there, there must have been a bad settlement then for your divorce. <laughs> Do you think? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. David, David yeah. Did, that yeah. end the, um, did that end the case? It's all finished now? Uh, well, it doesn't end the case because then you have Ferry Porsche who designed the first Porsche sports car spewing virulent anti-Semitic vitriol about Adolf Rosenberger nine years after his death, uh, 90 years after Rosenberger's death in, in Los Angeles in 1967, he dies. And in, 1960, uh, in 1967, he dies. And in 1976, Ferry Porsche 
publishes his first uh, autobiography uh, in the U.S. It's called We at Porsche. It was published by Doubleday. And in it, he spews virulent anti-Semitic vitriol about Adolf Rosenberger, who Ferry Porsche claims came to extort him and his family after the war. Um, but not only that, he takes it broader, broader, and he says that, you know, out of Rosenberger was my by no means an exception. Other Jewish families who fled Nazi Germany went back and claimed payment for a second time. And, you know, it's your, it's your, you know, and that it's staggering that especially somebody like Ferry Porsche, who voluntarily applied to the SS, in 1938 was admitted to the SS in 1941 and surrounded himself at, as CEO at Porsche after the war in the 1950s and 60s with former high-ranking SS officers um, at Porsche that he, you know, just dares to put that in public and has no qualms about about putting that anti-Semitic uh, vitriol about, about Porsche's co-founder. Howie, I'll I'll let you take over. I just have one really important question I want to ask, and then I'll take a back seat. Uh, I can hardly contain. I'm sorry, yeah. Howie. I can hardly contain myself. Go for it. Problem, please. Go ahead. All right. This is this is. Uh, I'm very interested in this topic. So, one of the things that I was led to believe is that German industrialists wanted Adolf Hitler to seize power because he, he was a fascist and they thought, well, what's nothing better than the government working hand in hand with the military and the industrialists? This is capitalism at its best. Right. So it was the industrialists who supported Hitler. One of the things that I believed up until reading your book is it backfired on the industrialists that Hitler got too big and kind of screwed over the industrialists and they didn't make they didn't do so well during and after the war. And boy, was I wrong. Right. Yes, yes, you were wrong. Yes. Yeah, so no, how, was, how did no, they do no. when you look at the industrialists, quant family? Yeah. How did uh, how did they do before Hitler, during Hitler, and then after okay. 1945? Okay. It's a big question. I'm going to take it in three parts as well. So most German businessmen, most industrialists, bar one or two exceptions, were no fan of Hitler or the Nazi party at all up until the... September 1930 elections. You know, up until then, you know, German and big business viewed Hitler and the Nazi party and, and, and the Nazis as these kind of garish, you know, clown-esque figures from the, from the impoverished German hinterlands who were not to be taken seriously. You know, their ideas were outrageous. Their, 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 you know, their, their claims, everything was outrageous about them. There were, there were, you know, clowns, basically. Kind of like MAGA today. Trump, yeah. Well, you know, I'll let the, you are American citizens, so I'll let you guys fill that in. But yeah, there's in defense many parallels. Of, in yeah. defense yeah. of Hitler, unlike Trump, uh, Hitler had an aesthetic sense when it came to architecture. 
Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> so October 1929 happens and the wipeout of Wall Street, you know, the Great Depression starts. Millions are on the streets in Germany, are unemployed. And the Nazi party in September 1930, election campaign run by Joseph Goebbels. Um, Rides is, becomes the second biggest party in parliament. And it's then that Hitler, who also to the, uh, up until this point, does not have any meaningful relations to big business in Germany, starts reaching out to the main characters in my book and starts summoning them or inviting them to this hotel suite in Berlin where, where he first gets to know them. And it is not until... February 1933, three weeks after Hitler seizes power, where, you know, you have, you know, German big business and, and finance fall in line of, you know, with Hitler and with, the, with Hitler and the Nazi party. And, you know, they have had four years of, of, of economic and pol political volatility under the, uh, under the Weimar Republic. You know, they're dealing with the Great Depression. All they want is economic stability. They want to save their fortunes. They want to save their companies. This is something that Hitler, through rearmament, which ramps up from 1934 onwards, um, you know, ramps up and, and, and billions of Reichsmarks start flowing to the coffers of, of industrialists and, and banks and, and financiers. David, so, uh, before you go on, your, did any of them yeah. um, uh, resist? Did anybody not uh, uh, jump in? Some of the big industrialists, or they all came along? No, you have you have examples that at the point that Hitler invades or declares war on Poland, you have one of his earliest backers, Fritz Thyssen, who was one of the only industrialists with another one who backed Hitler from 1925 onwards. He's a member of parliament and he votes against the, the invasion of Poland and the declaration of war. He, and of course, Fritz Thyssen, very well known today, Thyssen Krupp, one of the most notorious German steel conglomerates back then as Thyssen and Krupp separately today as Thyssen Krupp. Um, he flees to Paris. He has an American journalist has writes this whitewash of a memoir, which is which you can still order today. It's called I Paid Hitler. But after uh, France is invaded, Fritz Thyssen is arrested and and is 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 sent off to a, to a concentration camp. And his steel conglomerate uh, is expropriated and is actually given in trust to one of the right hand men uh, of, of one of the main characters I write about, this virulent Nazi called Funk? Otto Steinbrück and okay. Otto Steinbrück and, and 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 his boss, Friedrich Flick, who was very well known, was one of the few industrialists that were convicted uh, uh, before the Nuremberg trials. Tell us about Joseph Goebbels wife. Yeah. <laughs> That's, right. if you, by the so, way, let me just plug the book. Go buy Nazi Billionaires, The Dark History of German Germany's Wealthiest Dynasties. It just came out. Nazi Billionaires, The Dark History of Germany's Wealthiest Dynasties. Buy the book. If you if you, this is what I tell my listeners, if you don't like the book, 
let me know. I'll pay you back. That's how much I hate to say it's a fun read, but the stuff about for me, it's a fun read because, uh, you know, right. do you but, mean fun or do you mean thrilling, thrilling, thrilling. And <laughs> Joseph Goebbels, I didn't know that yeah. that was a second marriage for his wife. Yes. So her first marriage was to the main family in my book or to the patriarch of the main dynasty in my book. The Quant dynasty, one brand branch of that dynasty today controls BMW, or two members of that branch can control BMW today, and are Germany's wealthiest family. But the other branch, the poorer branch, which only has you know a few billion, they uh, are descendant of Magda Goebbels. Uh, Günther Quant's first wife dies. Uh, Antonia dies in the Spanish flu during the Spanish flu pandemic. And he meets, he's 37, he's a widower, he has two young sons. And then he meets at a train ride from Berlin to central Germany, he meets a 17-year-old girl um, called Magda Friedlander. Uh, he falls head over heels in love with her, asks her to marry her after their third date. They get married. They have a son named Harald, who was born nine months later. But Günther, who's a complete workaholic, and, and Magda, who likes the leisurely life, are a complete mismatch from the start. Not only are they 20 years in, in age apart, but, but they're also their interests are completely different. So the marriage disintegrates within a decade. And she gets a very royal alimony from Günther Quant, and she really continues her life of leisure, and then is bored, and in her ennui, joins this kind of rich circle of Nazis, the Nordic circle, and with all these aristocrats and in Berlin, and they were hanging out in the lobby in, in, in salons and getting drunk. And then they convinced her to, to actually join the Nazi party. And she goes to a rally, and she, she see, hears Joseph Goebbels speak, and she becomes completely, she falls head over heels with Joseph Goebbels, who was not a good-looking man at all. You know, he was, a, he was, he was like a, Richard the Third, wasn't he? He was a misshapen, exactly. A club foot, you know. He was five foot five, <laughs> you know. I mean, this was not anyway. And she convinces him to take her on as his private archivist, and they started a relationship. They get married, of course. Famously, they get six children. She becomes, and also Hitler falls also falls in love with her, and there is this very weird dynamic between. This kind of triangular relationship between platonic relationship, which they, which Hitler calls the arrangement, where Magda Goebbels is becomes the unofficial first lady of the Third Reich, because Hitler is not allowed to get married because he's married to the German people in his own saying, and 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 you know of course famously Hitler uh, pardon uh, Magda and Joseph get six children who they end up Magda ends up murdering. Her six children in the uh, in a fur bunker and then commits murder suicide on April 30th, 1945, or May 1st, 1945. But and but her oldest son Harold survives the war in a British prison of war camp. He has joined the paratroopers, the German paratroopers. He's caught during the invasion of of Italy or the Allied invasion of or um, the Allied invasion of Italy, and he. You know, he, he survives the war and he inherits part of his father's industrial empire together with, with his half-brother, Herbert. 
So this is in, they, this is this is from the marriage to the Quant family, not exactly, from Joseph Goebbels. Exactly. Right. Yeah, because all those children today, she murdered. Yeah, she she poisoned them. She gave them cyanide to her, her six children, and they killed killed them. Why was uh, there a problem with her uh, maiden name, Friedlander? Right. So exactly. Yeah. Well, so her. She was born, Magda, Magda Friedland or Magda Ritschel or Magda Quant or Magda Goebbels. This woman has so many last names throughout her life. You know, total enigma still in many ways. Magda Ritschel was born out of wedlock. Uh, her father, Richard Ritschel, was, a, was an engineer and her mother was a maid. So that marriage or that union or that affair did not last. And actually, Auguste Behrendt married a... Jewish businessman called Richard Friedlander and Magda took on his last name and Quant when they get married and he's Protestant he's conservative Lutheran you know he said well you, I can't get married to you if you are if you have a Jewish last name so you need to change your name back to Ritual also you it, you know so that's what what she needed to, that's what you need to do and actually your stepfather ends up dying in a concentration, ends up being killed in a concentration camp, ends up being killed in Buchenwald. You know, um, David, unfortunately, time is uh, is taking by rapidly, and, and I really do want to yeah. ask you about accountability. Uh, yes, you're writing definitely. kind of the opposite of that but, but uh, in your book, but, but did, you, did you cover accountability, and has there been any accountability for these families at all, or are they all just living it up off the profits uh, that their um, uh, antecedents made during the war? So, so no, there has been very, very little, or there no, has been very little historical accountability to none. The two main examples I give, and it goes back to the earlier examples I gave, you know, today you have the Ferry Porsche Foundation, which funds in the name of Ferry Porsche, Germany's first professorship of corporate history. The Porsche family has never, and, 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 and put out the statement saying, if you don't know where you come from, you don't know where you're going. You know, wow. you, you really have to engage wow. with history. Wow. You know? I mean, it's, it's, it's beyond irony, literally. And, and, and they have never, the Porsche family has never said anything about Ferry's SS membership, SS affiliations, anti-Semitic remarks, or about sorry about their father or their grandfather Ferdinand Porsche, who of course designed the Volkswagen, convinced Hitler to put it into production, and then let the Volkswagen factory complex, where tens of thousands of forced slave laborers were used to produce uh, arms, not cars, for the Nazi war machine. So that's one example. Then the other main example is the Herbert Quant BMW, the BMW Foundation, Herbert Quant, massive global foundation today, which has the motto, inspire responsible leadership in the name of Herbert Quant, because he saved BMW from bankruptcy in 1955, in 1959, but leaves unmentioned the fact that Herbert Quant designed, built, and dismantled the subconcentration camp in Nazi-occupied Poland in late 1944, early 1945 had the responsibility over battery factories in Berlin, where thousands of forced enslaved laborers were, 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 were used under most horrific circumstances. 
including hundreds of female slave laborers from concentration camps, acquired companies in France stolen from Jews and used at his own private estate prisoners of war and forced labor. And today you have, you know, a foundation, a massive foundation, a massive global foundation in his name with the motto, inspire responsible leadership. And, you know, my argument is one learns from history by showing the good at the bad and the bad. At the bare minimum, what we can expect from these companies is historical transparency and accountability. And if on their on their global foundations, on their media prizes, you know, on their corporate headquarters, if they don't want to do that, you know, they should rename them at the very least. This is what consumers us can expect from these companies, these stock exchange listed companies at a bare minimum. Amazing. Howie? Yes. Uh, it, is, it, is, it is amazing. And uh, basically what, what, I, what I'm trying to figure out is, is ha- for example, just as an example, the people who, who they, they harmed, have they made restitution, reasonable restitution? Well, they all paid. So what there was, there's, there's this very, yeah, is, there's this, there's this, there was this deal made between the German and the American government in the late 1990s. Because after the Iron Curtain fell, German companies were kind of attacked from both, well, attacked, they were sued. Both from the United States, they were being sued in class class act lawsuits being filed against them in the United States courts. And you also had in Eastern Europe millions of forced slave laborers that were suddenly free from the Iron Curtain, and they said, "Well, I was exploited. I was under the most horrific circumstances in German mines and factories." So Germany's largest companies are are getting sued in the 1990s, and a Settlement is made between the Clinton administration and the German government, then led by by Gerhard Schroeder, the now infamous chancellor, Putin's lackey, where Germany, there would be the the agreement that was made is that German companies and the German government would pay about $6 billion into a compensation fund that would restitute forced and slave laborers. Uh, through a foundation, and the payouts would be were between 2001 and 2006, and the highest payout for somebody who was who survived concentration camp labor or ghetto, and was used through the ghettos uh, as a laborer as a slave laborer, was ten thousand dollars. It's the highest, right? If you were forced labor, you would get less. Not only that, German companies did not have to admit any kind of wrong wrongdoing or culpability in that agreement. So it paid lip service in a way to any kind of historical accountability that they had because they didn't they didn't plead guilty. They just paid up. And thirdly, you have you know you have six thousand five hundred German companies which were supposedly paid in to that restitution, into the restitution, into that compensation fund. Uh, half was ponied up by the German government, the other half by German business. Of those 6,500 companies, 
18 companies paid 60% of that money. So thousands of companies paid paid at most a symbolic amount of, of $700 or 500 euros. And many didn't, and, and, and many made a choice not to pay in. You know, we all read about how uh, uh, wealthy Europeans are suing to get their art collections back and have sued and, and have actually gotten their art collections back. Um, it, it, does that tell us anything about about um, compensation for, for people or is art like just a separate carve out that has nothing to do with anything else? Yeah, no, that's a separate. So, there's, so, so the compensation agreement, discussion, topic refers to, you know, compensation of forced and slave laborers. The restitution topic, which is an entirely different one, refers to the seizure of assets, the expropriation of assets by, you know, Jewish, uh, by, by, by Jewish men and women, you know, who were expropriated or Aryanized as the, as the, you know, perverse euphemism that was, that was used to describe it was the removal of Jewish ownership from an asset, right? Whether that was shares or, or, uh, or real estate or jewelry or art. Many of those restitution cases or many have been settled, you know, directly after the war, you know, in the past 75 years, but many are still ongoing today, particularly with regards to art, and in the, and to a lesser degree, with regards to real estate in, in Germany. Because, of course, the ex- entire expropriation question also came in with East Germany being, being you know, Soviet-occupied and all the assets, all the industrial assets, of course, were communalized and expropriated there of the industrialists, of, but also of the Nazi industrialists, but also, of course, of any other Jewish family or, uh, you know, who had assets stolen from them. You write for Bloomberg. You're you're a business. Uh, no, not anymore. I left. I left Bloomberg to to write this book. I, I moved from New York in 2017. I moved to Berlin, and I spent four and a half years in Berlin to research and write this book. And I'm actually moving to Tel Aviv now, where I'm where I've already moved to Tel Aviv, where I um, where I work as a Middle East correspondent for the uh, Dutch Financial Daily, which is a daily financial newspaper in the Netherlands. Okay. And so I believe Karl Marx believed Germany would be the best place to try communism. Not he, he didn't want it for Russia. He wanted it for Germany. Is that fair? I mean, he, he developed us capital and Friedrich Engels, of course, well, partly in the UK. The ideas of, of that for uh, partly in the UK, partly in partly in Germany. I don't know if he, he, he considered Germany to be the best place for it, but I, I can see I can see that. I mean, there was a big communist influence in Germany at the time, of course. Rosa Luxemburg, or, right? Yeah. So, is it fair to say instead Germany embraced capitalism under Hitler? That is very fair to say. Oh, you no, know, absolutely, absolutely. Oh, they did. At, they at, did absolutely. At, okay. At what point did Nazi Germany go from a capitalist state to what? How would you have defined it by 1945? Still a capitalist state. It went from a capitalist state to a capitalist state. It stayed a capitalist state. It stayed a capitalist state. So what does that 
tell us about capitalism? It's enduring. It's continuous. It's 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 insidious continuation in a sense. You know, there is no there is no right or wrong with capitalism. It's always money. It's at the bottom line. It's always profit. It's always about money. It can it can turn into capitalist acts can turn into crime, right? As we saw with the Nazi. But producing mass armaments isn't a crime in itself. It is once it devolves into forced and slave labor, once it devolves into the expropriation of Jewish-owned assets, then it's when capitalism devolves into crime. Right. And even then, it's still at the veneer of a business transaction, right, in Germany. It's still at the veneer of a business transaction, of, a, regu- of a regular business transaction. For you know, It was far under the market value that these people were forced to sell their assets or forced to sell them because they had to flee, either coercively, you know, and, and uh, yeah, but it, it was a crime. That was, you know, they had the veneer of capitalism, but that was a crime. And here in America, we had slavery before Hitler. Yes. We had slavery yeah. uh, baked into our constitution. And the, it was at the beginnings of capitalism. I think Adam Smith wrote. Wealth of Nations, the same year Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, 1756, right? Or 1776. 1776. So, yeah, yeah. so capitalism with no guardrails allows people like Hitler and his supporters to do unconscionable things and sleep at night. It's just transactional. Completely. Yes, right. that is correct. These these men, the men I write about, the, the, the five patriarchs I write about, had zero qualms about exploiting the system, profiting from it. They would have thrived under any regime, right? They would have thrived under the communists. They would have been apparatchiks. They would have they would have served on the on the Comintern. You know, I mean, these 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 they they thrived in the German Empire. They thrived in the Weimar Republic. They thrived under Nazi Germany and they thrived in West Germany and they would have thrived in a reunified Germany had they still been alive, but two did, you know, they would have thrived as well. It's uh, I know we're out of time. I would love to keep having you come back. We've been talking with David Dijon. Yes, that is correct. Yes. Uh, When uh, they make a movie out of this. Pardon? I said we should bring you back when they make a movie, a film. Yeah, deal. That sounds good. When the movie or the series is made, Howie said we that I'll I'll come back. That's the deal. Now, Howie, something happens every week. Now, thirty minutes in, your sound quality. Did you notice that, David? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Howie, say something. I need to uh, hear you guys hear your phone. Nope, there's something. It, it, this happens 30 minutes into every call. Uh, David DeJong is the author of uh, the uh, Nazi Billionaires, the dark history of Germany's wealthiest dynasties. The name of the book is Nazi Billionaires, the dark history of Germany's wealthiest dynasties. Go buy this book. I promise you, if you don't find it thrilling, uh, I'll just let me know and I'll reimburse you for the book. That's how great a read this book is. If I were to blurb it, I I would say if if you hate the Nazis, you'll love Nazi billionaires, 
the dark history. This is why this is why nobody ever asks me to to blurb a book. Howie, thank you so much. Yeah, it, it, it like clockwork. Your sound gets destroyed about a half hour. And I don't know what it is. So thank you, Howie. Thank you, David. Please come back. I'm going to bother you uh, to come yeah, back. Please do. Thank you yeah, so much. Deal. Uh, David DeJong, go by right now. Nazi billionaires, the dark history of Germany's wealthiest dynasties just came out. Great. It's a great read. Very disturbing. But I think my listeners enjoy that. Well, speaking of Nazi billionaires. Uh, let me just say goodbye. Let me say hello to Mark Breslin. Howie, are you there? Yeah, I can't. There's, uh, I don't know why. OK. All right. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you. Howie Klein. Read him over at uh, Down With Tyranny. And he is uh, the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack, which raises money for progressive candidates around America. Joining us now is the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy chain in North America, Mark Breslin. We didn't have you last week because it was your birthday. How was how was we have to unmute you and you come to us from Toronto tonight. Uh, I do. And it wasn't just any birthday, I'll have you know. It was my 70th birthday. Wow. Or we're applauding. We don't hear anything. 70 years. Considering I was voted in high school, least likely to make it past 30, I think that I... uh, I'm pretty proud of where I am today. That's all I'm going to say. And you know what? Um, Maybe you thought that was a joke. It wasn't actually a joke. And because of the way I've conducted my life and I've been so combative with so many people, I really always thought I'd get murdered uh, by some angry, crazy patron or somebody that I insulted on stage or or some some bikers or who knows, mobsters. I've, I've tangled with everybody. And so when I hit 70, it's kind of a big milestone for me. I don't know how many good years I've got left. Maybe I have a lot of years left, but how many good years do I have left? I just came from my sister's birthday today uh, at the nursing home. She's 93. Wow. And she sees ghosts and things that. Well, you don't do really look a little exist. pale. You are pale. I am pale. It's and true. and when you're wearing your KKK outfit, I can well, understand how she could see ghosts. I've been accused of wearing, you know, white face uh, before, <laughs> but uh, I was only doing mine. I don't see why anybody would get so upset about that, except albinos. And uh, they're going to get upset as much as they want. It's like really with the weird eyebrows. Um, anyway, um, so, so 70 was a big milestone, but we didn't celebrate it in a big way. You know, I would just I went out for some dinner with some, a really nice place with some friends. But I've had some pretty wild parties and some pretty crazy parties that my wife has has uh, produced for. And I'll call them productions. The last one, uh, w- uh, when I was uh, 65, she took over an old age home uh, and took over the uh, took over the restaurant part of the old age Hang home. Hang on for one second. Do me a favor. Lean into since you're using the the computer microphone. Talk. Okay, is this better? Yes, much better. Thank you. Oh. 
fine. I'm leaning in. Oh, so your your uh, wife, who is a wedding planner. It, yeah, an event planner. So she knows how to do these things. But it's her idea. And the idea it was a surprise party for me in a, in a nursing home. It was the funniest thing. And we, we actually ate the nursing home food. So it was all <laughs> mush and gelatin. It was very, very funny. And uh, she's done a number of things like that. When I was 50, I had this big, big um, party. Uh, we took over the top floor of a restaurant. It was a sit-down dinner. There must have been 50 people there. Uh, probably, yeah, about 50 people to 50 things uh, to, be, to be there. And I asked myself, what can I do to make this me? So what I did was I hired two child actors to play my long lost kids, <laughs> Michael and David, right? And um, I gave them. I sent them a script. The, the the night of the of the birthday party, they came over. We met. We met with them. We went over their script with them. They sat there at the ta- at one of the tables. Everybody kind of wondered who those the kids were, but they didn't make a big deal about it, you know. And then I got up and I made my speech and I thanked everybody for coming. And I thanked everybody. For, I thanked people. I thanked uh, doctors for my health and I thanked everybody. And I said, but you know, the most important thing in life is family. And my two sons have come in. From and the look on people's faces is like, oh, oh, my God. Has Mark not told us anything about these kids, these two kids? And then the kids got up and they made a speech and they were fantastic. They were really good actors. And they said, oh, you know, dad, you know, many people know Mark as a comic. Many people know Mark as a businessman. But when we see him on TV, is my, our mom always brings us into the room and we look at him. And we go to us. He's just dad. <laughs> now, here's the weird part. I, I never told people that they weren't my kids. Never. Like to this day, there are people who still believe that I have two children in Vancouver. Um, the really weird part is they, they got attached to me in some kind of weird way because you see their mother um, was a single mom and they had no dad and they fantasized that maybe I could be their dad. So I used to get birthday cards every birthday from these two kids saying, come see us. Complete deadbeat dad because I never sent the mother a dime except for the one time that I paid. I paid the kids, right? Um, and this went on for years till they must have been 15 or 16. Then they stopped sending me cards. I guess they gave up. That's that's the a, a good screenplay, <laughs> you know. It would yeah, be, yeah. um, Karina has done some, some great, great pranky, um birthday parties and that was that was a great one i would as a screenplay i would make it you're trying to impress your wife's name is corinna 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 yeah i mispronounce people's names it's uh passive it's passive aggressive david it's fine thank you uh if the movie would be you're trying to impress a woman and you hire two kids to play your children and yeah, something happens. That's how yeah. I would. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a definitely a good start for for the first reel. Yeah. Um, and the kids were great. They were little. They were little blazers, just like <laughs> I would wear. You know, 
and they went and people probably sat there. Now, the only person who was furious about this was my sister because she realized it was all BS, but she didn't think this was something I should make fun of. Right. Everybody else thought it was. Why wouldn't they? Right. It looks real. People kept coming up to Karina all night going, is this true? Is this true? Have you known about it? And you don't mind? You're okay with this? <laughs> <laughs> what now? Now, what does that say about you as the president and founder of the largest comedy chain in North America? What does this say that to this day you're not allowing friends and relatives to be in on the joke? What does that mean? I'm not sure that that's the key to this, but something you might want to think about is how completely humorless the people in the comedy business are generally speaking they take everything very seriously they don't really have a sense of humor you go to just for laughs and you um sit around the bar after the shows and the comics are sticking and they're doing you know they're they're, they're schmoozing they're sticking they're doing all those jewish things and but the people who are actually in the business look like they're in insurance sales or Mm -hmm. something they don't look like they're having a good time to me, if it's not a good time, why do it? See, I remember your festival. This must yeah. have been, I think, I'll tell you when I was at your festival. Ruth Bader Ginsburg had just been nominated for the Supreme Court. She was on the, the in, front, in the Rose Garden being announced. So that must have been 93. Right before. That sounds, that sounds right. right. Rich Scheidner asked me when it was because he was there and Gilbert was there and he wanted to remember when Gilbert's set was. So, yes, it was 93. We checked on it. And there was a group of people you hired at the parties. We're going with this. And they, I didn't know you had hired them. But one of them, uh, you know, you hired people to basically put lampshades on their heads and someone at four in the morning, one of the people you hired, took a dump in a waste paper basket. Well, I should hope so. He doesn't know his full fee otherwise. In fact, I had to block him a little pay because he did it so late. He was supposed to 2.30 at the latest. Crowded out with thinned out by four. That wasn't fair, right? Do you remember it this? Great, it was great. Of course, it was great. Bob Scott. I'm still friends with him, and uh, he's one of the greatest drummers in the country. And he took the dump in the uh... waste paper basket. I asked him to take the dump in the tuba, but he didn't bring the tuba. So he couldn't do that, so he took the, the dump in the waste paper basket. And I was a drummer. But dump bump. But dump. What? He's a drummer. A dump bump. Yes. A bump bump. Um, bump bump bump. Yes. Um, <laughs> I'm two. One. Two. <laughs> Sorry. So, um, yeah, well, they were part of a group, the uh, performance group called uh, The Look People, run by a guy named James B. James B is an incredible man about town. He works on Jazz FM now. Um, he is the key bon vivant. I think of Toronto. Nobody has more fun in this city than James B. He takes people to um, New York on jazz holidays. You pay him 
some rather large amount of money. And he takes eight people. And he takes you to all the jazz clubs. And um, he looks a bit like Burl Ives with, uh, uh, with long white hair, somewhere between Burl Ives and Colonel Sanders. <laughs> a complete character. A complete character. Love the guy. Yeah, I, re I remember that festival that you you were I don't want to say you were competitive with Montreal, but it was your way of saying this is how you throw a festival. And well, I saw things I saw things no man should see at <laughs> the after parties. Well, that's the idea. Look, I, I mean, I'm not going to criticize just for last, but let's face it. They have a lot of corporate people that they have to satisfy. I had no, virtually none. And because of that, anybody could do whatever they wanted to do. It wasn't going to bounce back and hit us in the face. Right. Uh, especially. But uh, speaking I, of I, things that bounce back and hit you in the face. Yeah. Abortion. Yeah. We're all watching, um, you know, your country with uh, aghast that people would want to withdraw uh, abortion rights from the federal table. But on the other hand, it's kind of good for us. You want to know why? Why? One, tourism. It'll be great for tourism in Canada because people will want to go have a, they'll need an abortion. They'll come up here. They'll, um, they'll have their abortion, but they'll also see a show. Uh, they'll go to uh, maybe get some tickets to Yuck Yucks. I'm thinking of actually working out some packages for people. Who, who want to this will also be really good for New York and California, where I, I think the New York package could be fantastic. Two, listen, two tickets to the Music Man, um, you know, 20% off a very good restaurant. Mm -hmm. Abortion. An abortion. All one price. What? All one price. You know, Aaron Berg yeah. could probably create a miscarriage on stage in Canada. <laughs> There's some material that you don't you may actually be able to abort. All I know is this. If you have some extra money right now, invest it in a wire hanger factory. That's all I'm gonna say. I think I, I think I did you better at the top of the show. Oh, okay. sorry, I didn't see it. But you know, I, I, hang on, let me tell you what mine is. Oh, wait, tell me. Portable staircases. Love it. I think that's no. class. That's classier. That's classier. You're right. In a while, uh, you definitely got a point. But here's something I don't understand. I mean, we have this whole thing about you know, is abortion is it le is it moral? Is it immoral? Nobody ever asks the real question, which is, is it fun? <laughs> and, uh, and I think that that's a really important what? I'm sorry, I was about. laughing. What is it fun? That's all I heard. And then I started laughing. Yeah, it's, fun. it's an important question to ask. Right. Uh, especially from the point of view of the of the abortionist, because if you think of it this way, and I don't know if you're like me, David, but when I finish vacuuming, I get a real <laughs> sense of accomplishment. I feel that there's a certain Zen to it. And I would imagine the same thing would be true, but just on a very much smaller scale. Right. So have all these kids, all these young boys, and they all take shop in high school. What are the chances that any of these kids are ever going to be near a lathe after they graduate? Virtually zero. <laughs> ah, but there's a good chance 
Uh, darn good chance they're going to knock up, but Jack's going to knock up Diane. <laughs> and he's going to need to know what to do. And if we only taught the art of abortion in schools, right. he'd, be able to, he'd be able to do something about it. Now, where could he do it? He can't do it at his house. Okay, you know all these Starbucks that are starting to close down now, the smaller ones? Now we've got a use for them. Abortion huts. Abortion huts. Yeah. I like it. And maybe Dyson can come out with a vacuum cleaner that they call Die Son and Die Daughter. Oh, oh, that's good. David, that's great. (laughs) great. Maybe it would just be an attachment. But... uh, now here's the thing i'm pro-abortion like i'm not squeamish about it and 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 one of the reasons we're losing in this country is we have democrats especially men who are squeamish about abortion and so they say well i'm pro-choice no 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 you're pro-abortion and, and I don't care if you're squeamish about it. Shut your effing mouth. It's up to women to decide. And and by not joking about abortion, you stigmatize women who do get abortions. It's like a sneeze. That's all yeah, it is. Well, An abortion is like a sneeze. Get over it. I have to tell you, you know, I'll be walking along the street and then there'll be some kind of demonstration against abortion and they'll be carrying their, these placards and they'll have pictures of what the fetus looks like at three weeks or three months or whatever. And to me, frankly, you know, it looks like seafood. Um, and I don't know whether I should just get some cocktail sauce and a three-pronged fork or I should actually, you know, do something about it. When I tell them that, they get really mad. They say, do you know what this looks like? Don't you see what this looks like? And I go, yeah, prawn. Right. Nice, nice with cocktail sauce. The, the position we need more and more people saying, here's Dr. Harriet Fraud. We need more Democrats saying to stop saying abortion should be safe, legal and rare. I'm sick of hearing that. And I think you need people who say it's a great form of contraception. Now let's negotiate that, that, that people have to step up. There has to be a radical left or a radical feminist who says, you know what, you want to uh, you, you want to outlaw abortion? Well, we think it's a great form of contraception. Let's negotiate now. Instead, we have you disagree, Dr. Fraud. Hang on, I have to unmute well, you. We just heard the silent scream. <laughs> was Dr. Fraud. Okay. I totally disagree because one of the things that has to be emphasized is that people aren't flocking to an abortion for a good time. People have an abortion, which is an intrusive and a horrible experience because the experience of, of going through a pregnancy is even worse. The Constitution does ban, um, does tell people they can have abortions in that it bans cruel and unusual punishment. It is a cruel and unusual punishment for a woman to have to undergo vast changes in her body, which also endanger her and her life a lot more than an abortion would in order to produce a child she doesn't want. No one has abortions for good times. Well, so it should be a woman's right to control her own body and to control who she'll have to take care of for the rest of her life or put up for adoption 
because birthing is a dangerous and horribly painful experience and pregnancy is a distorting and painful experience. Well, and no woman should be put through cruel and unusual punishments. I, let me just clarify what I mean by what I said. There are crazy people on the right and they are winning. They are winning. And so there has to be people who trivialize abortion to make it part of the conversation. Because I have spoken to some women who say abortion should be treated like a sneeze, especially the uh, the morning after pill when when it's a month. Okay. When you're talking about a month into the, the country, percent of the United States supports continuing Roe versus Wade. So they're not winning on that one. In fact, it's Biden's only issue that will capture anybody dramatically. And it is a, you know, it's, I, I feel it's a very dangerous thing because what it's doing is creating divisions. What fascists are the most afraid of, and this is part of the legal basis for fascism, in Nazi Germany, birth control and abortion were both declared illegal. And that was because they needed an underclass of women to work for less because it wasn't their mission in life and to have men, white males be ascendant. And right. in terms of race and class and sexual practice, Fascists need to separate people out into warring communities so they don't unite around their obvious mutual interest in a just society with equal opportunity. And this is just another way of dividing the mass of people by creating a subordinate underclass. I think what they're trying to create in the United States is several things. It's a workforce that's so desperate because they have to support their children that they're willing to take horrible and abusive jobs because people aren't signing up for those horrible, abusive jobs as much as they would like to. At Amazon, the turnover rate is now, I think, 100 percent down 150, from 150 It's 150 percent. 150 OK. Call centers, 100 percent. Fast food, 100%. And you know why? However desperately people need the money, they just can't stand to be abused. And the Republicans want a docile workforce. In fact, what I think this is about is creating a family system that is like that in Nazi Germany, a kind of fascist feudal system in which the woman is in a household owned by the man legally, bound to obey, to have no control over her body, and to be paid much less than men, compelled to work because people don't get enough money, but, but paid much less than men because, after all, their true mission is to create children and take care of men. And so you create huge divisions in the working class of men and women, whites and non-whites, and I think that's the mission. And they are trying to create the legal basis for fascism here. And that's part of the legal basis, just like taking away the ability to vote by changing the poll rules and having people to pay up their fines before they have a, a vote, like in Florida and so on. 
they are trying to create a legal basis for fascism. And they are also trying to divide us from one another on the basis of race and sex, as well as class. David, I have to say that I agree with just about everything Harry was saying, but not one joke, not one. Right. That's the point we were making. Here's the point that, that I was trying to make is you need men have to stop being squeamish about abortion and in comedy clubs offend, make jokes about it and stop mm-hmm. treating it as a trauma. The idea that abortion is a trauma for women and they they always regret it because they don't always regret it as well. Especially a couple, especially, you know, two or three months. David, I have to ask you a question. It's a personal question. Have you ever gone through an abortion with a girlfriend or a wife? I No comment. David, you're so open about everything else. Look, you know, it, men are in solidarity with other men around these issues, and they can't be. But, you know, you want to make a joke about it? We can say we need these restrictions like my ass chews gum, okay? That's a little bit of humor. That's why we need their laws. And I'll tell you what else we should be doing before in terms of the the pro-abortion. First of all, I'm pro-abortion. I'm not pro-choice. I'm pro-abortion. That's the first thing. And secondly, what we should be doing is what they would have done in the 60s. Abby Hoffman and the Yippies would and or the yes men today would take Donald Trump at his word on 60 Minutes when he was running for president. And he said punishing the women for getting abortions. If abortion is murder, then let's start locking up the women. Let's politicize this and and force a vote in Congress. Get these right wingers on record not to vote for locking up women for getting an abortion because it's either murder or it isn't. If it's murder, then you arrest the women for abortions and the Republicans will never go that far yet. No, they won't. But even in the Bible, they say and the third with the first breath. And the fetuses can't breathe on their own. So, you know, I think what we should do is say that even ovaries and sperms should are criminal if they're wasted. So every time you masturbate, guys, that's six million people are being killed and you should be accused of genocide. And jailed immediately. You tell that to me and Mark, the first thing we want to do is masturbate. <laughs> now it's now it's even more exciting. Yes. What, what, what Mark? I mean, the whole logic is crazy. You just got me excited, Harriet. What did you do that for? Um, Let me say goodbye no, to Mark, because I know my instincts and Mark's instincts are to make jokes. So I'm going to give Mark the last word and come back but i i i uh i know you and i are just going to want to make jokes and and that's not fair so you get the last word well all i can say is i want to abort somebody right now Anyway, how is um, it Canada? What are, what are the laws in Canada? 
Um, actually, you have more um, legal uh, protection in the United States at this moment. Uh, uh, it's it's legal in Canada, but only by case law, not in any kind of constitutional way. Um, the Supreme Court uh, will not hear any um, any uh, any. They have not heard anything on abortion since nineteen, I think, seventy eight. I think is when uh, uh, Henry Morgenthaler, who was the lead abortionist in Canada, lead doctor, um, was tried and they threw it out of court, and that's been the end of it. I don't think that there's a conservative politician in Canada who would dare bring this up. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just don't think they would do it. it. It would be political suicide. Yeah. Right. Mark oh. Breslin is president and founder of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy club in North America. God bless you. I love you. It's great to see you. Happy birthday. Thank you. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you. Uh, let us now go to Newt. I, I know he's sitting. I know he's sitting on a powder keg of tasteless jokes. But uh, next <laughs> next week, next week. Okay. Bye. 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 Uh, Dr. Harriet Fraud joins us. She is the host of "It's Not Just in Your Head" and "Capitalism Hits Home." And she is a psychotherapist who filters our neuroses and paranoia through the prism of capitalism. And she is a, a joy. It's always a joy. And you're one of the founding mothers of women's liberation. Yes. And I have a radio program called Interpersonal Update on WBAI on Wednesdays at 2.30. And I, uh, I was here Ikoi Hero and Liam Tate have another podcast called It's Not Just In Your Head. So I have those things. However, you know, I'm glad. I love your show. Well, we love you. It's so cooperative and wonderful. Thank you. High high praise coming from you. As a founding mother of the uh, second wave women's liberation movement, you were there, I guess, with Betty Friedan and... And uh, well, Betty Friedan kind of predated the women's liberation movement. She wrote her book in 1965. The women's liberation movement started after that and basically was launched with their first periodical notes from the first year that came out of New York. And then it was read by people like me who said, oh, my God, we have to do this here called my friends, set up one little meeting, five people. Within two months, it was 100 people. And people all over the country did similar things. But we also fought for abortion rights. That was part of the early women's movement and continuing movement until um, abortion rights were granted in 73. Right. And... And people came to New York for abortions. It was pretty loose up until now. Was it loose, legal? What what was it before Roe v. Wade? It was illegal. It was illegal. For women with money, it was always available. Your private obstetrician would refer you to somebody either here or in Puerto Rico or something else where you could get an abortion. However, you'd have to go to that location and pay the uh, the abortionists several hundred dollars, and people 
who didn't have any money couldn't do that. There were also other places where you could get an abortion. There was a doctor um, in Pennsylvania whose daughter had been killed by a, an illegal abortion and who gave abortions in Ashland, Pennsylvania. But it's about a six-hour drive from almost everywhere. But it was safe. However, you know, there are, and there were places in Union, New Jersey. They, those places cost money and you had to know about them. And most poor women didn't know about them. You only know about it through feminist circles. Are they called so abortion-facients? How is it pronounced? An abortion-facient? And that would be yeah, plan B, the morning after pill. Yeah. Uh, they didn't have those then. They didn't have the meprofistone, you know, the pills, abortion pills. They didn't have the morning after pills. You had to get a DNC to get an abortion. Now, of course, it's much less dangerous than um, having a pregnancy. Maybe if it were called the RNC instead of a DNC. <laughs> that would be good. We could abort them. That would be great. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I've, I've undergone a, a, a change. Uh, I, and I, most men I know are squeamish when it comes to abortion. Uh, and I hear safe, legal, and and rare. And uh, I look at what we're up against now, this vast right-wing conspiracy. And it, it, this is no time for squeamishness. As Margaret Thatcher said to George Herbert Walker Bush, don't go wobbly mm -hmm. on me. If they're anti-abortion, we have to be pro-abortion and be dismissive of these kooks. There has to be an element within this country that is disrespectful of these totally. religion and, and 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 treats abortion as though it's frivolous and put it right well, in I their don't face. Think we have to call it as frivolous, but we should. It's it, part of the rights to a woman's body, like the right against rape. And it should be honored as a woman's decision about what happens to her body. There's some circumstances where it might be more questionable, like if the state supported and brought up your children, then you'd still have the physical experience, but you wouldn't be saddled for life. But you know? don't you think the stigma and the respect shown to abortion creates a lot of the pain for women who get an abortion? Don't you think it's the cultural constraints about how we talk mm -hmm. about abortion that causes so much pain for women who do get abortions? That if we trivialize yes. abortion, we're going to make it easier to get one and women won't won't will have less trauma as they yes i do think if we just say it's a health concern sometimes birth control fails sometimes people make mistakes sometimes they're careless but life is too serious to bring into the world in that manner and a child should never be a punishment and an unwanted pregnancy is a punishment of a woman's body and therefore for all those reasons abortion should be a right for every 
woman who chooses it. But am I and, if you look at the gay community, which has done very well, I'm not going to say they've done well, but the Supreme Court, Ogerfeld, you know, it, they're going to go after gay marriage. But the difference, the difference, I think, between uh, the gay community and the pro choice movement is you go to a gay pride parade and they are proud of being gay and it's a show and it, they rub it right in your face mfr get used to it we're here we're right. queer get used to it that and and uh even if you don't get used to it you learn to keep your effing mouth shut that's what you know, Emily's list, These the, that's what you have to do with abortion. You have to celebrate it. You have to get in the face of these people and, and paint it as, as something to be proud of, that you took control of your life because we're losing the right to an abortion because the people who speak up for abortion rights are squeamish and uncomfortable about abortion. And that has to end. Well, I think that we're losing a lot of things because just as the Republicans employ wild political theater to act out, and as the gays got AIDS notice because of the militant demonstrations, the Republicans and are absolutely outrageous and the Democrats are acquiescent and polite. And we can't be. We need a raucous movement. And we need a movement for women's rights across the board because they're all being taken away, as well as the right to vote and other things, which the Republicans are trying to erode as part of a fascist legal backdrop. And that has to be reacted against. It, you know, we have to stop this. 80% of the country thinks Roe versus Wade should exist. And we are the vast majority, but they don't care. I think the vast majority believe that everybody should have a right to vote. But uh, that doesn't mean that they're gonna, not going to try to take it away and create a legal basis for fascism. Is abor abor abortion is a civil right, correct? Yes, it is. Okay. So when Democrats, when friends of mine say, look, I'm pro-choice. I, I was having this conversation with somebody, a friend of mine who I really am close to. I respect this person. Uh, he's brilliant and he votes properly. But he said to me, look, uh, you know, people who are pro-life, there's something kind of innocent about them. I can see, uh, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to be antagonistic towards them. Isn't that tantamount when you look at what women forcing a rape victim to have a baby is tantamount to saying, uh, you know, uh, I I'm for black people voting, but I understand why we we don't let them vote and we shouldn't antagonize the people who don't want black people to vote because they're coming. That's their that's what they feel in their heart. And we should respect that. No, I don't want no. to respect that. No. And also, I don't I think we should be called the pro-life, pro-women's life movement, and they should be called the forced birth 
movement because they want to force women to give birth against their will and force children to be unwanted by a hard like enough that. time. They don't want to feed the children. One in four is hungry in the United States. One in four kids, they don't want to feed them. They don't want any rights once they emerge from the womb. But they say that they are pro-life. We shouldn't let them get away with it. They're forced birth supporters, and they should be castigated, and they should be rejected for that, and people should militantly work against them, militantly. And it should be pointed out this is a forced birth movement, and it has to stop. It's a torture for women. And that abortion should be something that women can choose safely, because women will always have abortions. The question is, will they be able to live afterwards? Will they be safe abortions or not? Right. My thoughts about evolution are, I want to be left, I want to be left alone. And in what sense? Huh? In what sense? I, I don't, uh, I don't want anybody to tell me how to live my life. And, and if a woman wants an abortion, uh, needs my help, yeah. I'll drive you, you know, whatever. But I want to be left alone. And I don't understand why men feel the need to get up inside a woman's business other than a deep-rooted misogyny, a hatred yeah. for women, which I understand. I understand why men hate women. Uh, I understand why women hate men, but it's unacceptable. There's no excuse for it. And also, you know, it is... I think there was an interview with two, two writers on the radio. And one was Margaret Atwood, the other was a male writer. And the radio interviewer said, what are women most afraid of from men? And what are men most afraid of from women? And first she asked the men, what are, she asked the men, what are men most afraid of from women? And the man said, ridicule. And then they asked Margaret Atwood, what are women most afraid of from men? She said, death. And I think these men are trying to control women. And they're trying to divide men and women from each other and create hierarchy to prevent the masses from getting connected in our own self-interest. They're fascists. And I don't think we should be all that understanding. I mean, you can understand all sorts of things you wouldn't forgive. I understand why Jeffrey Bomber, Dahmer ate those kids as a cannibal. He didn't want to be abandoned. And so he thought if he ate them, they'd be part of him. Doesn't mean he can go killing kids and cannibalizing them. Right. We can all understand everything. We're all captivated by these heinous crimes because it's part of us that can understand that possibility in human beings. But it doesn't have to be tolerated, and it can't be. This is this interesting. Is You're saying men's greatest fear is being ridiculed by a woman. Yes. Put down, ridiculed, and dismissed. Whereas women's is being killed. Right. And that's pretty accurate. That's the third leading cause of death of women between 15 and 30 Four, which is, no, 15 and 45, death by their husbands, ex-husbands, or lovers. Men, Men are lovers. the third leading cause of death 
for women in America if you're between the ages of what? I think it's 18 and 45. And there is, you know, men have a lot of hatred for women. It's encouraged by the Republicans, but I think it's because as males, you grow up in a matriarchy. Your most powerless, frightened years are in the hands of the powerful women who give birth to you, who are your mother, who are your babysitter, who are your nurse, who are your nursery school teacher, who are your daycare provider. And so that they have this sense of the omnipotent and terrifying woman. And some women have that too, only they feel like I will grow up to be a woman and they have a different identification. But some of it is a primitive fear, which the Republicans then use. And I think, look, in it could be combated with the kind of sex education they have in the Netherlands, where after learning about their all their body parts and all that, in high school they learn about their sexual relationships, they talk about them in class, they talk about their orgasms, they talk about what they owe to a sexual partner and what could be happening with the life that they create and whether they want to take that responsibility of creating a life. So they learn all about relationships with each other. There's only 17 states out of 50 that teach accurate biological sex uh, education, and none of them teach relational sex education. And so men and women are really not taught to be friends and connected. And this is a vengeful, ugly, political, fascistic thing that they're doing here. And it's very unpopular. I think it's the one reason that people will actually be inspired to vote for Biden. In defense of the Democrats, mm-hmm. uh, last week we were going after Henry Cuellar. He's running for re-election in Texas, mm-hmm. and he's been supported by Pelosi and Clyburn, and he's a right-to-lifer. And we were indignant, right. indignant that the Democrats would support a right-to-lifer, while at the same time, planning to introduce legislation that would codify Roe v. Wade into law. But he's the only right to lifer. In the Democrats. He's the only one left. Mm -hmm. Uh, I loathe Hillary Clinton and her husband. But had she been elected in 2016, she would have picked three Supreme Court justices Yes, and none of them would be Catholic misogynists, extreme Catholic misogynists. None of them. Right. All three uh, are are Catholic. Uh, even Clarence Thomas is Catholic, and uh, Alito is Catholic. Oh, yeah, and Coney Barrett is in a fundamentalist kind of Catholicism. But, right. Uh, and they're... Their view on abortion comes from, if you're Catholic, your views on abortion come from men who are forbidden to have sex with women. Right. It, it, I, I happen to be a fan of the Catholic, in all seriousness, I, I think liberation theology, I think Pope, Pope Francis, I, I think the Catholic Church does a lot of good in this world. I do. It does. 
But its stance on abortion is not a lot of good it's doing. But it's also against capital punishment. Well, that's good, because I think if you are against abortion and the killing of what you think is innocent life, then you better be against all war where civilians get killed much more than warriors. And you ought to be also against capital punishment, because you could always find somebody innocent after you've killed them. The Pope was against the illegal invasion of Iraq. Yes, he was. And he's also against the support of war in the Ukraine. So he's, you know, he's courageous on those things. Right. If I were going to convert, it would be Catholicism. That would I, I think because of its uh, affinity and obsession with the poor that I think they there there is a, a strong strain within the Catholic Church. That- there is. Liberation theology is a minority position. And I think they elected that pope because the last continent that believes in Catholicism is South America. So they better do something there and they better look a little more progressive for the people of South America. And I do think he is an exception and he is much better than his predecessors. So these are Catholic Supreme Court justices handed over to us by the Federalist Society, who is basically run by right-wing evangelical Christians. Right. That are just as doctrinaire. You know, this is a hate movement. This is a movement that hates women and wants to control us on every level. It's, you know... And it's also a movement of people who need to divide the mass of people from each other on the basis of sex and race and income. There are all men have a beast within. All women do, too. Well, but in this case, I'm talking about the beast within men, which is a lot more dangerous for the most part. Eileen Wernos, notwithstanding. She's Uh, a wild exception. Yeah. And it's important to recognize the beast within, know what you're capable of thinking and doing. This is why men are usually sent off to war. Know what you're capable of thinking and doing and fear the beast within. The Republican Party celebrates the beast (laughs) within. Donald Trump is a beast He's a fool, but he's a beast. That's right. He is a beast. And his mentality is that of a lower animal. And so are his appetites. And everyone should recognize their own proclivities towards hatred and meanness so that we can all say, okay, I have that in me and I reject it. Right. You know, we're capable of being ugly. But this is a very important thing. It's stemming the tide of fascism in the United States. And the Democrats, who are also a capitalist corporate party, have allowed this to continue. The only thing they really mobilize for is things like stabbing Bernie in the back, which they did very efficiently, and other candidates that seem to be too progressive, and defending Nancy Pelosi when the squad was saying she should no longer hold her position. Now they're quiet about it and okaying whatever war money is needed. And so people are very disgusted with them. And I think the only thing that will 
save them now is the Republicans' opposition to abortion. You've because talked- I don't think most people care that much about the Ukraine, which the left is starting to see through. And, you know, giving, they want to, they just gave $40 billion to them, but, you know, we don't have a peace movement here either. So. You told us that Gloria Steinem was a CIA agent. Absolutely known as one. Yep. Infiltrated women's liberation and made it more about hatred of men than class struggle. Right. She made it a gender only. Look, gender has a place within the women's movement. Just like talking about racial difference has a role in the black movement. But the CIA operation called the Great Wurlitzer, there's a book by that name that explains it, was really about going into the women's liberation movement and the black and the black civil rights movement and making a race only gender only issue out of it and excising class right out of it. That was her job. It's right. If anybody wants to look it up, there's an article that was in Bloomberg News. What do Henry Kissinger and Gloria Steinem have in common? CIA pay. Anyone who wants to look at the Ramparts articles of 1969 show how um, Gloria Steinem was sent to the World Youth Conferences to finger Americans who might be interested in socialist or communist countries and report them to the FBI. She doesn't even deny it. So if the CIA wanted to infiltrate the, uh, the right wing and make the right wing look as scary as they try to make, you know, the CIA tries to make socialists look scary. That's right. their job. But communists more. Yeah. If the CIA were to infiltrate the right, what mm-hmm. they would do, and I urge my listeners to do this, I think I do, is to pretend you're right wing and demand that women get arrested for having abortions. That's what the CIA would do if they were trying to destroy the right wing. Because I don't know. I think they would just go in and expose them. Communists were deported and jailed because they were considered treasonous trying to overthrow the government, even though they did nothing to overthrow the U.S. government except talk about different a different way of organizing things. We've just had a group of people who actually did try to overthrow the U.S. government and invade the U.S. government and overturn an election, and they're not being deported or jailed for long sentences or vilified on the level that the left was in the 50s. But I think you would you would have to expose these people. First of all, since so many of the leaders are stealing, you could expose them for stealing or any of the other crimes they're committing. Yeah. But they're not interested. The, it wouldn't be good for the country. That's what Biden says. Oh, yeah, sure. We have to wrap it up. Anything. We have to wrap it up. Uh, This was great. Thank you. Dr. Harriet Fraud is a psychotherapist. How do people contact you? A hypnotherapist also in New York City. They can contact me through my my website, Harriet 
A-J-R-R-I-E-1-T-F-R-A-A-D.com or hfraud at gmail.com. Fantastic. We Thank love you. you. We love you. When we well, come back. Your people, too. But it's, it is the people. It's the yes, people. it is. When we come back, we will be joined by Professor Adnan Hussein. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. And go to my website. It's back up. We'll be back. But first, Professor Mike Steinell. <laughs> We wake every morning like the Rolling Stones Cause we just can't get no satisfaction Democracy's in change, we could bury its remains But infotainment culture has infected our brains We're living every day, we're living every night In the USA of distraction the wisdom we receive, the reality we perceive, is burned into our brains by cable TV. Scandal, crime, and disaster lead the news. Fear and white anxiety shape our views. The fourth estate has crumbled into an irrelevant heap. Critical thinking is all but asleep. Cause we're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The pathological pursuit of power and profit drives everything in sight. Not sure we can stop it. Corporate plutocracy has risen to the top. We've lost the power to think, so we shop until we drop. We're surveilled and monitored while they keep us all distracted. So we never notice that our data has been extracted. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. All right. The Reagan agenda, a libertarian notion of sweeping deregulation has been put into motion. Our eyeballs seldom stray too far away from the mega monopolies that command the day. Diversity in media is gone, gone, gone. Slowly fading out like a sad, sad song. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. 
The telegenic spectacle of tabloid celebrity has squeezed down any room for social integrity. With profits to be made and minds to be molded, media crushes the truth even when it's been scolded. It's books now more than ever that people need to read. Folks are hypnotized by their Twitter feed. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. Now we can't seem to get out of this neoliberal nightmare that cares more for Wall Street than anybody's health care. We've been bruised, battered, defunded, and dismantled. We've been diminished, infiltrated, manipulated, and manhandled. The sovereignty of citizenship, the bulwark of democracy, is under full attack by the cult of meritocracy. We're living every day. Yeah. We're living every night. In the USA, a distraction. We're living every day, living every night. In the USA, a distraction. We're living every day. I wish, I wish, I wish I were Professor Mike Steinel. Thank you, Professor. Well, early counting in the Philippines says that Bong Bong, the son of Ferdinand Marcos, is going to be the new president of the Philippines. He's leading by more than 15 million votes. Joining us is Professor Adnan Hussein. I want to talk to you, sir. Thank you. You are the religion chair at Queen's University up in Kingston, Ontario, host of Guerrilla History and the Mudgeless podcast. I want to talk to you about the elections in France. We'll do a postmortem probably on Thursday about the Philippines, but the dust has settled. Macron was inaugurated and delivered a 10-minute speech. So I want to talk to you about what we've learned from uh, the elections in France. However, I'm going to throw you a curveball. I was reading Professor Juan Cole over at Informed Comment, which everybody should read. He is, besides being brilliant, his writing is, uh, this is a compliment, is for people like me. He writes at a 
kindergarten level. I, I can understand simple. And he says that most Muslim nations uh, have more open abortion laws than Texas, that they're and that there was an Islamic jurist from the Middle Ages who ruled that abortion was perfectly fine during the first three months. He ruled over Turkey, I believe, and parts of Asia. What is Sharia law? One of the things we hear a lot on Fox and in the Republican Party is the Muslims are going to come here and... There are parts of America where Sharia law is already being implemented and we need to fear it. What is Sharia law? And well, yeah, go, go ahead. No, go put you. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, what is Sharia law? Well, firstly, I think even the phrase um, Sharia law ends up making it seem as if it is comparable to civic or constitutional law that we have in the United States, right, or in the modern nation state, that there's a codified you know, set of laws that are uniformly or at least theoretically meant to be uniformly enforced by a state apparatus and that you could go find out exactly what are the laws, right? They're published or they're listed. Um, Sharia is a lot like halakha for those who are, you know, Jews and understand a concept of religious practice that is very encompassing. The same way with Sharia, that everything that is essentially how you should live correctly according to God's will in the world would be considered part of Sharia. And that includes like how you pray to things that we think of as law, that is inheritance practices or, you know, uh, in oh, some of the um, gruesome punishments that, you know, come from this medieval form of justice, right? Uh, those things are also part of it, but they're a very small part of it. Most of it relates to things like, you know, um, you know, daily practices, uh, marriage arrangements, uh, inheritance, um, uh, ritual performance of one's uh, religious obligations, prayers, things like the charitable tithing that you have to do, that is all considered part of Sharia law. So I am absolutely uh, positive that there are many parts of uh, the U.S. where Sharia law is being implemented. And I would say one of them is, you know, perhaps even my own home, you know, like, a, you know, in North America. It's like if you follow religious obligations like, uh, you know, dietary laws, um, performing prayers, you are you know, following Sharia law. I think where the, um, you know, part that uh, gets um, uh, uh, kind of controversial is how and whether this could be related to public law um, and whether it comes into conflict with it, how is that to be adjudicated? And of course, the typical way in which it's adjudicated is that the public law established by uh, your, the government in which you live is what you have to follow. Uh, and this is really interesting in coming from typically far right evangelical Christians and others who, um, you know, hear about the specter of Sharia law when you have uh, this kind of Christian 
Christian sovereignty movement that's expanding dramatically that regards the Constitution itself as somehow subordinate to something they call God's law that, you know, uh, trumps it and 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 had should take you know precedent on some level nobody in uh kind of a mainstream muslim community ever regards that uh, this should be uh, imposed uh you know on the rest of society in muslim countries of course where you have a majority there are movements you know most of the arab world for example uh takes its uh, uh legal codes from the french you know, uh, you know, the French uh, French code um, uh, when they were created as modern nation states in the post-colonial era. That's kind of the plan. The model of the nation state was imported into these countries. They have secular laws. There may be places where they accommodate religious practices or the, where they put in particular provisions. But typically we're looking at. Um, you know, a kind of secular code, um, the Swiss code or the French code is, 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 is sort of the model. However, there is political organizing among certain Islamist parties that want to have Sharia be the basis of the state. And this is a very unique and new kind of idea. Of course, back in time immemorial in the medieval era, there was a sense that the dynasts, the sultans, uh, you know, the emirs were meant to support and protect Sharia, but this was never really enforced or implemented by the state as its ruling code and through its institutions. How it was is just like Jews follow the dictates of rabbis and the opinions of rabbis who differ with one another, have differences. And if you are looking for advice legally, like how should I deal with this particular situation of, uh, you know, giving my inheritance to my, you know, descendants and families, you know, you go and you consult and you get a kind of opinion. But if you don't like that opinion, you might consult a different rabbi and the same is true for um, within Sharia law is that, you know, if you don't like the fatwa, which just means a judicial opinion of a legal scholar, um, a jurist, you might find another because there isn't really a mechanism for establishing the law as a abstract codified element that then is enforced by the state. It is something that is developed through discussions and debates and convention. So it's not that there isn't a sense of what it is. It's just that that develops through convention and consensus over time, but still has to deal with the fact that there isn't one authoritative source or one codified book that explains this is the law. So that's something that's important to recognize. I think most Americans think of the Ayatollah Khomeini and his taking back Iran from the Shah. But that's not Sharia law that the Iranians are living under, right? Saudi well, I mean, that I mean, that is I mean, there's a difference between Shiism and um, a Sunnism in the sense that because of the particular authority of the Shi'i imams, like the dispute was who should uh, be a source of guidance and of political leadership after the prophet died. And some people felt that his family and descendants should have both religious and political authority, um, you know, for this, you know, polity. Um, and, um, 
but the majority decided that you didn't need to have that kind of charismatic spiritual authority. As a result, in Shiism, there has been a slightly more hierarchical or clerical kind of establishment that has developed um, to transmit the authoritative teachings of the family of the prophet. And as a result, they have a more hierarchical you know, group. They do have kind of rankings of scholars. And they can and they trace have- their ancestry back to Muhammad? Uh, well, yes, they, they have they they have uh, people who um, are known as um, you know descendants of the prophet, but there aren't any you know living kind of descendants from the line uh, that was it was after twelve generations it was it was sort of cut off, and that's why Shiism is messianic, like say Judaism, in the sense that you know they never ended up being in the early centuries the governors of this polity so they just turned to religious authority but after 12 descendants there was you know the disappearance of the 12th imam and so then uh they ended up uh uh you know positing that the imam would come back at the end of time and establish justice and that we couldn't have it in this kind of intervening period now in later centuries shiism you know ended up becoming the adopted official religion of a majority in iran that's something that only happened in the 16th century fairly recently and in fact it was imposed you know uh, on the population that was most mostly uh, sunni at the time so it was established as a sort of state religion uh, and so it's its history is a little bit different in how it ended up working out so in the overthrow of the shah what ended up being established was an islamic republic that attempts to make sharia law you know updated for the modern age on some level uh, to function within you know state institutions and so on um uh, you know, a, 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 an Islamic Republic. Um, so they've got their particular way of trying to do it. And I would say, however, that this shows exactly the difficulties of this actual tradition of religious practice, trying to um, uh, reframe it to serve uh, state requirements and the state needs of government uh, is where you get the real tyrannical kind of elements. So just like Saudi Arabia claims that it institutes Sharia law as law of the state, this is where you get, I think, um, something that isn't actually what happened earlier in history. This is something like a new a new phenomenon where it's being imposed by the state. Um, But of course, when you talk about it in the U.S., merely the practice of Islam as a religion means following aspects of the Sharia. And this is used, I remember, in I think it was 2012 in response to, um, you know, Obama's election. And of course, that raised a lot of fears uh, on the far right uh, that uh, in in the Republican Party that, um, you know, uh, we had this kind of uh, covert Muslim who had been, you know, installed. Um, As a result, um, there were a lot of referenda that were put on state, uh, you know, state ballots for the 2012 election across like maybe 15 or 20 states, um, referenda banning Sharia law, you know, um, something that was completely unnecessary because it it, it can't be, you know, adopted, but it was a way just like, you know, previously perhaps in 2008, you know, the, you know, uh, laws or referenda were put, um, you know, to ban gay marriage, you know, these kinds of things. Critical race theory. 
And that's exactly we're seeing the latest iteration of the same kind of tactic of establishing a kind of moral panic that may or may not have any basis whatsoever in reality, in law, in institutions, but as a mechanism for raising fears that, you know, America is being you know, drastically altered. And the only way to defend it is, you know, to come out and vote against this referendum. And of course, you know, the slate of, you know, a Republican Party. Um, So it's a driver for turnout. And that's what we're seeing seeing now. I want to get to uh, France. But the abortion issue is an interesting one. I mean, you've read the article. I haven't had a chance to read it. But, you know, one thing that I know is that, for example, um, you know, for the first trimester, essentially, if you if a woman um, is unable to carry uh, to term and there's a miscarriage, you don't perform, you know, the funeral prayers for the uh, miscarried uh, fetus. And so from that, you know, people have um, established or developed legal theories that it doesn't count as a person at that point. And so there isn't any penalty for it. And so in some ways, um, Islamic legal thought has developed a more balanced or moderate position on that sort of a question than you would find um, in the kind of absolutist conception equals life sorts of positions that you find in, um, you know, Christianity or, you know, even in a lot of other. And I think that's also the same in Judaism, that it's much more like the Islamic legal position. So that is quite interesting in the, to see. Yeah, the Orthodox Jews, which are, you know, little uh, from, not you know, uh, anyway, they believe that abortion is wrong but it's necessary to save the mother's life or if her psychological health is in danger. And that's a gray area, psychological health. Uh, And those are principles also that you would find also in Islamic legal discussions that preservation of the mother's life is prioritized. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Like if you're raped, uh, I don't think Mm -hmm. it's psychologically healthy to be asked to raise a constant reminder of the worst night of your life or day of your life. Uh, You know, I think religion is one of the things that separates us from the animals. I think they're I think it's natural for humans to be inquisitive, to try to to explain the inexplicable. And there can be something very beautiful about religion. However, However, yes. However, (laughs) I was reading a profile of Ed Koch, the mayor of New York City. Hmm. He was reelected three times in New York City. And I never liked the guy. I always felt that he ruined New York by sucking up to Wall Street. And there were rumors at the time that he was gay. There was a rumor that I had heard about a fire fireman that he was involved with but he came across more like he was asexual than he got the jew best meyerson was the first jewish for uh, miss america he she became his uh, arm candy and he never ever ever 
came out of the closet at the height of the AIDS epidemic. He refused to come out. He lived next door to the AIDS activist, the writer Larry Kramer, and Larry Kramer would scream at him, you're, you, by not coming out, you're, you're killing your own people. Mm. And the New York Times did a really interesting story uh, about uh, the pain that Ed Koch, former mayor of New York, endured throughout his entire life being in the closet. I want to show you, they showed his tombstone. And I said, I got to show this mm. to Professor Ayman. Interesting. So this is what he put on his tombstone. I don't know if you can see this. Uh, mayor right. of New York City, 1978 to 1989. And the quote that mm -hmm. he, on his tombstone, my father is Jewish, my mother is Jewish, I am Jewish. This is a quote from Daniel Pearl in 2002, just before he was beheaded mm -hmm. by a Muslim terrorist. This is what Ed Koch put on his tombstone. I've never seen anybody put something like this on a tombstone. My father is Jewish, my mother is Jewish, I am Jewish. And he put it on his tombstone because Ed Koch, a proud Jew, was so moved by Daniel Pearl, who right before he was beheaded in Pakistan, refused to deny who he was. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think, isn't that interesting that, you know, being Jewish for Ed Koch in New York City, not that big a deal. Being gay, more of a big deal. And I suspect Ed Koch being gay was way more important than his being Jewish. But he couldn't, he could not bring himself to say, I am gay. And he kind of deflected, I think, on his tombstone, the need to declare his Judaism, uh, which is kind of cowardly in New York. It's no big deal. If It's a big deal if you're Daniel Pearl, the, the journalist in mm. Pakistan, about to be beheaded. I think real courage for Ed Koch would have been, I'm a homosexual. And instead, he hid behind his Judaism. Uh, oh, I mean, you know, uh Obviously, it was a very different time. It was much less acceptable at the time. So it would have taken great courage in that era. Um, and perhaps he feared his political career would summarily, you know, end uh, as a result. Um, but that is a very sad. Um, he took the secret to his grave. He took it to his grave. Mm -hmm. He mm -hmm. he stopped being mayor, I think, in the 80s. He had plenty of time. To come That's out true. Post-political post career, he could have. Yeah. Maybe he thought, I mean, and in fact, actually, in a way, though, like it wouldn't have mattered much afterwards. I mean, what really would have mattered is at the height of his political career, that would have been a statement that would have made a difference. That would have made it a lot more acceptable. That would have accorded and afforded protection to people who were being marginalized, persecuted, often, you know, violently. So afterwards, in a way, it wouldn't have mattered. Um, and, you know, perhaps he had kind of understood it, too, that, yeah. you know, it wouldn't make a difference later to be the former 
you know, Mayor Ed Koch um, revealing right. that. You just, know, it just it wasn't relevant. It reminds me of the men who are against abortion and use religion. They're mm -hmm, deflecting mm -hmm. and they're hiding behind the scriptures, the Torah, whatever to to for to act out their misogyny. Um, that's when re religion gets corrupted when it's used. Oh, well. I mean, you know, this is a uh, serious uh, problem is obviously we can't found our public dialogues and um, legal traditions, you know, on something that um, can be subject to such variable interpretation and, um, and you know, doesn't have uh, a common basis. I mean, especially in a multi-religious and multicultural society, these are dangers um, when, you know, people insist on trying to impose their particular practice on the rest of the, you know, rest of society. It's, you know, quite an authority. When we talk about authoritarianism, I mean, I think this is really at the at the heart of it is that people don't feel secure, um, you know, to practice their beliefs um, unless they see them reaffirmed somehow in um they're public symbols i mean it's the same thing with christmas and and these sorts of things that it's it's somehow there's a kind of aggressive um idea that you couldn't say accommodate other people's religious holidays it's important that the state affirm kind of exclusively one's own that's like it's almost as if the state is instead of it being um the collective basis uh, for all of society it is the affirmation of one's identity um, right. in the public in the public sphere that's when it becomes i think very very dangerous yeah and, and i think journalists owe it to voters when a politician talks about their religion and how it shaped their lives you know, Bernie never talked about being Jewish. I mean, we obviously he's Jewish, but he didn't use it as a, as a, a way to get people to vote for him. He rarely talked about it because he didn't want to have to square his religious beliefs with his political beliefs. When you introduce your religion into the public square, then it is the responsibility of journalists to challenge how you square your religious beliefs with what your platform is. But religion is sacred. Well, you get to, you know, George W. Bush gets to defile Christianity by saying, mm -hmm. you know, his greatest philosopher is Jesus, well, Jesus Christ. Yeah. That's right. But the reporters won't touch that. Yeah. Uh, I, that's not yeah. once the once you bring this up. I think that, I mean, you know, it would have been a great question, a great follow up question, you know, to say, so what exactly in Jesus's philosophy do you think is relevant to administration of a modern nation state that is a secular one? Like, why not just ask the questions like, well, I mean, one could still find inspiration, maybe some ethical principles and so on. But you would have to be able to say the way in which that was bracketed from imposing, you know, one's religion on a, on a secular state, um, you know, but nobody will ask these questions. I agree. It's 
just so typical how um, the bizarre and contradictory way in which religion operates in American, you know, kind of public politics and in the public square, as you mentioned, you know, that I remember uh, when Romney was, um, you know, running, he had to give this speech that was hailed you know, um, as almost JFK-esque, you know, not since JFK have we had like a presidential candidate have to sort of come and, you know, put to rest, um, you know, their religious beliefs in the public sphere. But it was exactly the opposite of what John F. Kennedy did, you know, and and nobody seemed to be talking about it in that way. I mean, in the, you know, several decades since John F. Kennedy had to basically affirm that he would govern, you know, in the tradition of secular, you know, that his religion was his private beliefs and that, you know, um, he would, you know, govern and, uh, you know, as a president on behalf of all Americans, you know, without reference to his religion. Um, this was exactly the opposite of what Romney had to do in order to be acceptable as a presidential candidate in, you know, 2000 and what was it? 2012. Um, you know, he essentially had to say, I'm just as, you know, Christian as the rest of you. you know? mm. I mean, it was it was truly bizarre. Yeah. Um, well, let's let's I, let me alert our affiliates. We're running about 15 minutes behind. And I apologize. I want to talk about uh, the French elections. Macron won. What uh, what is McKinsey Gate? Oh, well, this is interesting. I mean, this emerged before the end of the second round of elections, and it did have perhaps some effect since, um, you know, his victory, although comfortable, was a lot narrower than the last time he defeated Marine Le Pen. I mean, at that point, it was 66 to 33 or something like that. And this time around was 58 to, you know, 46, uh, you know, 44. Um, And um uh, but what what emerged is that there was a Senate sort of the French Senate had done some kind of uh, committee report that revealed that um, a billion uh, euros. So over a billion dollars had been spent on consulting firms you know, for implementing, you know, French policies. And now this may not seem like a terribly um, new thing to America that has been you know, to Americans where we've privatized, you know, the state, you know, to the extent that that's just common. I mean, you get why fight a war with the army? You know, you got to, you know, have the army. But, you know, some of its functions you, you know, send off to, um, you know, uh, uh, Blackwater and, uh, you know, others. Right. This idea of, you know, consulting firms and private entities and groups um, performing functions of the state and advising the state on policy and so on is perhaps not so uh, strange for us. But a billion dollars being spent was really quite a shock. And what they discovered is that despite the fact that France has typically been very proud of its bureaucratic training, it has special schools that were founded, for example, in 1945 by de Gaulle to train, you know, bureaucrats to administer the state They have special schools it's an elite thing um that uh, you know they're spending all this money and it has doubled under uh, to this uh, uh 1.1 um billion uh, uh, mark um under 
Macron since 2018. Um, and McKinsey seems to be one of the favored uh, entities, you know, a U.S. global, you know, consulting firm that we know, of course, as, you know, the place where, you know, Pete Buttigieg, uh, you know, um, mm-hmm. developed the skills and techniques for being the future president of the United States, um, you know, and that it is a, a very neoliberal global consulting firm that has an agenda, Um and, um, you know, as a mark of, of Macron shifting to the right, there was a very interesting report that came out just last year um, that uh, declared um, um, Macron as president of the rich. And no wonder it's because he's taking his dictates from McKinsey. And you can see why this yellow vest movement arose soon, you know, in his term and why he has been particularly unpopular with young black and brown youth Um and uh, so this McKinsey gate, you know, was something of a scandal. Um, it obviously isn't illegal to do so, but it shows that there is just absolutely no confidence or interest in, you know, the public uh, administration or public solutions, but that there is this shift to a neoliberal privatization of government functions. Right. Um, so that uh, that was something that Le Pen criticized uh, him about. And of course, uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, you know, suggested, you know, that if he were elected, he would put an end to all, uh, you know, consulting firms, American or otherwise, that that would be it. There would be none of that taking place in, in the government. And, and Mélenchon, he is the the right wing. No, he is the, the left. Um, well, I mean, that's the thing as he's a radical left. So he's characterized as the far left in a way that suggests in this very centrist political establishment and journalism um, in the public culture of France, politically speaking these days, uh, you know, that basically says is he's essentially like the extreme right in that he doesn't accept certain key elements of the neoliberal EU, pro-EU order, right? Um, but his, his party is uh, La France, Insoumise France unbowed. So it does have that kind of nationalist element. He's somebody who's against European integration uh, because he thinks that it's just been uh, a way to undermine uh, sovereignty, workers' rights, uh, um, ecological um, you know, restrictions, but that it has served big business. Um, and so he is interested in rethinking France's position and relationship. He wants to renegotiate those treaties that uh, establish the EU. And if that's unsuccessful for France to leave the EU. Um, and also, of course, he's against NATO. He thinks there's no purpose for this uh North Atlantic Treaty Alliance, and it's just a mechanism for uh, Europe following under the dictates of U.S. Uh, global geopolitical interests and empire. So he's somebody who uh, confronts some of the key elements, you might say, of like the Davos consensus. And right. so that's why he's characterized as, you know, on the extreme left. And he's left the Socialist Party because the Socialists were pro-EU and pro-integration and drifted, you know, in Mitterrand's era and post-Mitterrand into uh, some of these neoliberal conventions um, and positions, uh, much like we saw in other left parties like the Labour Party in Britain or the Democratic Party in the United States, for that matter. Uh, And so he has uh, taken a stand against that and formed this new party in 2016 after breaking since about 2008 with um, the socialists. Oh, um, 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, he ended up, he was one percentage point basically off of getting into the second round. So Marine Le Pen had 23% and he had 22%. And so it was a very close possibility that he could have been facing Macron in the second round. And that would have been truly interesting. The problem was, unfortunately, the Socialist Party ran, you know, Anna Hidalgo, the mayor of Paris, you know, the Green Party had their own uh, candidate. And the Communist Party also ran its own candidate in the presidential elections. And so that splintered, just as, of course, the right wing was. Yeah, splintered. Isn't there a Jewish right wing Islamophobic candidate? Who- well, I mean, there have been all three of the, you know, Macron, um, uh, Eric. Um, oh, gosh. Why do I always forget his uh, forget his name? Um yeah, um, but there there was a right wing Jewish public intellectual. Who, yes, yeah, who was like a, a media figure, right. a writer, and a, like a radio host who had an extreme anti uh, anti immigrant, anti uh, Muslim um, agenda. Um, Zemur, Eric Zemur. Uh, that was his name. Yeah, he was really the extreme. He was criticizing Le Pen for being soft on, you know, immigrants and and so on. Um, so, so uh, what is you know, the right wing the- was the right wing was I don't know what's happened to him. He ended up actually only getting about you know ten. Uh, 10%, which is still quite amazing. I mean, he got, you know, right. 10, 10%, but there was a period where it looked like he might end up making it into the second round. I mean, you know, the traditional conservative, the, you know, Republic, essentially the Republican party uh, of, of France, their conservative party only ended up with 4%. And so what we have is a real realignment in France. There's this kind of broad uh, vague neoliberal centrist coalition. There's Marine Le Pen, who did consolidate a lot of the far right uh, in her when in the second round with her 44 percent. And there is still a core of left leftists. And what they've decided is that for the parliamentary elections that are coming up here in um, June, um, that they will actually consolidate. So they've uh, established a broad and pretty historic coalition uh, that is called the New People's Ecological and Social Union, where the Socialist Party, uh, Mélenchon's party, France Unbowed, the Green Party and the Communists will act in coalition and not run candidates against one another so that they can maximize the number of deputies that they, you know, will hopefully elect into the the, you know, uh, French legislature uh, and that they've published, you know, a kind of uh, what they're calling a shared common set of programmatic goals that is really built around, um, you know, Mélenchon's um, uh, uh, platform that includes some very interesting things. I mean, um, they want to uh, establish a sixth republic, essentially have a con- uh, constitutional assembly. This is something we're thinking about. The constitution, you know, it's so hard to amend. We're derailed by the judiciary and these lifetime appointments and all kinds of undemocratic institutions like the judiciary, like the Senate, like the Electoral College. I mean, we have to be thinking that it's time for, you know, a really big uh, reform. But of course, that raises the specter of what could you end up getting? Um, but with their goal, is to refound and establish a sixth republic, overturn uh, this very presidential and authoritarian, in their view, anti-democratic republic established by Legal. You know when uh, when he came in, 
Um, they want more, as I said, refound the EU relationship, uh, energy renew- energy transition to full renewables uh, by 2050. Um, and, um, you know, they've articulated that we need to have a decommodification of air, water, food, living, health, energy, and raise the, the wage to a, a true living wage, get out of NATO, um, and uh, possibly get out of the EU or reestablish the treaties and renegotiate the treaties for a, a livable uh, EU. Um, and he's talked, I think, in the face of this far right um, uh, environment, um, he has uh, come around to. I don't know if this was where he was. He's a little bit like how Bernie was not comfortable talking about some of the ethno, racial, and cultural sorts of issues. He's really focused on worker rights, unions, and you know this broad-based element, which of course is universal and um, you know absolutely the key. But he has come around to talking about creolization as the future of France. That it is a society that um, where. Uh, which is very unfrench like, you know, to talk about, you know, where French culture is assumed to be, you know, universal uh, and, and doesn't need to accommodate itself to other influences. He's talking about how we need to have uh, creolization. That is where we every culture does bring something into the mixed, whether it's gender, you know, racial or religious differences. And that, um, you know, that that that's this is the future of France and that it's the future of humanity. And so it's a really kind of interesting vision. We'll see next month, uh, uh, next month, what happens in the parliamentary elections. But I think there are some lessons that we could take here in the U.S., uh, about that populist left, you know, concerned about sovereignty and um, concerned about decommodifying the necessities of life. That is, I think, you know, a powerful and um, important message. Um, and one, a great one to end on. Uh, Rahima.org. Go to Rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A.org. It's a great organization set up by Professor Adnan Hussein's parents to, it's a food pantry essentially for refugees, specifically refugees from Afghanistan. At least it started that way, right? It, well, it started that way. And very interestingly, you know, I was just talking with uh, my mother the other day um, that uh, especially during Ramadan, they had to, you know, provide, you know, when people are fasting, they still need to eat. And they usually, you know, have a meal, you know, to break the fast in the evening. And, um, you know, there's been a real influx, actually, of new refugees coming from Afghanistan since the pullout, since the end of U.S. combat operations and occupation in Afghanistan. It has led to at least some increase. And because historically so many settled in the East Bay area, uh, San Jose and the East Bay, they, you know, new refugees that are coming are settling, you know, in this area because they have connections, relatives, uh, you know, family connections and so on. And so there's been a kind of second wave since the 1980s. Um, I don't know if people have ever read Khalid Husseini's um, um, 
famous uh, uh, novel, The Kite Runner. It got a lot of attention. Um, and he's a Bay Area writer because he was a, a refugee in the East Bay. Um, he talked about, you know, uh, in that in that book, going to the San Jose flea market and that this is where a lot of people, you know, kind of supported themselves by selling things at the flea market. That is not a fictional, you know, setting. I used to go to that flea market with my parents and we met so many people from Afghanistan. And that's where some of the connections were made for helping people um, in, in, in the future, refugees coming that inspired, you know, my mother to start working uh, to support them. So do help us out, rahima.org. Uh, we've got a second round of refugees coming. Of course, there's Ukrainians, but there are also people from um, U.S. wars uh, that have taken place in the Middle East and South Asia. And those people need to be supported and helped as well. Thank you, Professor Adnan Hussein, Mudgeless Podcast, and of course, Guerrilla History. Thank you. I hope to see you Thursday. Very generous of you to stop by. Thank you. See you next. Uh, see you Thursday. Thank you so much. And please go to rahima.org, R A H I M A.org, to support this important food pantry that I didn't know about until our next guest came on the show. His name is Peter B. Collins. He's a Bay Area Radio Hall of Famer. Sorry to keep you waiting. We're now 20 minutes behind, but we will. David, David, that was the best. Uh, the last 15 minutes was the best coverage of the uh, run-up and election in France that I have heard. And it ties in with what I want to talk about today. But I want to thank Professor Hussein. I also, if he's still uh, online, would like to know uh, the sources that he would recommend for uh, learning about the deeper picture in France. Because uh, I scan the New York Times and the Washington Post online every day. And one of the reasons I decided to do a recap of Biden's foreign policy blunders today is that you don't read about it in the corporate media in this country. They're feeding us 24-7 war porn from Ukraine. So, Adnan, uh, can you share with us some good sources for accurate reporting uh, about France? Well, he goes to uh, Breitbart, InfoWars, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> I thought. And I just find wherever Steve Bannon is writing, I just you know, go find out you know what he's up to. Um, well, actually, oddly enough, of course, there's like France 24, but that, that gives you really the kind of establishment um, neoliberal French uh, version. I mean, oddly enough, I have found um, Middle East Eye. Uh, which has wonderful yeah. Middle East coverage, right. but it also has a lot of, you know, North African, French figures who write and analyze what's happening in France and the French political scene. And uh, so I've seen a number of very good uh, writers and analysts there. And, um, you know, uh, that's one place I would suggest people look mm -hmm. to in general for both Middle East and uh, some good European coverage. Um, so check out the Middle East Eye. Great. Thanks. Uh, Gareth Porter is a uh, outstanding journalist since the Vietnam era, and he published many times at Middle East Eye, and that's how I learned about them. Uh, so thank you for that. And also, I, I, I'm not blowing smoke. Your recap was really interesting, particularly to learn about how close 
the uh, first round was and that Marine Le Pen was only two points ahead of the so-called far left candidate. That would have put uh, McKinsey Macron, uh, McKinsey Macron. <laughs> in a real in a real pickle because he would have had to flip really freaking fast. That's exactly the kind of um, uh, face off, you know, we really wanted to see. We wanted to see that with Bernie and Trump. Yeah. You know, uh, we wish uh, we could have seen seen something like that in France as well. And mm -hmm. it was really very close. Um, so we could hopefully take some inspiration uh, that uh, yeah. these positions actually are fairly popular. And Professor, and I didn't know about Lee. the McKinsey connection. I, I think some journalist needs to do a deep dive into McKinsey's connections to government worldwide, because you know I blamed Goldman Sachs for the uh, financial takedown of Greece, uh, but I don't really know what else McKinsey is up to. Well, ask the people of South Africa. Ask the people who are addicted to opiates here in America. Ask uh, the Pentagon, which paid, I think, McKinsey to set up some relationship with China that ended up screwing the Pentagon. Uh, McKinsey has its fingers in uh, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Ukraine. It's state capture. They're a consulting group yeah. that goes in, advises troubled companies, and then trades stock on inside information, which nobody ever talks about. And that's Pete Buttigieg. That's Mayor Pete. That's his back. Capitalism at its finest. Yeah. Well, thank you, Professor Adnan Hussein. And we should do uh, more in-depth reporting on McKinsey here. Anthony Blinken is our Harvard-educated Secretary of State. Brilliant man. Everybody was coming down with COVID from the gridiron dinner. So the brilliant Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, said, well, I guess everybody who was going to catch COVID got it at the gridiron dinner. I'm going to the White House Correspondents' Dinner so I can meet Kim Kardashian. He came down with COVID. He's from West Exec, a former lobbyist from Boeing. He recused himself a year ago from any decisions involving Boeing over at the State Department. However, he's the chief proponent of sending Boeing-made weapons to Ukraine. Somehow he didn't re recuse himself from those conversations. But I'm a child, Peter B. Collins. I don't <laughs> He got his recusal advice from Mark Esper, the <laughs> right. Raytheon executive who was Trump's last uh, uh, full-time Secretary of Defense. I saw him on 60 and, and, Minutes. And Esper, who's, you know, hyping a book about all the things that he kept secret while Trump was fuck, uh, screwing up, <laughs> uh, is now sharing them for his own personal profit. And uh, the beat goes on. The same excuse. I watched him on 60 Minutes last night. He gave the same excuse that Colin Powell gave for not resigning uh, in the lead up to the invasion of Iraq. Esper, Secretary of Defense, has a new book out in which he says Trump told him to bomb Mexico. Right. 
I, I didn't hear that one. Yeah. I didn't watch 60 Minutes last night. Sorry. And this was this is the 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 self-flattering of the bureaucrat. Mm-hmm. I didn't quit because I was afraid somebody a lot worse would come in. I'm Colin Powell. I can't quit because there are a lot of worse people standing in line to take this job. That's how they flatter the self-importance of the mindless bureaucrat. And indispensability. Yes. Yes. As Charles de Gaulle said, the graveyards are filled with indispensable people. (laughs) That being said, Blinken, he knows stuff. He was like, I think he was editor-in-chief of the Harvard Crimson. You know, he's the best and the brightest. Certainly he is making wise decisions, telling Biden what to do, right? I'm a child. I'm not privy to what he's privy to. I made a list of uh, 20 countries where under Biden and Blinken, American foreign policy is either unchanged or worse. And I didn't include Russia and Ukraine. That's pretty obvious. And that's what's getting the lion's share of coverage uh, today in American media. And it's worse. Of course. Yeah. 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 But let me start with Cuba. Uh, Obama's signature foreign policy achievement, which he didn't allow either Hillary or John Kerry, his two secretaries of state to work on. He didn't trust them with reopening relations with Cuba. And it was a significant advance. It ended the failed almost 60 year blockade of Cuba that you can argue kept the Castros in power. Uh, hardened their control over the country, uh, created alliances with the Soviet Union and then Russia and other non-aligned countries that complicated uh, American policy in our hemisphere. And uh, Biden has turned his back on Barack Obama and those important breakthroughs to essentially embrace the policies of Trump. And I want to mention you often talk about my treasure trove of podcasts and uh, currently at the top of my homepage at PeterBCollins.com is, uh, to me, an important podcast from the last five or six years. And it features Tom Hayden, the American revolutionary who died in 2015 or 16. And before he died, I did this interview with him and it was a book called Listen, Yankee. And this is all prompted by the death on May 1st of Ricardo Alarcón. He was essentially the third Castro brother. He was U.N. ambassador for Cuba for many years. And then uh, he was a longtime member of the, uh, the Politburo. And he also ran the National Assembly. And uh, so he, he was you know, very influential in Cuba. And Tom Hayden met him. Uh, in the years just before Obama broke the ice. And they wrote a book together. Uh, Well, it was Hayden's book, but it was based on lengthy conversations with Alarcon. And the most interesting parallel is that they were both uh, uh, influenced by C. Wright Mills, who published a book in the early 1960s about revolution. The Power Elite. 
Yes, and it became the basis for the Port Huron statement that Tom Hayden wrote as the, uh, uh, the resistance to the war in Vietnam was growing. So uh, I'll put up a link in the chat, but people are welcome to visit my website, and uh, it's free, and you can listen to this interview. And it, it's really sad to me that uh, Alarcon has died and that things are actually worse between the United States and Cuba than they were just uh, five, six years ago. So that's my leadoff point. And David, interrupt as I mention these nations to add your own comments. But next up, Iran. Biden, he campaigned on rejoining the nuclear deal. And it is now impossible because they didn't strike a deal before Russia invaded Ukraine and became a worldwide pariah. And Russia was essential to the negotiation of the nuclear framework with Iran. Now, this is driven, in my view, by uh, Biden's uh, extreme support for the uh, government of the state of Israel, because uh, they were the ones who prodded Trump to pull out of the Iran agreement. They were the ones who punished Obama for engaging in it in the first place. And the Middle East is a much less safe place without that nuclear agreement. And this is also mostly off the American media's radar, that the relationship with Iran, which is critical to the war in Yemen, the conflict uh, between Israel and Palestine, uh, and a number of other regional issues. And so by just allowing that to uh, kind of uh, slip away, uh, we once again put ourselves into a, a much more risky position. Yeah, I wanted to give you an opportunity. Well, I, to I, and the, I have twenty of these. Yeah, and the, the, we should plow through them because I'm fascinated. It's just I was just going to point out the lunacy of Israel fearing a nuclear armed Iran when twenty five percent of Israel proper is uh, Arab, is is Palestinians. Mm -hmm. You drop a bomb on Israel, you're going to end up killing. Palestinians and Arabs, and it's a pretty close proximity to Lebanon and Syria. You, yeah. you, you drop a nuke on Israel, you're going to be nuking uh, your allies. So mm -hmm. go ahead. Next on my list is Venezuela. There was a moment at the beginning of the Russia-Ukraine conflict where we uh, sent an envoy who was given two of these oil company hostages uh, to bring back. And the Maduro government sent clear signals that they were ready to do more to reopen relationships with the United States and to supplant the oil on the world market that has been reduced by uh, the boycott of Russia. And uh, because uh, Obama uh, started the, the false narrative of Maduro uh, having stolen elections to hold on to power. The promotion of Juan Guaido by the Trump administration, a guy who at best was president for 30 days. And, and that's the most positive reading of the Venezuelan constitution. And 
the official policy of the Biden administration is that they recognize Juan Guaido as the legitimate leader of Venezuela. Now, Maduro is not perfect. There's no question about that. But he has been under siege for almost 10 years now. He saw his predecessor, uh, the victim of a coup, Hugo Chavez, during the Bush administration. And so he knows what the U.S. is capable of. And yes, he cracked down. Yes, he has goon squads that uh, uh, preserve his control. But we deal with dictators and authoritarians all over the world. But Venezuela is a special case where we claim that because they're not sufficiently democratic and what <laughs> what leg do we stand on when right. we criticize other countries for that, uh, that, you know, we will uh, sanction them into submission, causing millions of people to flee the country, uh, excess deaths due to food shortages, spiraling inflation. And we don't care about the impact on the average Venezuelan. It's big, you know, uh, geopolitics on a major scale. And, you know, people are the periphery of that. I thought you kind of touched on this because of Ukraine, the war that we're now sidling up to Maduro, right? Well, there was a moment. We haven't seen any further exchanges. And uh, I, I don't know what Blinken is planning. Well, I think he's planning to send uh, American oil instead of Argentinian oil. I think Argentina has one of the largest untapped oil reserves on the planet. I think you mean Venezuela. Venezuela. I said Argentina. I'm sorry. Right. Yes. It's late. But, but also, the, the one thing I'll say is I have not heard of many uh, of any efforts since Biden took office attempting to block Iranian uh, oil supplies coming into Venezuela because the oil uh, extraction systems, the mechanics in Venezuela are shot. And so they can't just turn on the pumps and produce oil or gasoline right now. Uh, so that appears to have shifted or softened a little bit, but that's about all. Next country, we got a lot to plow through. Nicaragua, uh, Daniel Ortega's son, recently reached out to the Biden administration. And I'm one of those people who is kind of on the fence. Ortega has gone in a more authoritarian direction. Uh, he locked up a lot of his political opponents before the last election. He has a rational claim for why he did that, that they were colluding with the United States to try to take him out. But uh, still, it, it, he's become a little less savory for me. At the same time, uh, I don't believe in, you know, gunboat diplomacy. And I believe in nations determining their own uh, futures. So it's just another lost opportunity where Trump policies are largely unchanged. Then uh, I'm, I'm going to lump the whole continent of Africa <laughs> into what you, one Sarah, item here. Are you Sarah Palin? <laughs> right. She thought Africa, the continent, was an entire country. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. So, uh, idiot. 
it's there. There's so many different issues in Africa. I'll just put them into one box here and point out that Tunisia, which was the country where the Arab Spring was first sparked, and it enjoyed uh, a period of mostly democratic rule. And they saw what happened when Obama turned his back on the uh, elected Muslim Brotherhood leader in Egypt. We took out Mubarak. We plugged in uh, the Muslim Brotherhood guy. And trying to think of his name right now. Morrissey. And, or uh, Al-Sisi. That's close. It was Morsi then Al-Sisi. Morsi, M-O-R-S-I. Yeah, right. Yes, Mohammed Morsi. And he ended up jailed and dying in jail. Uh, after they tried him on uh, false charges. So Tunisia today is a one-man rule. Uh, the New York Times reported it on Sunday, and I give them credit for taking a break from all Ukraine coverage to mention this. Uh, but this has happened without any notice uh, in the United States or elsewhere. It's not like I want us to uh, you know, send the 82nd Airborne but this is something that Americans should be aware of and noting that the U.S. is not doing anything to try to preserve the uh, democratic efforts that occurred in Tunisia. Next up, I'll go to North Korea. Uh, it's unchanged. Kim Jong-un is over there firing missiles from land, from sea, doing anything to say, hey, you remember me? <laughs> and, uh, underground, he's doing underground testing right now. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I will withhold some judgment about uh, North Korea because perhaps ignoring them is the best thing to right. do. I agree. But uh, I will just note that that's largely unchanged from uh, Obama and Trump. Then we have Libya, where the Trump policies are unchanged. It was Obama with uh, uh, Samantha Power, Susan Rice, who led the charge to take out Gaddafi. We have a failed state where uh, slavery has been uh, uh, reinstituted and people are fleeing across the Mediterranean uh, in, in very dangerous ways because they're so desperate to get out. Uh, next, uh, I have Taiwan. And this is uh, another story where the Times did cover it in the Sunday paper yesterday to note that the Biden administration is pressing the Taiwanese government to order more American weapons. Right. <laughs> they're not buying the right. They're, they're blocking. The Biden administration is blocking Taiwan from buying certain types of weapons because they feel what they've learned from Ukraine is asymmetrical war works. They've declared, Blinken has declared victory in Ukraine and mm. said asymmetrical war works. We don't want Taiwan to buy our tanks. We want Taiwan to buy our shoulder held javelin missiles because that's how we won in Ukraine. Uh, mission accomplished, a little premature, isn't it? Yes, yes, indeed. And this is there is, I think, some similarity between the long term picture for Taiwan and Beijing, where the U.S. is prepared to let Taiwan uh, provide the cannon fodder uh, for a proxy war with China, or as they like to say, uh, you know, 
the communist, red communist China, uh, the CCP. So that's uh, just another example. They really uh, are like Yemen. his car salesman, Blinken. He is a former lobbyist for Boeing. And he's saying to the president of Taiwan, you, you like this tank, but let me show you what would really look great on you that this would this is what you need this is what everybody's ordering for 2023 it, they really are they're dictating the terms of what arms sales they'll allow yep i touched on yemen policy is generally unchanged just more death and famine and uh, the united states once again uh, ignores the role it plays in providing intelligence for the Saudis, resupplying the Saudis with cluster bombs and uh, other uh, dangerous munitions as they continue to pummel their neighboring country. With the Saudis, uh, Biden's not holding their hands or doing that glow right. thing that Trump did. The orgasmatron from Sleeper, I think it was what it was. <laughs> uh, but... You know, we're we're not doing anything to uh, limit their role. We also aren't getting any extra oil out of them, uh, which would be the logical payoff for uh, suborning the uh, the way they operate there in the House of Saud. Ja okay, but Jared, up. but Jared has uh, Saudi Arabia making love to Israel, right? Well, and financing his family debt. Right. Uh, and and giving him money for a, a new private equity fund where all of the advisors to KSM, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, uh, the de facto ruler there, said, no, 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 no. And KSM said, we're doing it. Jared is my brother. They're betting uh, that they're betting that Cl uh, Clinton, uh, what's his name? Trump. They're sucking up to Jared mm -hmm. in the hopes that Trump gets elected in 2024. If he doesn't get elected in 2024, Jared Kushner, who just got two billion dollars from Saudi Arabia, should not check into the Turkish embassy <laughs> or the Saudi embassy in Turkey. I, I think there's some bone Bone, bone, uh, saws. <laughs> bone saws with Jared Kushner's name on it uh, <laughs> if Trump doesn't get reelected. All right. Next, I'll move to our part of the world, uh, Mexico. We have not changed uh, our approach to foisting them with responsibility for migrants who are trying to get to the United States. The only real change is the struggle over Title 42. And that is a hot mess with moderate or conservative Democrats trying to get Biden not to go through with his plan to uh, repudiate Title 42 as a way to prevent asylum seekers from reaching uh, uh, land in the United States. Then we have Honduras, Guatemala and El Salvador. This is the triangle of nations that produce the most migrants headed for the United States. And I can lump them together because we sent a child of immigrants named Kamala Harris to tell the people in that part of the world, don't come to the United States. And in Honduras in particular, uh, Hillary Clinton's stooge, 
uh, Hernandez and his brother. Um, the brother has been convicted. The former president is now facing charges of. Uh, they came to uh, the United States. Yes, they came. I'm well, not quite, not quite as immigrants. <laughs> They're suspects. Uh, but nobody talks about in the context of uh, President Hernandez being indicted in the United States that he was handpicked by Hillary Clinton to replace Zelaya, who was the freely elected president of Honduras. And so our meddling in this region uh, never is brought to our attention as the source of the blowback of the migrants who are such such a, an irritant, particularly to right-wingers in this country. And we've learned that Honduras is run by gangsters, that the, the head of their FBI was brought to America because he's a drug dealer. The president's brother is a drug dealer. The president is a drug dealer. What do you think the people of Honduras are escaping from? They are escaping from gangs that have infiltrated their government. If that's not political asylum, what is that? And David, those gangs, including MS-13, were Hecho in Los Angeles. Right. <laughs> the MS-13 was created in Los Angeles, and we deported uh, many of their killers to their ethnic homelands where most of them have never lived. And uh, so they didn't have, uh, you know, natural connections to find a job and they returned to gang activities. So, uh, you know, this is a, a very sorry picture. Uh, this extends to uh, Brazil where, you know, we're tolerating the Bolsonaro government and we have made no move to uh, basically admit that we took out the uh, government of Dilma Rousseff, that we helped put Lula da Silva in prison. He is now running against Bolsonaro, and our media owes us coverage of that race. But because Lula da Silva is considered a leftist, well, <laughs> we're not going to give him any ink or any pixels in American corporate media. In Bolivia... Or the millions of people he lifted out of poverty. Exactly. Well, that doesn't matter. People don't matter, just like we said a little earlier. Right. Uh, in Bolivia, we forced out uh, uh, Evo Morales. There was a uh, right-wing and corporate-backed coup that uh, lasted a little while. And we have done nothing to help that country right its ship. Uh, and we continue to just hope that the leftists uh, can be run out by the corporate right-wingers. In Hong Kong, we've moved to radio silence. Uh, I did suspect that we had covert operations running there uh, before the crackdown from Beijing. Uh, but so this is just another case of uh, maintaining the status quo from the Trump administration. We talked at length about France. The one thing I will add is that Biden and, and Blinken screwed Macron uh, and McKinsey uh, by doing that nuclear deal with Australia. And uh, that's been kind of smoothed over because of Ukraine and the French election. Uh, but it was a very serious blunder for which they paid no price. 
And my final uh, nation on the list is Afghanistan. And I don't think I need to offer much detail about the bungled exit and the loose ends that uh, still remain there. So my summation here is that uh, the Biden administration got a honeymoon in the first year. They got a pass from the left because they were promoting Bernie's agenda until Joe Manchin stopped it. And now they are relying only on the war in Ukraine and the Supreme Court's uh, awful decision that we expect to uh, overturn Roe versus Wade to uh, give Democrats something to run on uh, this year. And it's not going to uh, uh, pan out, at least at, at this stage. And uh, so the combination of domestic failures and foreign policy failures leave me uh, with an opinion of the Biden administration that keeps getting lower, David. So low, you can actually smell Donald Rumsfeld's flesh smoldering in hell. That's how low it's gotten. Well, great job. This is what this show is about. I, I thank you for, for that. Great, great job. Uh, just perfect. Uh, uh, thank you, David. Thank you. Uh, I, I'm trying to curb my enthusiasm, but that was a, a great lesson. Thank you so much. Peter B. Collins, Bay Area Radio Hall of Famer. Go to peterbcollins.com for the aforementioned treasure trove of interviews, including his conversation with the great Tom Hayden. We, we have a uh, candidate on who's running for state assembly in California. And I was going to bring up Tom Hayden, the, the, a miracle of democracy. Tom Hayden, I believe, was first an state assemblyman from Santa Monica, then state senator. From San That's correct. And he ran for governor in uh, 92, I think it was, or 93. A miracle of democracy. One of the Chicago yeah. Seven, uh, leader of the SDS, went to North Vietnam with Jane, I believe. Yes, he while, did. While she sat on a tank and not only lived to talk about it, but got elected to California State Senate and Assembly. And let me mention one more thing that's little known about Tom Hayden. When he was married to Jane Fonda, they took the money that she earned from her workout videos that were extremely popular in the 1980s. They pumped $15 million into a nonprofit called Americans for Non-Smokers Rights. And it led to the tobacco laws across the country that banned smoking in airplanes and then public places, including restaurants and bars. Uh, and they don't get credit for it, and they certainly deserve it, because they, they really caused America to give up its ashtrays, at least to a great extent. Well, we have uh, somebody in our virtual studio audience who raised their hand and we also have professor marianne cummings let's if you don't mind let's see if kelly in nebraska wants to say something okay i 
asked Kelly to unmute. Joining us is Professor Marianne Cummings, particle physicist. Where are you? There you are. Particle physicist, as well as Parks Commissioner, Aurora, Illinois, and Nina Turner supporter still, even though it's been a week ago. You wanted to respond to anything uh, that Peter said? Well, only to say that I'm, I, are we really surprised that Biden hasn't significantly reversed any of our foreign policy from Trump and for that matter from Obama or for that matter from you know President Cheney? I mean, I think the only problem the deep, the military industrial complex had with Trump was that, you know, he was kind of a loose cannon and not a reliable, you know, purveyor of what they want to do. So. Nobody trusted him to lead no. us into a war. You need somebody we can That's trust right. to lead and us I into And I still a war. shake my head over, you know, all the praise lavished on Trump when he bombed Syria back in 2017 based on what reliable sources have said were false were false information concerning gas attacks, chemical weapons attacks. Uh and, you know, even Dick Durbin, liberal, I think second in command in the Senate for the Democrats, you know, was crazy. Like, Trump became president today. And, like, it was sickening. I mean, I thought I'm pretty steeled up for you know, the nonsense coming out of uh, uh, politicians. But that was... Well, Marianne, that, that was the moment when we developed a deep devotion for the Kurds, who we've used and abused and... Uh, oh, called yeah. called the Syrian Free Army. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the problem with Syria. You know, I remember as a kid trying to understand Lebanon, and you know, being like thirteen or fourteen, it's natural like to have good guys bad. Who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? Unfortunately, in Lebanon, there were several factions, and they were often oftentimes. Uh, collaborating and then breaking apart, and it wasn't ever clear which side was we were supposed to to support. I think something similar in Syria. Well, you know, we just have, and and our press is keeping us infantilized about foreign policy. I mean, the narratives have to be very simple. It's a, we don't get news; we get like twenty four seven propaganda. Mm-hmm. As I said, I think I mentioned before. One of the things that came out of the what was it the church hearings back in the seventies was that the CIA had secret programs to like uh, put their people in into deep into uh, journalistic organizations. Well, MSNBC and, and CNN just like hires these people to to spew more propaganda, basically being little more than you know lobbyists for Raytheon and and. Uh, and all other defense companies. I mean, it's just, it's just stunning. And, and how long will they wait before they put Jen Psaki on in prime time? It's clear okay. she's going from the White House to MSNBC. Rachel is now only working one night a week, and they're really hurting. And so this is going to cement the kind of fascistic uh, government media connection that I was talking with David about last week. Yeah, speaking of which, uh, I thought, did, did you mention last week that you would try to get Joe Luria on, on the show from Conservative News? Yes, and okay. Joe has agreed to come on next week. He is okay. on a plane to Slovenia uh, as we speak, where oh. he is giving a talk about Julian Assange to a group of journalists. 
so he was hoping to be with us tonight, but he's now committed to next week. And by the way, Consortium News had its PayPal account shut down. They then received a notice that it was uh, reopened. And then they received a notice that the second notice was sent in error. So we're back to square one. They did get their $10,000 out of the account, but they are now uh, no longer permitted by PayPal to use PayPal to collect money from uh, readers. That's stunning. It is stunning. It's stunning. I was going through it especially uh, harder since he was coming on. And I'm thinking, what what is in here that that's even remotely? Uh, well, well, independent journalists, that's what's going on. And remember, they were I think they were the only American based uh, organization that was allowed into the courtroom last year for Assange's trial. For whose trial? So they were the Assange's? only. Uh, Julian Assange's uh, trial last year in in Britain that was you know actually hearing for extradition and uh, you know uh, they were it, it was just stunning to me how like media silence the radio silence of journalists even lefty journalists here in this country is stunning they just you're just not allowed to talk about Julian Assange that's considered I mean any look. You know, it's hard to, like, tell who's telling the truth. And, and truth is multifaceted because you want to have a fact and you want to see if it, you've got, we all have our narratives and we want to see if this fact fits or not. The, the, uh, the benefit of having all sides, even if you know a lot of the sides are full of crap, is that there are always another side to a story or a different angle or something. And so I thought the benefit of Air America and I saw friends of mine who were Republicans who ended up listening to Randy Rhodes because she was kind of a comedian and she could, you know, mm-hmm. she was irreverent. Uh, they actually changed. And it wasn't because they agreed with her on every issue, but the idea that there was another side to an issue. That's what is being completely shut down. And so now people can't tell. I mean, they, they there, there's no... Uh, critical thinking about, hey, this is the government that lied us into every war in my lifetime. And they haven't changed. Most of the principal characters have not changed. They're still placed. They should have, like, they should have fired all kinds of people. People should have resigned in shame over their coverage, even so-called lefty uh, journalists, over the coverage of the read-up to the Iraq war. It was just... You know, nobody ever, nobody paid the price for that. A lot of people paid the price for telling the truth, like Chris Hedges, who was fired from the New York Times because he was uh, actually criticizing the New York Times coverage. But, you know, it's like now there is such a, a, there's such a move to get everybody like on the same page and with the same narrative. It's, it actually is, that is spooky to me. You know what I've noticed, Peter B. Collins, speaking to what Professor Marianne just said, I'm a Kennedy assassination buff. If I have trouble sleeping, I'll read about the Kennedy assassination. Now, I don't want to argue the Kennedy assassination, but there was a conspiracy. There's no question. Yes, there was. You know, anybody who thinks there wasn't a conspiracy, even if Oswald 
was the lone gunman, which he wasn't. That was a conspiracy. It's just and everybody knew it was a conspiracy. And I don't want to discuss it. That was a conspiracy between the mafia and the CIA, period. The number of reporters who were in Dallas on that day who went on to become network stars is phenomenal. Peter Jennings was there. Dan Rather was there. Robert McNeil, who started the PBS NewsHour, was there. The list goes on and on of the journalists who witnessed the Kennedy assassination and didn't, who stared into the abyss and blinked. They were willing to blink. And so they were rewarded with top network jobs. So, Professor Marianne Cummings, that speaks to what you're talking about. Yeah, um, people, and I don't know if their motivations were malevolent or not, probably not. It was just that, um, and if you read, it, actually, if you read the summary of the Warren Commission, they did not have definitive, uh, they did not come to definitive I, I want to correct they, something. Peter Jennings was not. Uh, he's Canadian. Yeah, he wasn't in, in Dallas that day. I got that wrong. I apologize. But Kay, Kay Bailey, I think, was a cub reporter. Jim Lara, Robert McNeil were both. Remember the McNeil Lara report, the PBS? No, they were both there. Bob Schieffer was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought Peter Jennings was there. Dan Rather was there. Uh there was a rumor that Peter Jennings was there. I got that wrong. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I mean, that's uh, it was, I was going to say that uh, they even even the Warren report said that for the benefit of the country, they came down on the side of the lone gunman theory. I mean, they kind of admitted that it was just um, the, the idea that, you know, there could be any malfeasance in, in our government was something that. Uh, people just deemed that wasn't that was inappropriate for people to even consider and think about at the time. So, well, in defense of LBJ, the president oh, who took over, <laughs> he called up J. Edgar Hoover and said, I don't want you finding any evidence that the Soviet Union was behind this assassination, because the last thing we need is a nuclear war over the assassination of Jack Kennedy. And yeah, I wonder what happened recently at that point huh, to make him concerned about that. Well, he was president. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I mean, the Cuban Missile Crisis was a year before, right? Yeah. And that was, and people were kind of stunned how quickly that unraveled. They thought that there was, you know, there was kind of an equilibrium between they had a more, quote, moderate government in, in the in the Soviet Union and that, you know, mutually assured destruction was going to see to it that uh, nothing would spiral out of control and then a situation started spiraling out of control. And, and to, to, to LBJ's credit, if we, <laughs> we're not going to war over one brain, getting misty. Yeah, well, look, you know, LBJ knew about power, which in many 
which is probably why he could be a real son of a bitch and many people didn't like him and, you know, morally. Yeah, I mean, I'd say anybody that gets to the head of a country that has significant power in the world is at best a sociopath on some level. And, uh, you know, you, you sort of have to be. You know, it's like, it's like when uh, Scott Ritter used to talk about war in his training. He said, you know, if you did the kind of things you did and were thinking of your enemy as somebody that had wives and kids and grandmas and stuff like that, you would literally go insane, which is why you have to kind of, you know, compartmentalize all that when you go into battle. And I think the same is true for people in power. Uh, the rest of us, I mean, they do respond. Even tyrants respond to popular will because there's not a single tyrant that has ever lived whose head, figuratively speaking, couldn't be on a pike or really shot or taken down because that happened all the time. Because, you know, suddenly the wind shifts, the army decides they're going to support, you know, partisans of that guy rather than you, and so on and so forth. So it's, uh, you know, that's... I, I'm. I'm kind of coming off of a rather uh, interesting uh, interesting board meeting in the Park District. Park District decided, and I didn't even get word of this until, you know, somebody pointed it out in the paper. Uh, they decided to shut down one of our two water parks. Not a big deal, right, on, on the scheme of things, except that because we don't, we are lacking lifeguards. It's hard to hire people right now. It still is. We're still coming out of covid and uh, I was concerned. I said, well, why is it always you, you chose the water park on the east side, which services the poor areas, areas more accessible to the more modest income places. But you kept the, the place that's in the gentrified west of Aurora opened. I think that's going to be a problem. Well, people showed up today at the board, which is usually usually a very non-eventful type of thing. And people showed up and spoke so eloquently that now my my executive director has a headache. You know, he's got, ah, I got to deal with this now. I said, yeah, you had a solution that was technical. And yes, it's financially and economically, it makes sense. But this kind of thing exposes the structural problem that, you know, with the way things are structurally stacked against the poor and the needy. It's like... Yes, of course, it will always make sense for things to stay open, you know, on the richer side of town rather than the poorer side of town. So now we've now we're kind of have to go back. And I say this because if and I told the people afterwards, I said, you know, if you guys hadn't shown up, I expressed some concern about this. But if you hadn't shown up to that board meeting, you know, this would have just been a done deal. And uh, they don't want us, so it's a very lowly park district, you know, the lowest form of government, but still very relevant to people who live here. The same thing can be said, well, all the way up to the top, if we're not showing up and protesting, at least people now are protesting this uh, possible overturn of Roe v. Wade. That actually woke some liberals up, finally. They're not protesting a, a perpetual war. And now we hear from erstwhile darlings of the Democratic Party, like Bill Kristol, 
William Crystal that, well, well, it's just uncivil to like protest in front of somebody's house, right? right? You know? Yeah, I saw that. No, we should always protest where no, we can never be heard and we're not disrupting anything. It's like, you should have a strike where, you know, your work isn't ever needed. You know, you, you, you should never do anything that disrupts anything. That's kind of the messaging we're getting from our leaders, even on the, the left and the Democratic Party. So, and, Marianne, uh, Marianne yes. can I just come back to the swimming pool or the, the water park for a second? Yeah. Why can't they, if there's limited staffing, why don't they do even and odd days where the lifeguards well, report are, these, to the poor? Are, yeah, these are expensive places, uh, you know, to to maintain. I mean, you open the, the, and these are actually but, you know we might have to do something like that because they were explaining to when when one of our crew was explaining to them that well you know we lose money off of this and both we run these with the cities but we think the loss is worth it and i'm going wait a minute we lose money off of this and it's benefiting the wealthier people on the west side we're still losing money and then the poor people get no benefits uh guys i think you're making their argument <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, we're going to do something like that. Also, uh, we're going to start No, You know, as I said, my executive directors now had a bad evening because now he's got to like this problem is a problem. So you have a shortage of, of lifeguards. Yes, there, that's a real problem. Now, is corn but, pop is corn pop causing trouble? Oh, I don't know. But maybe we haven't gotten as somebody one of the. Uh, Oh, my God. One of our crew. Maybe and do we need Joe Biden was, to go in there and straighten that. We, corn we have pop? somebody who could have been Joe Biden. We have somebody on our board. Anyway, he's talking to these women afterwards saying, well, you know, the reason why we don't have enough lifeguards is kids don't, especially on the east side, don't want to work. And a bunch of us like you just said that. I was half expecting a corn pop like statement to come out of his mouth next. And the the people there were, you know, trying to reason with him. And he says, well, we've had job fairs and, and we've tried to recruit. And then they looked at the list and they said, you didn't recruit until April 28th on the east side. Well, uh, yeah, that that was the first time we've had any recruiting done here. So anyway, love it. I love it when people get involved as i said uh you know it i would not have been able to push this much further if there hadn't been any you know uh, reaction from the public and because these gals showed up that's made my job a lot easier to you know push back on this but yes and and peter there's also you know i didn't realize until a few years ago that the east uh east side high school in aurora used to have a swimming pool and 15 years ago, they filled it in. So kids aren't learning how to swim. Well, the schools open in some insane time in the middle of summer, like the second or third week of August. I said, maybe these water parks, which have large pools for swim lessons, maybe you can front load the PE schedule in these schools with, you know, swimming mm-hmm. and water safety and make lifeguard training an option for kids who want to earn extra credit, you know, Oh, yeah, they don't seem interested. I said, I don't care if they're interested. Your job, this is my executive director, is to get them interested. Right. And see, but that's the thing. Um, politics is always the sum of all forces. <laughs> you know, and, if, and if you stop pushing 
like, you know, I was kind of stunned when we were told by the squad that, well, you know, you shouldn't be pushing on us. We know what to do. We're doing all kinds of stuff. And I'm like, no, no, I know what you're hearing inside the halls of Congress. You need to have people. You need to have that pressure from the outside because, you know, at least the right listens to their base, which is bat crap crazy, but they listen to them. And, you know, we, we, we were always told by the left, we were told this by Obama, like, don't worry, I've got that. Obama had an army of people thinking that this was going to be a transformative president. His presidency was going to be transformative. And, you know, he just said, nope, I've got it. And, uh, yeah, I guess being what he actually was sent there to do by his donors, uh, his whole army of people who got him elected weren't really necessary. As a matter of fact, it would have been a, an extreme deterrent, as it turned out. But, you know. Well, uh, we had Professor Ivan Chernovsky on Thursday's show. I didn't know that you had him on. And I I had, I, I went back and, you know, looked, listened to the earlier podcast and went, wait a minute, this is really familiar. And I remember because of an article from Jacobin, and I followed links and I got to his, I think he was quoted in that Jacobin area uh, article. It was concerning about the whitewashing of the Nazi past in, in Ukraine. I was, and, I, was I was going to, I wanted to say something and I wanted to. So yeah. on, on this show, I have thought back the Putin narrative of denazifying Ukraine. And I've gotten uh, complaints about uh, amplifying voices of people who insist that Ukraine is overrun by Nazis. I have taken a very strong position, as you know, that it is not. Uh, no. Ivan. But it's political. It's a lot of its political machinery is heavily influenced. Ivan Chernovsky, who's probably the biggest expert we'll ever have on the show about Ukraine. Yeah. Oh, he's, he yeah, he's he said everything that I wanted to hear. He said that he 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 thinks Biden could have prevented the invasion, that he's Ukrainian, that he doesn't want Putin inside of Ukraine, but that uh, that the Biden administration could have offered some olive branches like saying no NATO. Uh, and that he said Zelensky uh, escalated in the lead up. He was shelling the the Donbass yeah. region when Biden should have told him to to cool it down. He said everything that I would agree with. However, he did say that there are right-wing Nazis who have gained a lot of power inside Ukraine. And this, I yeah. think, is a lesson in what journalism should be. I like oh, to believe that there are no Nazis in Ukraine, but when you speak to a leading Ukrainian expert who says there are, you have to pause and think, OK, I've, I've fought this 
and I'm still fighting it, but uh, he did say that. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, well if I may, uh, one, one of yeah. my issues is that we are supposed to simply accept the claim of mostly our media, but also our government, that uh, there is no issue with Nazis, neo-Nazis in Ukraine. And because, look, Zelensky's Jewish. End of story. They want to cut it off right there. It's much more complicated than that. And there has been a strain of neo-Nazis that surfaced in Maidan in 2014. We denied it then. And we continue to uh, say that if you argue that or even mention it, that you were out of line. You were out of consensus. I also think and, he said it was a coup that Yanukovych leaving office and being replaced by Poroshenko. That was a, a, a coup that was orchestrated by the West, something that I have fought certain people on. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I'm glad to hear that. I didn't get to hear the interview, and I'll go back and uh, yeah. catch up with it. I uh, have twice interviewed Serhii Ploki, who is a Ukrainian uh, uh, national who teaches at Harvard in the history department. And he wrote this book about Chernobyl with the, the analysis that it helped uh, bring down the Soviet Union because they couldn't contain the truth about the radioactivity. Uh, and, and that's worth arguing about, but he's, he's a bright and interesting man. And during that interview, I asked him specifically, didn't Victoria Nuland coordinate U.S. efforts to bring down the Yanukovych government? And yes. he wouldn't buy it. He said, oh, no, no. He said, I think she took some cookies out to the people in the square. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I just say, OK, uh, Professor, <laughs> you know, you're now an American and you buy the American point of view. Uh, but to hear this professor uh, offer that, I think, is quite refreshing. By the way, I, I just want to make sure uh, it's late in the show. I'm a little foggy. So I'm pretty sure he said that it was a. Uh, it was a Western coup. He's also yeah. studied the sniping that went on. And I am going to hold off on that. Is, does anybody in the chat room in the virtual studio audience remember what he said about the people who were killed along? Uh, go ahead, Professor Marianne. Well, he said that people have come forward and admitted it. Uh, I think uh, about a month ago, I mentioned a, a foreign policy uh, magazine article where they had just released one of the site snipers. Now, they knew at the time that the snipers, that they were able to determine that the gunshots came from a building that was held by the protesters. But, you know, uh, and, and it's sort of corroborating evidence. I mean, the C-14 guys are now openly had openly bragged about, you know, being responsible for really turning that into a violent coup and forcing the, uh, the government out. And, and, and they, I think one of them famously said, hey, if it hadn't been for us, this would have been just another gay pride parade, meaning it would have just been about a performative protest and nothing happened. So these guys are more than happy to take credit for it. Um, but 
you know, the the point is, it, you know, I want to put something into the a, a link into the chat. It's a real. It, it's really sad that Stephen Cohen isn't, you know, is no longer alive because I. He had a, a YouTube interview with, um, I think I think what I put up was the one with uh, Amy Goodman, um, Free Speech TV. But um, he just went through the whole, you know, the whole lead up. He was speaking in early 2014, and he was speaking about the the, the war that had just broke out, the civil war in the east and eastern Ukraine. And he was talking about the lead up to that, and he and he even said, no things. This didn't begin with that coup. This began earlier past year when the EU was making kind of non-negotiable demands of Yanukovych that if he makes deals with them, he is absolutely not to make any deals with Russia. Which he said, this is insane. I mean, this is a country, it's one state, but there's two, possibly three, he said, different countries. You have to straddle the interests of groups of people who are very divergent in their culture and their historical, uh, you know, traditions and their language. And you're now giving an ultimatum that this, that a president of this country has to choose one side or the other. And he says, this is crazy. This is like, so, you know, if we fast forward to the day, to this day, the U.S. could still end this war right now. But um, what they would have to do is assure that Zelensky go back to the negotiate table and ensure that his safety, because now, as I said, I think about a month ago, I was quoting from the Kiev Post. I think at the time I said it was from 2021. It was actually from 2019. There was a date up that had confused me, but it was when Zelensky was trying to... Uh, maintain a campaign promise of implementing the Minsk supports. And he was having that confrontation with, uh, with uh, people associated with the Apsov Battalion. And even the Kiev Post at that time were posting publicly stated statements from the Azov Battalion leader and from members of the parliament that if he does that, if he goes too soft on Russia, you know, don't come out here. You know, we'll be gunning for you. I mean, this is like you're opening, openly uh, uh, threatening the president of your country with debt. That's the problem. Zelensky might get assassinated now. And I, I was going to bring up a, an article. It was, in the, uh, it was in the Times of Israel last fall. Apparently, there was this guy Dennis Kirov, who was a um, he was one of the negotiators, one of the Minsk negotiators, and he was killed. Now, the official government statement was that oh, he died trying to serve his country. But then there was a statement from the Interior Ministry and the uh, and the commander linked with Azov that we will that we that they killed him and that he was betraying his country because he was negotiating with the Russians. There are, you know, you've got these people who in no way, and there are now some reports, I want to get some more background on this, but there are, there have been reports reported in, in the foreign press in the Times of Israel and others, not so much here, that mayors have been kidnapped for collaborating with Russia. And when you drill down, it's like they've been talking with Russians about humanitarian corridors, which the 
Azov Battalion guys and other. I mean, Azov Battalion is a significant militia, but it's only one of about 30 of these militias that were allowed to be integrated into the national security forces. So if you've got, you know, mayors or people on the Ukrainian side who at least want to get their people out of possible harm's way, they face death threats or kidnapping. So this is the problem. Now, the U.S. could do something about this. Like if Biden or somebody who can speak could get on the phone and ensure that you know, the safety of Zelensky and his government, because we're, you know, we've, we've been arming, we've been training these, these guys, these battalions for several years. Um, and we really pretty much call the shots with NATO and every place else. We could, we could get everybody back to the negotiating table. But, you know, uh, I, I, a certain person in the chat was calling me a conspiracy theorist because I said, hey, you know, the U.S. seems to want this war about a month or so ago. Well, you know, it's now out in the open. <laughs> Even the, uh, the secretary, our secretary of defense says now the uh, now uh, the plan is to just basically weaken Russia. Hey, even Thomas Friedman, Thomas Friedman wrote over the weekend that he's worried this thing is going to spiral out of control. Well, I I just I just want to add one more comment and I'll uh, leave the forum here. But we do have to wrap it up. The the United States is trapped by the false narratives that we have been employing about Ukraine going back to 2014, if not before. And so we have to live with the uh, the false stories, uh, which include, you know, that Yanukovych was pro-Russia. We were pounding the guy to, you know, align with Europe and NATO and Paul Manafort, who nobody has any love for but he was sucking big money out of yanukovych advising him to tilt toward europe and not moscow but that is now played as manafort was advising yanukovych to align with russia and so the the crazy quilt of the web that we have weaved (laughs) is now uh suffocating us yeah I think that's true. And, and you know, back two years ago, I thought, I mean, it was kind of an amusing thing, but the whole Russiagate stuff had very, um, I think it had very corrosive effect on the left. Suddenly Amen. They turned the left against journalists like Julian Assange. Suddenly whistleblowers were, you know, like the target. Suddenly it's like we had a new Cold War and anybody that, you know, kind of deviated from that narrative was somehow a Putin puppet or this or that. I mean, I thought this is crazy. I mean, we used to make fun of people who talked talk that way in the 80s when the Soviet Union was a much more serious threat. <laughs> it's just like, it, it's just a, a complete rotation. Hillary Clinton political- said she'd like to assassinate Julian Assange. Well, yeah, she said that about 10 or 15. Yeah, she said it when she was still Secretary of State. Why can't we just assassinate this guy or drone him? I think her quote was, why can't we just drone this guy? Yeah. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah, fun times. Um, But Esper, Defense Secretary Esper, uh, gets headlines because Trump told him he wanted to uh, bomb Mexico. And we have to be... Anyway, we, 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 we do have to wrap it up. Let's get your final thought, Professor Marianne. 
No, I think that, um, you know, the left, I mean, people really have to step back and, you know, try to understand what they're actually saying. Um, you know, somebody has got to spe- start speaking. Somebody on the left, and I'm talking the progressives, has got to start walking back or at least speaking out against this perpetual war narrative. I think uh, Peter's absolutely right. We are caught in the web of our own narrative now. We've whipped up a bunch of Democrats into Russia-hating fury. And by the way, I wanted to say one more thing about, um, you know, the, the Nazi situation. You know, the country isn't run by Nazis, but... You know, I'm, I'm reading a his. I, I'm reading a history of uh, the end of the Soviet Union um, by a Russian who's now American, and it's pretty. You know, maybe Putin is very being very cynical, but the whole Nazi thing means a lot, as this author was saying. You know, I'm 60 years old. Hardly anybody my age knew both grandfathers because they died in the war. Everybody's grandfather died in the war. It was like 27 to 32 million people, who, whatever it was. So the 9th of May, which is today here, is was Liberation Day, and that's a big thing. And so the uh, people in the far eastern provinces in the, in the Donbass area have been shelled by militia, by Ukrainian forces that are largely there comprised of militias that have very anti-Russian rhetoric, that have very anti-Russian, and, you know, um, we could talk about this later, but on route to looking up Zycon B, whatever, you know, the, uh, Zyklon, yeah. the, the gas chamber gas that uh, Arizona wants to use in its death chamber, uh, the Holocaust Museum, Museum had, on its website has an excellent you know, article about how the Russians were treated, the Russian POWs. They experimented on Russian POWs to get the right gas that would kill people, you know, efficiently. And uh, their own numbers off of that site, over 3 million Russian POWs starved to death, outright killed, tortured, over 3 million. So, yeah, we don't have this feeling, but the Russians do. And whether or not Putin is being completely cynical or not, he is playing into a very real set of feelings in Russia about Nazis. Right. So anyway, that's what I want to say. Thank you, Professor Mary. Thank you for having that professor on. I mean, that was very, very impressive. Yeah. Uh, Bill Greenberg uh, turned us on to him. Oh, he's still, still around. Yeah. Wow. Uh, thank you, Bill Greenberg. Thank you, Professor Marianne Cummings. Thank you. Peter B. Collins, and we're going to be joined by Texas Tom Weber momentarily. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Office hours every Friday night, every Friday night starting at 8 p.m. Go to my website, which is back up. Sign up. If you'd like to join us in our virtual studio audience, you can sign up to attend a live taping while you're over there. Sign up for my newsletter and I'm back to answering emails and sending out thank you notes. So there's that. We will be back with Texas Tom Weber. But here's a song that is quickly becoming uh, very popular. Turtle 
Professor Mike Steinel.
Professor Mike Steinell, Turtle. Well, joining us in Wisconsin, I believe, is Texas Tom Weber. Well, hello, David. How are you doing tonight? Very good. For good. Uh, you were served as a Roman Catholic teacher of theology, I believe, at mm -hmm. a high school in Milwaukee. Correct. Yeah. For 18 years, 19 years, if you count the other one that I served at. And then uh, before that, I was involved in uh, uh, parish ministry. And you were director of youth ministry since 2011. Texas Tom has been enjoying life as a professional freelance artist. He and his wife, Barb, are singer songwriters and perform both as a duo and with their folk rock Americana band called Fair Weber. Great name. Mm -hmm. You can catch their weekly live stream performances every Tuesday evening on Facebook. And Tom hosts two weekly Zoom groups. One is called Spirituality and Activism. And the other is a virtual artist community called Art Attack. It's a great name and shares his wisdom with us at office hours every Friday. And welcome back. And we want to tell people how well, to. By the way, I have to give I have to give credit where credit is due there. That came from our dear from our dear punster, uh, John Hayes, right there. Yes, He's it a, is a great name, but yes. I had to take him up on that one. So yes. it's a great idea. And he's he's one of our members. Yes. So anyway, thank you for having me on. Well, let, let's talk about peace talks, because one of the things you teach all the time at office hours is nonviolence, uh, passive mm -hmm. resistance, something that I like to think I cling to. I, I like to think that violence solves nothing and that if you are spending more than the entire world combined on weapons like America is, you don't need to go to war. If you can destroy Russia, which I, I like to think we can. I pay my taxes. I like to think we could destroy Russia, especially with NATO on our side. I think the first thing you do is you drag Vladimir Putin to the negotiating table. I seem to be wrong. You seem to be wrong on that. I, uh, here in America, I, 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 I don't see too many people saying, you know, maybe instead of weapons, we should be giving Ukraine food and medicine and getting Putin to uh, pull out through negotiation. Well, then, uh, in my opinion, which is not learned, but you know, I think we talked about this early, early on before the whole war was in progress. And we're talking about this. And, and I, my contention then, and my contention is still now, you know, um, there was a history that preceded uh, all of this that involved both uh, history of uh, Russia along with all of the Eastern Bloc states. And you had uh, treaties that uh, from 2014 and 2015, what were they called? The Minsky Treaty? 
treaties, if I recall correctly, Minsk Accords, um, that we have to pay attention to that uh, we do, you know, we have to take into account that uh, America and NATO have been at the door as a threat to Russia, you know, and have been really in many ways kind of driving us to this war, which doesn't in and of itself, everything, uh, all that being said, it does not excuse uh, what has happened, what's transpired in Ukraine. But it does help us to understand the history behind it. And I offered uh, the unlearned idea, and I don't think I'm the only one, that, uh, you know, the areas in Ukraine that were in contention, most contention, I think should have probably been ceded to Russia through negotiation with an, with an, uh, an opportunity for those people who are interested in living in alliance with Russia can live there, and those who have no interest in that can exit. And uh, then I think that you would cut the fundamental premise, or uh, that at least stated premise, uh, from Russia. The, the whole neo, you know, whole Nazi thing aside, which was obviously just a, that was a ruse for going in. But I think that 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 is a legitimate uh, concern, and there are you know Ukrainians, as I understand it, who do have. Uh, real affection and ties to Russia. So why not give that? But at the same time, we have to take into account the the real threat that NATO, uh, the United States poses there. And as you were saying right before this, uh, we're using this as a proxy war in order to try to uh, take down uh, Putin and through try to destabilize Russia. And that has to be acknowledged. We, we can't have that. So I, I don't know that I have a whole lot to add in that area. It, I, I feel like I'm out of my league. Right. You've got people who are much smarter about these kinds of things I than myself. I don't know about that. And then you have countries like Finland, uh, Sweden, uh, Switzerland, we're wanting to join. Yeah. Switzerland. Uh, I even think Austria. I think Austria is spooked enough that they want to join NATO. Yeah. They understand Russia better than I do. Uh, but again, uh, how do you bring nations to the table? We have a U.N. that's supposed to mitigate uh, the ravages of war, but they've been usurped by NATO. seems like America spends more time focusing on NATO than it does the United Nations. Well, I mean, I have to keep I, I have to try to keep a foot in the real world because I don't want to be here. I, I would get rid of nation states, to be quite honest. I don't believe <laughs> this stuff personally but uh you know in reality we need to really 
be working to try to beef up the authority uh, and whatever kind of, uh, I don't know what needs to be done in order to undergird the authority of uh, the United Nations so that it becomes the, the real place for negotiation in the world. Uh, and, you know, the United States has fought that tooth and nail uh, every step of the way. We, we don't really value uh, the United Nations, except to the degree to which we can manipulate it in order to uh, uh, line our own pockets in the world, basically. Right. Peace, so I, I do, do, peace, could, do, peace yeah. talk, do peace talks work? And how would you see these peace talks going? How do you envision peace talks in general? Well, first of all, just a, a fundamental principle when you're going to be dealing with uh, people outside of your own sphere, uh, whether you're talking about other nations, whether you're talking about people outside of your culture, your ethnic group, it doesn't matter. Where, however, you have divisions between people. You have to go to the table with the... Uh, uh, fundamental view that you do not have uh, a perfect understanding of reality and truth yourself, that even your worst enemy brings to the table uh, truth or truths that you need to hear. Uh, so going back to what I said earlier uh, with regards to Putin and, uh, and Russia and whatnot, they have very real interests that are uh, at stake here in Ukraine. And we have to acknowledge those things. And I'm sure that probably behind the doors there is some of that stuff going on. I have to believe that. But I don't know how... I don't know what kind of strict restrictions our negotiators are under in order to, uh, you know, try to negotiate in good faith in these things. But we have to have uh, real humility and we have to realize that the uh, stakes of the other nations uh, are as real and as important as our own. Yeah. And try those. So, I don't have a lot of wisdom here. I do have something I did want to talk about. So, Good. If you don't mind. No, I'm honored. If you don't mind, uh, do you mind if we talk a bit about the SCOTUS decision? And in particular, I would like to share some reflections that I have uh, regarding this and I know that in talking about abortion as a male, that I get myself into some tricky <laughs> waters here because the fact that there's uh, those that believe that, you know, only those with the vagina have a right to talk about this. I don't really subscribe to that view. I understand the uh, emotions behind it and the difficulty surrounding abortion, but uh you know, I don't think any of us would uh, agree with the idea that, you know, we can't talk about the war unless we're in the military. We can't talk about medical problems unless we're a doctor or whatever. I just uh, don't right. think And that by that's... the way, I don't know if you saw earlier in the show, 
that I said, we have to stop being squeamish about abortion. We have to talk about it. My position, and I'm not sure you're going to agree with me, and I'm never going to get into an argument with you, but mm -hmm. my position, so you know, is I'm pro-abortion, and I don't think it's up to, to it's not up to men to decide uh, what happens when a woman gets pregnant. And I worry that squeamishness about abortion creates cultural guardrails that force women to be more traumatized by an abortion than necessary. When we dance around the topic and almost make it sacred and, you know, and say things like uh, they should be uh, safe, legal and rare. Well, that I think stigmatizes young women who need abortions. I think we need a more flippant attitude in this country about abortion. That's my position, because I think I think that when we say when we wring our hands and say it's a difficult decision, uh, that that trains women to be traumatized by deciding to get an abortion. I think we need to, if we want to protect abortion rights, I think it's time to co-op some of the tactics used by the gay community, which is, I'm here, I'm queer, get used to it. What do you think of this, this sparkled Speedo that I'm wearing? You know, uh, I think you have to throw it back in the face of the right to lifers. I suspect you don't agree with me on any of that. I don't, I don't know about that. I'd like you to kind of hear where I come from before right. you decide. Okay. I, I, I think, first of all, that uh, I have a view that is reflective of uh, an important segment of the progressive community. And I'd like to give voice to that. And I want to talk from the standpoint of consensus. And I think that there's a significant amount of consensus. And my uh, basic idea that I want to bring to the table is this. I don't come from the standpoint that you do in terms of abortion as a legal right, because I don't buy the philosophical underpinnings that lead to that. But that said, I oppose the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And the reason that I do so is because I believe that uh, going the legal route is uh, an ineffectual approach to limiting abortions. And I suggest that what we have to do instead is try to pause and uh, understand what are the root causes of most abortions and then try to address those through enacting proper policies and programs to address those root causes. So that's my basic premise that I'm coming at this with, and I'd like to develop it. Um, now, one of the things that makes this difficult in terms of talking about this is, you know, there is this kind of binary approach to the whole abortion que question between you, you're either pro-life or you're pro-choice. And I don't like either of those. 
I don't want to be associated with people who call themselves uh, pro-life and go around bombing abortion clinics and shaming women as they go into uh, clinics. Uh, I don't agree with that. I don't want to associate with people who call themselves pro-life and uh, who say that they care about the dignity of this developing life, but they fail to advocate for social programs uh, to address uh, the mothers and, and parents who need to nurture that same child as, as it grows up. So, you know, George Carlin said this. He said, back in 1996, I think it was, pro-life conservatives are obsessed with the fetus from conception to nine months. And after that, they don't want to know about you. They don't want to hear from you. Do nothing. No neonatal, I'm sorry, no neonatal care, no daycare, no Head Start, no school lunch, no food stamps, no welfare, no nothing. If you're pre-born, you're fine. If you're preschool, you're effed. Mm-hmm. But uh, I also find myself in a little bit of a difficult problem with uh, those that uh, come from the standpoint of uh, pro-choice and everything. I find that the rhetoric of uh, my body, my choice uh, is a little too individualistic for me. And, you know, think about the fact that people who use this kind of rhetoric uh, are also the same ones who will bristle when conservatives uh, shout out that same quip when uh, they they are trying to tell why they're not going to wear a mask. And they say the same thing, my body, my choice. So I don't, I don't find that helpful. And then, you know, there's questions, philosophical questions, uh, and maybe medical ones, uh, trying to determine, you know, uh, when does a fetus become a, a human? Uh, I find this a dangerous uh, moral edge, trying to uh, get all of that out. You know, even when you're trying to deal with, you know, uh, well, I, I won't go into that. I'll put that aside. But there is widespread agreement among uh, most Americans, regardless of their political or religious stance, that abortion is morally permissible to save the life of the mother or when pregnancy is a result of rape or incest. So I have a few stats here. Uh, there was a new Pew Research Center study that found that white evangelicals uh, remain the only major religious group that supports overturning the landmark ruling, even though most such groups find abortion morally wrong. But only slightly more than half of white evangelicals. I'm sorry, uh, can you explain that to me? What, 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 did, what did they discover? Well, the important thing is, is that uh, white evangelicals are the only remaining uh, religious group that support the overturning of the landmark Roe v. Wade. Uh, 54% of white evangelicals. Uh, That's really just a little over half. So it doesn't fit kind of the way in which we think. We think everybody, if they're white evangelical, then they're going to be all in for overturning it. But if you look at other groups, the substantial majority of white Protestants, 76%, want to see it overturned. 
I'm sorry, not overturned. Black Protestants don't want to see it overturned. 65% white Catholics don't want to see it overturned. 63%. Uh, and uh, even though the majority of those people believe that abortion fundamentally is wrong, but they also, as I said before, they see that there are important exceptions there. So I think that we've got some something to work with. Um, so if I can then go and just kind of lay out my own moral stance here, the basis for it, and then I want to talk about some solutions. I apologize if this... Uh, no, it's, it's great. Um, now, this is going to be a little bit of a rehash, but I've outlined in other situations what are my basic moral principles and values. So I've talked about universal sacrificial love. I've talked about the fact that I am I subscribe to strict nonviolence. That means refusal to do harm to any, any sentient being. I believe in social justice, pursuing it. And I also believe in consistent life ethic, which is a, uh, a holistic way of applying this reverence for life, which says that, you know, we're, we can't be just concerned about life in the womb, but it has to be the whole life development on down to death and everything in between. So that means that if you really believe that uh, you value human life, the sacredness of human life, then uh, that means then uh, you can't only oppose abortion, then you need to be against capital punishment. You gotta be against militarism, euthanasia. You have to be opposed to every law, policy and program that constitutes a threat to the dignity of human life. But on the positive side, embracing a consistent life ethic entails the, the moral necessity to stand up and advocate for policies and laws and programs that uphold the dignity of life. So, you know, all the programs that will address the problems of racism, sexism, poverty, uh, the plight of refugees, workers' rights, LBTQ uh, plus rights, uh, and uh, even something as mundane as wearing a mask during this pandemic. All of these are expressions of being truly pro-life. So uh, for me, uh, I also go beyond, my view even transcends what's called that consistent uh, life ethic to embrace the idea, and we've talked about this in um, spirituality and activism when we've talked about deep ecology, but I believe that we also have to have concern not only for human life, but towards protecting the life and rights of all creatures, both sentient and non-sentient. When I say non-sentient, I mean water, mountains, the air, you know, all these things have a right to exist uh, and should be able to flourish in the most natural way, right? So those are the basics that undergird how I approach this question. So there's two basic ways to address the problem of abortion. One is by 
trying to make it less available, which the conservatives have been trying to do all along. The other is by trying to make it less necessary. And I think that virtually every progressive, and I would imagine you too, Dave, would want to see abortion, or at least under, look at trying to understand and deal with the root causes of abortion, try to address those so that it is minimized. I don't think we're ever going to get completely rid of it. I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I'm listening, but no, I'm, 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 I'm over that now that that uh, I I appreciate everything you're saying. But when Democrats start saying legal, safe and rare, I think we need voices in our community uh, that speak up and say, nah, don't care. Go have an abortion. I, I know that I'm not trying to be insensitive, but we've tried uh being understanding with the far right and trying to couch things so it's acceptable. I no longer think that works in this country. And you're either it's like unions. You're you know, which side are you on? And you're either for I'm not trying to be disrespectful to you. And I really appreciate what you're saying. But I don't agree with the Clinton uh, approach where you triangulate and stigmatize abortion. I'm pro-abortion. I just, I, I just wish it wasn't happening as much. I think you, that's a, that's anti-abortion, and you stigmatize it, and you make it worse for the woman who gets the abortion by saying, "I wish we didn't have to do this." I, I don't think it's a value judgment. I think this is where we get. This is why we lose. Our side loses by trying to make things sound okay for the intolerant i'm not well i'm not disagreeing with you there so i'm i'm not sure that i understand where we have i i you know i worked with uh young people who were in difficult uh, situations some of which had abortion last thing that i ever did was to stigmatize them and i don't believe in that and i also believe that there are people who differ from me and philosophically, and I believe that we can land on different places and still respect one another. But what I'm talking about is ultimately, I, I hope that you will allow me to finish. Whatever you want. I, I, I appreciate what you're saying. Okay. I'm grateful. But where I'm going is this, David. We on the progressive side are on the right track. We're on the right track. Ultimately is where I want to go here. But please let me finish laying out where I'm at, because I think it's important that folks here within this community where some people are coming from who are their allies and that we should all be allies in opposing the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And we need each other. Uh, so thank you. Um, so first of all, this first idea of making it less available is dangerous and a horrible way to approach it. Um, 
the the idea uh, that making it illegal is going to reduce the number of abortions is wrong. Uh, they think that those who offer this line of thought believe that abortion is someday going to cease to exist. And uh, the fact is, is that close to 70,000 women a year die from unsafe abortions and numerous others suffer grave injuries, uh, including infection, hemorrhaging, and infertility. And uh, our, as we know from past history, people were forced to seek out abortions in horrible situations, or they ended up painfully uh, before uh, Roe v. Wade. Uh, the solution oftentimes have them give it up for adoption and all the pain that went along with that. So I don't think that, that is a helpful approach. And if abortion was legal in most states, uh, of course, I'm not, that's not even sure that that's going to happen. Uh, it's going to mainly hurt the poor and young people ultimately uh, because they have a lack of savings and, uh, or mobility. And of course, you know, those who are the rich, I don't care where you're at philosophically, religiously, I don't care. The rich are still going to have their abortions and they'll have it. Uh, But as a result of the lack of access, many are going to suffer significant delay in obtaining abortion, thereby making the procedure more costly, more rich, risky, and more emotionally and morally challenging. And in the worst case scenario, many women are going to result, resort to using medically unsafe procedures. Um, so the far better approach is to, first of all, reduce the incidence of unintended pregnancy. Now, I was talking about my sister who was the head of a health center that provided abortion, by the way, as part of what she did. That wasn't the main thing. They had, uh, she said they only did it on Saturdays. I have a sister, by the way. I can't talk about that. Right. I, I know too much about this from a personal standpoint. Um, so I'm not speaking out of this from, from some kind of orb outside I know too much so she and I were talking about all this and you know the first way to try to reduce it I don't think anybody's going to disagree with me this of unintended pregnancy is reduce the incidence of unintended pregnancy because half of all of the uh, pregnancies in this country are unintended and of those, half of those end in, a, in abortion. So how can you deal with that? Well, first of all, comprehensive sexual sex education. And, you know, that's something that I sought to try to do within my own classroom. I was an oddball, but I did it. Uh, I wasn't the only one that gave I went further, let's just say, than some of my peers, but it wasn't that they weren't dealing with that either. Second thing is, is insurance 
coverage of and public funding for family planning services. Thirdly, programs that curb domestic violence and sexual abuse, which is a cause of a lot of this. We have to address those things. And even with all of those things, there's still going to be some unintended pregnancy. So, uh, you know, birth control uh, methods are uh, not fallible. So um, second positive way is to ensure that uh, if a woman, uh, we need to ensure that the woman has the means to have and raise a child in health and safety, should she wish to do so, should she choose to do so. And according to the Alan Guttmacher, I'm almost done. No, it's fair. Alan Guttmacher Institute, which is a health research uh, group. Women base their decisions to have abortion largely on their ability to maintain economic stability and to care for their children that they already have. Therefore, providing low-income and young women with genuine education and career opportunities, universal health care, child care, housing, services for disabled children, and other basic supports would give them the kinds of resources that would mitigate the use of abortion because it's addressing some of the root causes. But ultimately, I would say, too, and this is my cheer to my friends here, most important and efficacious ways to uh, greatly reduce the amount of abortions is for us progressives to continue to advocate for programs and policies that help us build a more just and life-affirming society. And that includes our fight for unions. That means we need to continue to fight for a clean environment and clean energy and ridding our world of all forms of violence and war. Uh, to my conservative friends, I'd ask that you acknowledge that poverty and war are the leading abortifacients in our country and throughout the world. That's a quote from Michael Sean Winters, a Catholic journalist in the National Catholic Reporter. And last one, end capitalism. So anyway, I hope that... uh, the last one what the last one was what end capitalism end capitalism yeah yeah interesting so i appreciate your allowing me to uh share that even if you and some of my friends might agree with some of my uh, i agree with 99 percent. i agree with 99 i love you i agree with 99 percent of what you're saying and you're a hundred percent of what you're saying is correct uh i just uh feel coming from brother (laughs) yeah I, i i everything you're saying is correct and reasonable and I think the, the the Democrats try the reasonable approach, but we're up, we're up against unreasonable people. I don't believe they're trying. The Democrats? No. No. 
Well, I don't believe that. I agree. Yeah, they're not. But I, I'm I'm talking specifically about safe, legal, and rare. That 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 approach. That 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 trying to find that cutesy little thing that Bill Clinton said. You know, no. You know, uh, if he had been serious about what he was saying right there, he would have said the stuff that I said. Exactly. He would have done the stuff that I said. He, he wasn't cut welfare. Serious. He cut welfare. Uh, yeah, that that was that. Yeah, that was just rhetoric. Nothing yeah. but rhetoric. Right. Anyway, thank you for interesting thing oh. off the to- thank you off the topic of abortion. We had. Uh, a guest on at seven o'clock, David DeJong. He's a, a journalist. He writes for, he wrote for Bloomberg. He writes for some of the top uh, economic journals around the world. Author of the new book, Nazi Billionaires, The Dark History of Germany's Wealthiest Dynasties. It was an interesting conversation. I don't know if you saw it because I asked him about capitalism and Adolf mm-hmm. Hitler. And he gave me a surprising answer that I didn't expect from somebody who makes his living working for uh, Bloomberg News. And now he's, you know, the Wall Street Journal and uh, Business Week. And now he's with the Dutch Financial Daily. I said, was Nazi Germany a capitalist state. He goes, absolutely. I said, it was a capitalist state when Hitler took over. He said, yes. When did it stop being a capitalist state? I asked, and he said, never. I said, even when the Russians and the Americans were on the verge of winning? He said, it was capitalism all the way until East Germany fell under the sway of Russia. So it was mm-hmm. interesting about capitalism. It doesn't know right from wrong. It's money. Mm-hmm. And Hitler, yeah. Hitler was a capitalist. So says a, an expert on the subject. Yeah. Uh, you know, eliminating capitalism is a great idea. Uh, replacing it with what? would also be a great idea. I support Bernie, but as much as I was disenchanted by Elizabeth Warren, a lot can be said for guardrails for capitalism before we figure out how to replace it. We need guardrails. I think that the the smartest people who've talked about a path out of capitalism are saying that there has to be a unholy marriage between the two and a, a, a building up of programs to wean ourselves off of it. And not just programs, by the way, we have to, there has to be a fundamental transformation of consciousness to get ourselves away from capitalism. I don't think that there's many people, myself included, within this community in terms of our consciousness have totally disassociated ourselves from that. We're too immersed in it. Yeah. 
Professor Hussein earlier was talking about certain things should not be allowed to be commodified. And I think the first step is a cultural awakening where we say, you know what? Education is not a commodity. Air, water, housing, food. The government is going to nationalize all the things that should not be commodified. I think that's the first step towards something yeah. It smells like and socialism. You name, that, and you name that by saying you have to ask the question, Are what are those things that are necessary for an ordinary human being to flourish? And not just, by the way, ordinary human beings. Well, please, let's speak about the rest of creation, too, because our, our flourishing depends upon all the rest of, uh, of nature. So what are those things that... Uh, are going to ensure the the dignity and rights of human beings and all the rest of nature so that we can all flourish. And those have to be the programs that we enact. Yeah. And those those they have to be decommodified as you put it. Of course I want to get everything decommodified. <laughs> right. Except podcasts, right? Yeah. Uh, Shahid Buttar was on the show. He's running against Pelosi. And he oh, is the first. I'm sorry. He's doing it again. He's doing it again. Oh, and good. of all the candidates I've had on the show, of all the left wing Marxists and socialists I've had on the show, I believe, I hope I'm not being unfair, he is the first one to talk about nationalization, nationalizing certain industries. And uh, it, this is something that I said earlier last year, that before we start talking about communism, Marxism, getting rid of capitalism, we have to introduce into the conversation what nationalizing industry looks like. That's the, the first step in a cultural awakening where the American people can look at the post office and then say, well, we could nationalize the banks. We can nationalize health care. It would be better than what we're getting now. That's the first step. But nobody talks about that. Shahid, you know, all these Marxists on the show uh, with their critiques of capitalism, but nobody is spelling out a pathway towards socialism, which is training the American people to accept that certain things should not be commodified and that the government can nationalize certain industries simply by buying up 10%, owning 10% of, of uh, Exxon, you get 10%. You don't have to buy all of Exxon. You just buy 10% of it. You can shut that mf -er down. You just have to buy 10% of Exxon. You can just close it down. You have Well, that, okay. I, you won me over a little bit by your last little addendum there because, uh, yeah. No, I, I mean, we have to be. Moving beyond, too, by the way, the whole notion of sustainability. What sustainability means is trying to maintain the course of 
affluence that we Americans and the affluent of the world maintain without completely screwing over the world. And we have to resolve ourselves to move towards a lifestyle. If we're going to talk about sustainability, it has to be sustainable for every creature and non-creature. And that means something way different than what we know by way of our, we, it's hard for us to imagine that. The only way to imagine it is by looking at what many intentional, small intentional communities are doing around the world, where they are in many ways unplugging to a large degree from the rest and are living the kinds of lives that are going to be necessary, if not completely thrust upon us within a few decades. Well said. Thank you, Texas Tom Weber. I love you. I love you too. I'm grateful that you're part of our life. Tom Weber hosts two weekly Zoom groups. One is called Spirituality and Activism, and the other is a virtual artist community called Art Attack. And how do people join you on these two? Well, the, the, um, let's start with the Art Attack first. And this is for anybody who has an interest in art. It doesn't matter where you're at in the spectrum of ability. We have people from absolute beginners on up to professionals and everybody in between there. And if you go to Facebook and look up Art Attack with a question mark, you will find the group and go in there and just register and then I will find you. Or you can look for me on Facebook, Tom Weber. And, uh, and and if you see my face, then go ahead and click and friend me and I will get you in. The, the same, Probably the same thing for the spirituality and activism. If you are not part of this group, by this group, I should add, part of Discord. If you're not part of Discord, the David Feldman Discord, uh, where we do have our own little, oh, do you call it channel? Not channel. What do you call it? It's a channel. I, I it's a channel with all these different. I think it's. I think yeah. you call it a channel. Anyway, there's a spiritual spirituality and activism channel, and go there and uh, you know there's information about uh, when our next one next ones are. Otherwise, on Facebook, or you can also forward any questions or comments of any sort to me at Texas Tom 46. That's the number Texas Tom 46 all run together at gmail.com. Perfect. And uh, I will. And uh, how do we see you and Barb? And well, we are on every Tuesday uh, on Facebook. Uh, we do a live uh, or a live stream uh, in which we do 30 minutes of music and I'll speak in Feldman terms here. That would be from 8 o'clock to 8.30 Eastern time, 7 to 7.30 Central time. And, uh, yeah, so look for us there and uh, would love to have you. What says love? Love how Tom says Tuesday. Okay. Yeah. Making fun of my accent here. That's all right. I love it. We love you. Thank you, Tom. Come back. Thank you. Come back. All right, Thank you. Bye-bye. Right, Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you to all our guests 
for joining us today. This was a great show. It's interesting. We have a secretary of state who's advising Taiwan on which weapons to purchase, as opposed to working with China and Taiwan to make sure there's no war. That's how we've devolved uh, as a people, as a nation. Uh, well, you've been listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. The website is back up. Please go to my website, sign up for our newsletter. Please join us in our virtual studio audience as we tape our podcast every Monday and Thursday on Zoom, as well as on YouTube. We live stream the recording session on YouTube. So if you would like to join us in the Zoom room, go to my website, subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's growing. I want to thank the people who put this show together. Invisible Ninja is doing an amazing job growing our YouTube channel. So thank you. Thank you to Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, Grace Jackson, uh, uh, Joe in Norway, Professor Jonathan Bick, and of course, Dan Frankenberger, who's feeling better. Let me go over those names again. I like to challenge myself by mixing them up and then seeing if I can. And Hannah Feldman. Uh, so I want to thank the people who helped produce this show. They are Grace Jackson, Hannah Feldman, Sarah Bush, Joe in Norway, Professor Jonathan Bick, Andy Brown, the Invisible Ninja and Dan Frankenberger. If I left somebody out, I apologize. I don't think I did, though. Uh, go to my website. I'm answering all my emails now. Uh, I have more time thanks to the crew of people who are helping to produce this show. I'm focusing more on uh, connecting with the listeners again. So uh, I enjoy doing that. And thank you notes for all the people who've donated uh, from the past pledge-isodes. Uh, I've written thank you notes to everyone. So if you didn't get a thank you note, let me know and uh, I'll send you another one. And if you donate to Joe Thompson, if you go to joeforassembly.org and donate, let me know so I can thank you. Thank you to Joe Thompson, 19-year-old UC Santa Cruz student, Starbucks union organizer running for California State Assembly District Number 28. That's in Santa Cruz. If you know anybody who lives in Santa Cruz, tell them to vote for Joe Thompson. The primary is the first week of June. Donate by going to joeforassembly.org. What a great, great, great guy. Great person. Great human being. Jason Miles, co-host of This Is Revolution podcast. Check out him and Pascal Robert. They, they do a great job. Howie Klein, read him over at Down With Tyranny. David DeJong, author of Nazi Billionaires, The Dark History of Germany's Wealthiest Dynasties. Go buy the book. Go buy Nazi Billionaires, The Dark History of Germany's Wealthiest Dynasties. And if you don't like the book, I'll reimburse you. Just let me know. That's how fascinating. Just the stuff about 
Goebbels' wife is worth the price of admission. Mark Breslin, thank you. Happy birthday. For more information, go to yuckyucks.com. Go support live comedy. If you're vaccinated and you're wearing a mask, go watch live comedy. Dr. Harriet Fraud, listen to her on Capitalism Hits Home, and uh, it's not just in your head. Professor Adnan Hussein, listen to his podcasts, The Mudgeless Podcast and Guerrilla History. Peter B. Collins, go to peterbcollins.com for a treasure trove of this man's conversations with the greats, including Tom Hayden, Professor Marianne Cummings, follow her on Twitter at Razor Girl. She spells girl, G-R-R-L. That's Razor Girl. And of course, Tom Weber, Texas Tom Weber. Friend him on Facebook. And that way you can join him for spirituality and activism, Art Attack, and Fair Weber with Barb. Uh, thank you to everybody who joined me today in the virtual studio audience. I can't do this without you. I'm David Feldman, and I want you to join us for office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. Thank you to Professor Mike Steinell for the incredible, incredible music. I'm David Feldman, reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. Thank you.